Greetings and good afternoon, everyone. This is Cheryl, and I'm so pleased to be here to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Saturday afternoon program, The Interplanetary and Galactic History, Herstory, and True History, Herstory of Nasara. Infinite blessings to us all as we celebrate the Lunar New Year, also known as the Chinese New Year. Uh, the exact time of the new moon was at 5.59 p.m. yesterday on the 9th. And, of course, all of our calendars listed as February 10th because that's when it started in China. So it is the year of the green wooden dragon. And um, so we're calling in the blessings and the prosperity of this year ahead. So thank you for joining us, and thank you for joining us as we begin this divine service work. Take a deep breath and go into your heart center, the portal to all that is. And as you enter the heart, we call forth for the full and complete virgins with our soul, with our higher self, with our monad, with our mighty I am presence, with all of our multidimensional being, through to our God presence and goddess presence. See yourself in your pillar of light. We begin and seeing the pillar filled with the violet flame. With tinges of gold coming through already as it makes this transformation and alchemical process. Changing everything that does not resonate with our divine source. As we anchor our pillar directly to source and directly to the heart of Mother Earth, into her crystalline heart, and expand our pillar to its fullest breath that we might anchor heaven on earth and open to receive. So we invite in for everyone. Every man, woman, and child through the following prayer, please join me in saying, I am my I am presence. As my I am presence, I am one with the I am presence of all humanity. I am one with every man, woman, and child. I am one with all my family members and loved ones. I am one with all that is. And so we connect heart to heart, high heart to high heart, cosmic heart to cosmic heart to every man, woman, and child, inviting them in the service work with us as their I am presence to anchor their pillar of light, to do the transmutation process, and alchemically bring in the golden light of divine wisdom, enlightenment, of eternal peace and infinite abundance 
of Christ's consciousness, of illumination, all of the divine qualities of the golden light. So we invite in for one and all, all of our soul extensions, planetary and galactic, all of our ancestors, all of our genetic lineage, all of our spiritual lineage, all the generations past and forward. And we welcome, for one and all, all of our guides and teachers, our healing teams, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame, our ascension council, our mission council. We welcome the assistance of all the kingdoms, the plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, the jiva kingdom, the elemental kingdom, the fairy kingdom. All of the kingdoms of nature, the whales, the dolphins, the unicorns, and especially the dragons, as it is the year of the dragon, and all magical kingdoms. And we welcome all of the realms of the angels, from the angels and archangels through to the cherubim and seraphim. We welcome the uh, all angelic healers and healing teams. We welcome the Ascended Masters, the Brotherhood of Light, the Sisterhood of the Rays and Rose, the Order of Melchizedek, the Radiant Ones, and all of the Enlightened Masters, all Divine Mother Emissaries, Divine Father Emissaries, all of the Planetary and Cosmic Hierarchy of Light, and all Ascended Master Healers and Healing Teams. We welcome for everyone all of our friends from the Galactic Federation of Light and their healing teams, especially those that we work so closely with, from Arcturus, from Pleiades, from Sirius, from Andromeda, from Chiron, and from Venus. And we call forth at this time (coughs) the assistance of all cosmic galactic universal healers and the entire company of heaven asking our Mother, Father, God to overlight all that we do and magnify it in divine order 999 trillion times, 999 trillion times. And we give thanks for the blessings that we receive. We recommit ourselves to being that bridge between heaven and earth, the anchor of of the new golden age and the open door that no one can shut. We call forth all of the rays, all of the flames, all of the universal laws, all of the ascension waves. And with every energy and frequency, every prayer and invocation, every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, every activation, we ask that it be received individually and collectively through every cell, chakra, meridian, layer of our auric field multidimensionally, on a conscious, subconscious, superconscious level as well. We invite in to, we ask to easily and effortlessly digest and assimilate, ground and anchor, integrate and embody all that we receive with the greatest of ease and grace and joy and peace and bliss and ecstasy serenity and tranquility 
balance and equilibrium, without resistance on any level, without discomfort on any level, without fear on any level, in love and light and laughter. We call forth everyone in our circle of support from the very first name that created it to every man, woman, and child, to every family member and loved one, every friend, every neighbor, every community member, each and every pet and animal, every group, every organization, every institution, each and every business and corporation, every nation, every military, every government. And we call forth special blessings this year for the creation of divine government, the enactment, the actualization, the full manifestation of divine government. And we call this forth for the legislative aspect of each government here and in each and every nation across the planet. So we call forth all the rays, flames, universal laws, and ascension waves into every Congress, every parliament, every legislative body on national, state, and local and provincial levels for each and every nation, the U.S. House of Representatives, the U.S. Senate, each state legislature, each city council, each school board, and each library board, and every lawmaking body, as we call forth for every law, considered every law enacted, reflect only divine law, divine justice, divine love, divine governance, divine government, and reflects heaven on earth. We call forth the rays, flames, universal laws, and ascension waves for the executive aspect of each and every nation, every president, every prime minister, every head of state, each vice president, each cabinet post, and cabinet member, especially the Department of State, the Department of Defense, and the Department of Justice in each and every nation, And all who work for them, all advisors, all ambassadors, as we call forth that every decision made on an executive level truly reflect divine law, divine justice, divine love, divine governance, divine government, and reflect heaven on earth. We call for it the same for each and every nation, the judicial aspect of each nation, each court, the highest court of the land in each nation, all international courts, the U.S. Supreme Court and all of its justices, and each and every case and each and every decision before them. And we call this forth for all federal, state, And local judges, every judge, every jury, every grand jury, each and every prosecutor, each and every defendant, each and every court case, all aspects of the legal system, 
as we call forth for each and every decision being made, reflect only divine law, divine justice, divine love, divine governance, divine government, and reflect only heaven on earth. We call this for the United States and each and every nation, for all voters, for each citizen, for each and every nation across the planet. And we call forth at this time all of the weather patterns, all of the flooding, all of the rainfalls, all of the storms, all of the tropical storms, all of the snowstorms, the winter storms, each and every weather pattern that is extreme in any way, we ask to have balanced. We call forth the elementals. We call forth the Mahakohan to bring everyone and everything in balance. And we invite in all the situations that we have in our circle of support, that everyone have all of their needs met physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. And today we're focused on the abundance of all good things, the abundance of financial prosperity for each and every person, that we can focus on our divinity and our spiritual growth and our role, everyone understanding their role in this process of creating heaven on earth, remembering their divine purpose and mission, and becoming the Christ-conscious beings that we are here to be in this new golden age. We call forth all of the energy around the Super Bowl, around last week's Grammys, around Valentine's Day, around the new moon and and the Chinese New Year and all the things that we are celebrating this year, this um, this month especially. Uh, we call all of that energy and attention into our collective cup of consciousness for the transformation of the planet, for the full anchoring of heaven on earth. And we ask Gaia to receive all that we receive through her chakras and meridians and layers of her orc field, through every ley line and song line, through the grid system, the love grids, the light grids, the unity grids, all of the multidimensional grid system, and through every portal and vortex and monument and sacred site and place of power, every stargate, every city of light, as we continue up this uh, spiral of evolution along with Gaia, and she takes her rightful place as Freedom Star. And we call in the golden light of eternal peace and infinite abundance as we decree. I am invoking the golden light of God's abundance and eternal peace on behalf of myself and on behalf of everyone who is in any way doing light work. Every light worker who is involved in establishing the patterns of perfection for the new earth and the physical plane, as well as every man, woman, and child in divine order. I know through every fiber of my being that my mother, father, God, and the company of heaven are accepting financial sustenance as a gift of love being given to God, goddess, and appreciation for humanity's gift of life. 
I know that this is transpiring with the highest good of all concerned right here and right now. Moment by moment and day by day, everything I need to fulfill my divine plan is available to me through God's gift of infinite abundance and eternal peace. Universal laws. These universal laws of ask and you shall receive. And knock and the door will be opened. (coughs) Are manifesting in my life now and forever. I revel in the buoyancy and elation of my newfound freedom and God's infinite abundance. The company of heaven rejoices with me as I reclaim my divine birthright. And I accept my eternal peace and the God goddess supply of all good things. So be it and so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. And we now decree, I am, I am, I am the eternally sustained manifestation of God's infinite supply of money and every good thing I require to assist me in my service to the light, now made manifest and sustained by holy grace. I am, I am, I am the eternally sustained manifestation of God's infinite supply of money and every good thing I require to assist me in my service to the light, now made manifest and sustained by holy grace. I am, I am, I am the eternally sustained manifestation of God's infinite supply of money and every good thing I require to assist me in my service to the light, now made manifest and sustained by holy grace. In deep love and appreciation for my glorious gift of life, I consecrate my heart and soul to be the open door for the patterns of perfection from the causal body of God until the new earth is manifest and all life evolving here is wholly ascended and free. It is done, and so it is. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. See that golden light blazing in through and around you and in through and around the planet and everyone upon her. Through the power of God, God is blazing in my heart and the hearts of all humanity. I joyously receive and accept the gift of God's golden flame of eternal peace and infinite abundance. On the wings of this divine light, I ascend into the causal body of God. From this realm of divine consciousness, I have the clear inner knowing that God is my supply. I relinquish now in the name of God, Goddess, I am all of the power I have ever given to lack and limitation through my thoughts, words, actions, and feelings in any time frame or dimension, both known or unknown. I relinquish now in the name of God, Goddess, I am, 
all of the beliefs I have ever had that were based in poverty consciousness. From this moment forward, I consecrate and dedicate my very life to be the open door through which the new frequencies of the golden flame of eternal peace and infinite abundance will now flow to bless me, my family, friends, co-workers, and all humanity. As I breathe, think, speak, feel, and act, the presence of God, Goddess, within me is perpetually expanding the golden light of eternal peace and infinite abundance to all life evolving on earth. So be it, and so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. The golden rays of eternal peace and abundance from the causal body of God are now flowing through the cup of my consciousness into the heart of every evolving soul. This golden light is pulsating with frequencies of the fifth dimension beyond anything humanity has ever experienced up until this moment. Contained within the essence of this flame of eternal peace is God's infinite abundance. And contained within the essence of God's infinite abundance is the flame of eternal peace. I breathe in deeply. And I become one with this golden light as I enter the secret place of the most high living God within my heart. As I enter the sacred space on the holy breath, I am open and receptive to the impulses pouring forth from the heart and mind of God. The hour has at last arrived, and the divine fiat has been issued by my mother, father, God, for the divinity pulsating within my heart flame to be given full liberty and freedom of expression. Uh, My I am presence rejoices in this divine edict and will now give me every possible assistance in manifesting the the patterns of perfection from the causal body of God on earth. I become a keeper of the flame of eternal peace and abundance in accordance with my divine destiny. My earthly bodies are brought into perfect balance, and latent powers encoded within my heart flame are released. The abilities I have developed over eons of time that will assist me in co-creating the new earth are brought into a balanced state of true mastery. The immortal victorious threefold flame within my heart begins to expand and expand. The blue flame of divine power from my Father God empowers the golden flame of eternal peace and abundance in the hearts of all humanity. The pink flame of divine love from my Mother God directs the flame of eternal peace and abundance through every heart flame and floods the earth to bless all life. The yellow gold flame of wisdom from the sons and daughters of God Goddess enlightens every mind to the divine truth that eternal peace and abundance are inseparable aspects of God's perfection and all is well. 
I realize these days are days of great acceleration due to the influx of divine consciousness that has been flooding the earth. The vibratory action of every aspect of life is being stepped up the maximum that cosmic law will allow in every 24-hour period. The golden flame of eternal peace and abundance now pouring through my heart assists me in maintaining balance through this process. It allows me to experience the bliss and joy of this activity of light involving Earth's ascension into greater perfection. I am now reaching into a new octave of my godhood. And my mother, father, God are able to easily move through me. My eyes become blazing rays of light through which the light of God blesses all life. My hands become mighty conductors of God's healing power. My lips become the instruments through which God's words are formed and directed into the physical plane of earth. My feet walk the path of light. My life force now becomes the vehicle through which God enters the world to love and serve all life. I realize and accept my unlimited ability to do whatever I desire in order to establish and expand God's perfection in my world and the worlds of all humanity. Through my thoughts, words, actions, and feelings, I am a mighty balancing activity of light pulsating in, through, and around all life on earth. Now, in the name of the infinite presence of God, Goddess, I am. I call to my I am presence and the I am presence of all humanity as one voice, one heartbeat, one breath, one energy and vibration of pure divine consciousness, I affirm. Beloved, I am present. Enfold me now in God's peace and abundance as I become an eternal golden sun of this divine light. Feel free to say with me, I am an eternal son, S-U-N, of God's peace and abundance, now made manifest and permanently sustained by holy grace. I am an eternal son of God's peace and abundance, now made manifest and permanently sustained by Holy Grace. I am an eternal son of God's peace and abundance, now made manifest and permanently sustained by Holy Grace. So be it and so it is, and we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. I am reclaiming the infinite flow of God's abundance and the new earth is becoming a tangible reality in my life. I now accept God's abundance as my divine birthright. 
It is now time for me to manifest my financial freedom and the God, Goddess supply of all good things. This will provide the necessary sustenance and support I need to fulfill my divine plan. As I assimilate this truth, the divine intelligence blazing in my heart exposes the fact that all of the beliefs I ever had that were based in poverty, lack, and limitation were merely illusions. The supply of all good things, financial freedom, opulence, and abundance are God's gift to me and to all of the sons and daughters of Mother, Father, God. Prosperity consciousness floods into my mind and heart. And I see new, innovative ways to create prosperity in my life. Through my I am presence, I accept and expect the infinite flow of God's abundance in my life now and forever. I know the ebb and flow. The in-breath and out-breath of my life force is the universal law. And so in return for God's gift of abundance, I willingly and joyously agree to share my abundance with those who are striving to co-create the new earth. This is my gift of love that I am giving back to God in appreciation for my gift of life. As I give, so shall I receive. I am at peace with the concept of sharing my money and my abundance with others knowing full well that God's abundance is infinite. The fear of scarcity from my human ego no longer manipulates me. My I am presence is in control. And I know that by continually sharing my money and my gifts of abundance with those who are working to fulfill the divine plan, I open the door for a perpetual flow of abundance into my own life. This is a universal law of life. It is the law of the circle. So it is, and we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. The golden flame of eternal peace and God's abundance is now blazing through every particle of life is a base of physical, etheric, mental, and emotional strata of Earth. This activity is forming a powerful catalyst for God's abundance, which is empowering awakening humanity to joyfully accept our financial freedom. With the assistance of the entire company of heaven, I now seal and permanently sustain this activity of light. I breathe in deeply. And as I do so, I expand and expand the divinity within my own heart flame and the divinity within the heart flames of every man, woman, and child. Together, we create a mighty chalice of light that cradles the sweet earth in all her life. Now, as one breath, one voice, one heartbeat, one energy, vibration, and consciousness of pure divine love, I affirm. I am open and receptive 
to God's abundance. And I joyously receive and freely give my wealth. I am therefore eternally blessed with financial freedom, opulence, abundance, and the God, God of supply of all good things. Through my newfound prosperity consciousness, all of the financial sustenance I need to fulfill my divine plan is now flowing into my life daily and hourly. I am the divine image of God Goddess, manifesting infinite abundance in my being and world. And for the children of God Goddess, everyone, everywhere. In God's supreme name forever. Wherever I am, my very presence in the universe is a constant outpouring and release of God's life and light. God's transfiguring divine love. God's eternal peace and abundance. God's truth and freedom to all I contact every day in every way. I so decree it and accept it done. Through the power of God, Goddess, I am. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. Beloved presence of God, Goddess, pulsating in my heart and the hearts of all humanity, expand, expand, expand. In the fullness of your divine powers, raise me and every human being up into our full divine potential. Blaze the golden flame of God's abundance and eternal peace through my heart center until this sacred flame is visible to the sight of everyone. Enfold all life within the radiance of this divine gift. May all humanity hear and respond to the celestial command for the golden light of eternal peace and infinite abundance to manifest now on earth. Through the presence of God, Goddess, I am. I expand and externalize God's eternal peace and abundance with every breath I take. Through the presence of God, Goddess, I am. I receive and externalize my financial freedom and the golden light of God's abundance, filling my every need. (coughs) Through the presence of God, Goddess, I am. I freely share my abundance with humanity, thus co-creating the new earth and opening the door for the flow of God's abundance into my life. Through the presence of God, Goddess, I am. I perceive and externalize every minute the patterns of perfection for the new earth now made manifest in the physical plane. Through the presence of God, Goddess, I am. I create and externalize every minute an aura of divine light which acts as a natural conductor of God's will 
to all life wherever I am. I accept and know that through the presence of God, God as I am, pulsating in every heart, this glorious activity of light is expanding in power and might daily and hourly with every breath I take. Through the grace of God, Goddess, it is victoriously accomplished. The light of God, Goddess, is always victorious, and I am that light. The light of God, Goddess, is always victorious, and I am that light. The light of God, Goddess, is always victorious, and I am that light. And so it is. Take a nice deep breath as we anchor this with our closing prayer. Beloved, I am present. I know and accept that you have taken control and command of my physical, etheric, mental, and emotional bodies. These vehicles are being raised in vibration, and they are integrating with my highest frequency solar light bodies. My awareness is increasing, and I clearly hear your still, small voice within. I know that you respond to my every call for assistance. I am experiencing your exquisite vibrations, and my entire being is flooded with light. My consciousness is opening to the influx of your pure spiritual energy. I now know you are in me, and I am in thee. I know you are me. I am that I am. And let us say, I am a being of radiant light. I am one with the energy and vibration that is the all-encompassing presence of God. I am one with the divine love that fills the universe with the glory of itself. I am one with every particle of life. I am one with the divine plan for the new earth. I am one with the infinite flow of God's abundance and eternal peace. I am that I am. I am that I am. I am that I am. And so once again, we give thanks for this opportunity to serve and, and do our new moon abundance work for this lunar new year. I hope it's a glorious one for each one of us. So thank you, thank you, thank you for your divine service here this afternoon. I invite you to further divine service every Sunday and Monday evening for the Ascension Meditation and Activation Calls. This is a teleconference call. And we begin at 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time, 5.45 p.m. Pacific Time. We have about 25 minutes of greetings. 
and then Tarn Rama give us a brief update. We begin our work in earnest of creating heaven on earth, anchoring it more fully each and every time. And we've been doing this work, or we just celebrated our 14th anniversary. We're into our 15th year of manifesting heaven. So we begin our work in earnest at 9.30 p.m. Pacific time, 6.30 p.m. I'm sorry, 9.30 p.m. Eastern time and 6.30 Pacific time. And we'd love to have you join us. And let us know that you found out about the call from the Saturday program. So let me give you the main number. It's area code 480-660-2224. Again, area code 480-660-2224. The access code is 946-7441 pound, 946-7441 pound. So we uh, hope you will join us. There are additional numbers throughout the nation. There are local numbers. There is um, an app for freeconference.com. You can use that. You can use the um, getting on by the computer. And again, freeconference.com. And I think it's simply the slash the um, access code number. But if you want the detailed information about that, please contact me by email. Cheryl Croce at AOL.com. That's C-H-E-R-Y-L. C-R-O-C-I at AOL.com. And the next time I get an email, it'll be on my upgraded computer. So <laughs> everything's upgrading. And uh, and thus is a perfect timing to do some abundance work. So um, infinite abundance to you all, infinite health and happiness and joy in this Lunar New Year. Uh, love and grace be with you all. May magic and miracles manifest right here and right now for all of us. And we're going to thank Tar and Rama for their divine service all these many years. And thank Rainbird for her divine service as well as we pass this blazing golden talking stick. It's blazing so much with the golden light of eternal peace, individually and collectively. and throughout the planet, as well as the infinite abundance is blazing so brightly, Rainbird, with this golden light. I can hardly see another frequency, but we know they're all there, and uh, we thank them all for their divine service as well. So I'm going to pass the talking stick, Rainbird. Thank you, everyone, and we'll see you tomorrow night. Oh, thank you, Carol, for your divine service as well and thank you for that talking stick of golden light beautiful so i'm here to do the housekeeping as we are a listener supported radio program it's all of us that make it happen and um we've got some real important uh requests today we but first our bbs radio uh services are paid for by all of us 
And so this month, our weekly commitment is $277.75. And so we need twice that to make our <laughs> commitment for February so far, which is uh, 400 and, or $550 and something. So, um, yeah, as, as you can make, make those donations, this is how we do it. We go into our heart space and see what is ours to give and then go to bbsradio.com. And there on the home page, you'll see right at the top of the page a schedule. And that schedule is for radio station one and radio station two. We're on radio station two here today with the true history of Nisera and our galactic origins. And that begins at the 3.30 hours. So you'll be able to see that listed on Saturdays at 3.30. And that's the central time. And uh, as you click on that icon that's there, it'll take you directly to our account with CBS Radio where you can use your bank card to make a, a contribution of any amount. And then for Thursday and Friday, we have programs on BDS Radio Station 1 at the 8 o'clock hour in the evening, 8 p.m. And you'll see that listed for Thursday as a night at the roundtable with the panel. And as you click on that icon, that takes you to our account where you can make that donation there. And then on Fridays, the same is true. At 8 o'clock hour, it is the hard news on Friday nights with Tara and Rama. Click on that icon, and that takes you to our account as well. So either, any one of those three places, you'll be right at our account, and you just use your bank card to make that donation. So thank you, thank you, thank you for taking that action. As we each pay a little bit each week, and we can be, yeah, staying afloat <laughs> and staying with our commitment. We're grateful for all that BBS Radio does for us. So we're also assisting Tara and Rama with their needs, and they are in an emergency situation with paying a couple of bills that are due right now, the one being the phone bill. How can they be with us without a phone? So that is due now, and it's $162 to cover that Verizon bill. And uh, as we can get something today, that would be just necessary. <laughs> I hate to put it that way, but that's just what it is. And so let's show up and, and assist here at this hour. And uh, the other bill that's due right now is the, the GEICO bill, which is due on Monday, and it's $105. And then there's another bill due right now, which is the windscreen bill, and it's $152. So that's $313 that is due right now. So thank you for your attention to this. We are so grateful. And in all, they need $700 to cover the bills that are coming this week. So, And that's just showing you a lot about inflation. I remember a year ago being around $460 when we addressed all these bills. And now it's $700 or just under $695. So that's just what's happening to all of us. We are all paying our own bills, and I'm sure we're seeing that in our own lives. So thank you, thank you, thank you for your attention to this matter. Um, as we uh, give assistance to Tara and Rama, you want to do that by going 
to the web address, which is rainbowroundtable.net. And there on the homepage, you'll see a donate link. If you're on a computer, it'll be on the right-hand side on the bar on the top. And if you're on another device that gives you the menu grid, you click on that, and it'll be in second to the last listing at donate link. That takes you to the Rainbow Roundtable PayPal account. And once you're there, you want to access the friends option, and so you need to put in the email for that. And so write this down. This is the email for accessing the friends option. Who you want to give to, please put the email in. And so this is it. Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999 at hotmail.com. That's the Rainbow Roundtable PayPal account gifting address. So please have that ready as you make that donation so that we, <clears throat> your money will go a little bit further. And it's not a commercial business you're gifting. You, you are gifting. So thank you for taking that option. <clears throat> And doing it that way. So what else? Um, yeah, as you're sending something, let Rama know in his email address, Koran999 at Comcast.net. Let him know what you are sending and when you send it. So he's alert to that. And then as you need it, and you might, <laughs> the mailing address, Ram D. Berkowitz, R-A-M, D. Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, Post Office Box 280280, and that's in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567 is the zip code, and I'll say that again, Post Office Box 280, Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. So thank you, thank you, thank you. 13 thank yous and honey in the heart. We are so grateful for your donations. We're grateful for all that Tara and Rama do for us. And they do have a battery issue with the car that would cost $1,200 for a new battery or to fix that one. And I will just say right now, a nano-coated copper wire can do the whole thing. Just stick it right on the negative post on your battery and Check it out. Can't lose. And it won't hurt anything. So uh, <laughs> anybody with battery problems can learn about that. And also a battery that size can bother your magnetism. So make sure you're dealing with your headaches in another way. Um, <laughs> I think the GANS helps with your the magnetism in that kind of a battery situation as well. So there you go. That's the update, and we are so grateful for your contributions, and we want to wish you a happy new year. And so, 13 thank yous, honey in the heart. I'm casting this talking stick, and it's, it's that golden white talking stick from Cheryl, and it is just gorgeous. And it is being carried by an entourage of little people carrying all kinds, and then the, all the other little people who aren't carrying this golden light are, are have fireworks for celebrating the new year. And there's lots of fairies and feathers and celebration going on. 
with this dragon. There's a wood dragon. It's there. It's green, and it's beautiful. It has lots of beautiful woods on it for scale. Every scale is a different color of wood, and it's got ebony feet, and it's got a green head and tail because it's a green wood dragon. And so, Happy New Year, and greetings. Tara and Rama, here comes this talking stick. Greetings. Greetings. Thank you, everyone. We are so grateful to be here. Thank you for all the gifts. And we are just moving right along into the age of Aquarius. Happy New Moon in Aquarius. It is a huge deal with what's happening. There were more solar flares today, uh, big ones, even though they use the word moderate instead of X, they're still huge. And um, if you're having waves of issues with your body, I felt nauseous earlier and kind of dizzy and just rolling with the punches. It's a really big deal, these ascension frequencies. And I sat with six deer and three crows, and it snowed today. And they hung around for about ten minutes and just said, we're out of here. <laughs> You're crazy. <laughs> And um, the only message I heard today, which is kind of the big story in a way, because it goes back to the same story we kind of keep talking about, um, that everybody, Graham Hancock, Agent Aliens, what happened in the Middle East? at the time of the flood. And they, on living on the edge today, they talked about the Palestinian-Israeli issue. And they talked about King Solomon, who was black, and the whole story about the Hebrews, which were all black. And this story about the Khazars and... Um, the whiteness, it's a big deal. And what is going on over there? Um, they had Medea Benjamin on and two Israeli-Palestinian people who have lived in the West Bank and Gaza City. And what is going on is systematic genocide, and Mr. Yahoo will be held to account. Lace Violet Fire, Lady Master Ma'at is here with the Scales of Justice. And I leave that to her. Mm. Yeah. It's, you know, an intense story. Because they only tell part of it, not the whole story. Which is this invasion and occupation by... ETs who played around and fell to the dark side. To put it simply, I passed the talking stick <laughs> to you. Thank you, Rama. I wanted to just say that we're going to play Dr. Robert Gilbert again today. 
And I think we're just going to get going because it's two hours and 47 minutes. And I'll just read really quick what he's got to say here. Many people believe the pursuit of good health and healing has been derailed by modern medical thinking that focuses on one narrow way of doing things, often not the best way, while disregarding everything else, including vital and proven spiritual knowledge. Dr. Robert Gilbert makes his long overdue return to the podcast to help us better understand the connections between ancient spiritual knowledge and modern discoveries like biogeometry and cymatics in this healing, living 4D conversation. Uh, so that's that. We're going to just get started. Let's do it. Okay. This just starts out. you got to pay attention. Here we go. Death in nature's design language than they told us in school. Because the way the sound waves move and create energy around it is completely opposite to the way that the light moves and creates movements around it. So, But nobody talks about this. And nobody talks about this even in metaphysical healing circles. We talk in abstract ways about there's sound healing and there's healing with light and color, both systems that I absolutely love. But we have to see that they are two separate systems working with two different types of waves. When we move into a future paradigm that is far more enlightened than what we have today, where we're going to be using energies for healing, we're going to understand that these are two different types of waves we can use for healing. And the effect of the sound waves may not be identical to the effect of the light and color waves. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Tech. Today, Paul welcomes back Dr. Robert Gilbert. Dr. Gilbert is the Director of Studies at the Visica Institute, and his previous episode with Paul was this podcast's most popular episode with Spotify listeners in 2023. A big thank you to our premier sponsors, Bioptimizers, Paleo Valley and Organifi, and our podcast sponsor, Wild Pastures. Their support is essential in producing this podcast, and we hope you will show your support by visiting them online and trying all the amazing products that they produce. Please check the show notes for links and details at checkinstitute.com forward slash podcast. Paul and Dr. Gilbert are today discussing the topics of spirit, mind, and healing. Today, one of my favorite people in the world to talk to is back. That's Robert J. Gilbert founder of the Vesica Institute, the first instructor in biogeometry trained by Ibrahim Karim in the U.S., maybe in the world, I'm not sure. But my last podcast with Robert was absolutely excellent. I had a huge response to it. Many people bought his courses and have told me how grateful they were to find the information. So I'll say right up front, um, Get over to the Vesca Institute. Check out his courses. They're all very in line with the things that I teach and that I think everybody needs to study. And I found Robert Gilbert years ago actually studying sacred geometry, turned him on to uh, Jason Picard and Kara, and they looked into his teachings, took some of his courses, and reinvigorated my interest. And then my friendship with Ibrahim Kareem led me back to Robert. So, Robert, welcome back. Wonderful. Thanks for having me again. It's always a pleasure, man. You're so deep. I love hanging out with you. <laughs> Thank you. 
<laughs> I, you know, it's fun. You know, when, when people like you and I spend our whole life studying and practicing, there's not too many people you can really have a deep conversation with and get a real good exchange where you walk away saying, you know, with that sense of, ah, aha, uh-huh, oh, I didn't think of it that way, or, oh, wow, I got to look into that. And uh, I certainly get that from you, so thank you. Today, we're going to get into a, a lot of different things. I had quite a long list of uh, questions and dialogue points that we didn't get to in our first podcast. So as you know, this one takes us into all the things that we wanted to cover, but didn't get a chance to cover that I think are really important to talk about. So I titled the show Spirit, Mind, and Healing because we're going to talk a lot about that. So to begin with, in our previous episode, you gave us a very good explanation of the self and how sacred geometry underlies the creation of the self. I'm just curious what kind of response you receive from those um, that listen to that episode as I said, I had a massive response. I don't know if you have a chance to follow that kind of stuff or not. <laughs> I don't always have a chance to follow it very closely, but I did understand from my staff that we had a really excellent response to it, uh, both with people being interested in the courses and just general responses about how much people appreciated the depth of our conversation. So thank you so much for making that possible. Yes, I, I'm a... Uh you have an open door to my podcast, though, anytime you want. And my house, too. And, and my gym, and my sauna, and my cold plunge, and my swimming pool, and my rock garden, and my property, and my greenhouse. If the world falls apart, come stay with me. You won't be able to get rid of me. Thank you. That's cool. We'll, we'll, we'll meditate together and keep the kids entertained and talk to them about how to get through it all. See the light. I'd like it if maybe you could begin today by overviewing what we'll cover and why it's important information to understand. Well, I think we're going to start today with topics related to what I described coming from a French term from 100 years ago of waves of health and illness. And this is basically an energy-based paradigm for not only what kind of a being a human being is, but also for the entire energetic universe that we live in and looking at how we can bring together all of these fragmented pieces that we get today from materialistic science, along with what we know from spiritual science and holistic science to really heal our view of the energetic nature of the human being and the world we live in. So we'll be able to talk about some very large principles that I find don't get discussed very often, as well as practical applications of it with new healing sciences and new healing technologies, which are arising today. But although I'm sure you're very familiar with them and many of your viewers are familiar with this, we have the issue that is simply not being promoted to the general public and they don't even know these types of energetic technologies exist So we'll start with the foundation of what these energetic technologies are and how and why they work in a way that's outside of the normal paradigm. And then we'll continue that forward into looking at deeper aspects of human consciousness, development with the mind and spiritual development, and how all of these different pieces come together into something that people can apply practically in their own lives for their own health and for accelerating their own personal development. Yes, good. Now, 
in my studies of quantum physics, David Bohm, a lot of them, Fred Hoyle, uh, Richard Feynman, all the pioneers of quantum physics, Wolfgang Pauli, um, one of the things that come up came up several times, and I just want to hear your thoughts on, that's not in the outline, but I think it's a good place to start because of what you just said in the introduction. Basically, the consensus is amongst these geniuses like Bohm and others is that everything that we know of as the universe is basically energy and information. Some add frequency to that, but I think frequency is how it's expressed. And then we have Bohm's hollow movement, and we have uh, all the way back to Michael Talbot, the holographic universe. Do you agree that we're pretty much everything we're dealing with from our own bodies to the universe is basically energy and information? Yes, uh, absolutely I do. You mentioned Michael Talbot's book on the holographic universe. That's such a wonderful book for people to start with if they don't have a background in this. So, so well done. And we need to be aware that at the beginning of the quantum physics revolution, and as that moved into nuclear physics in the modern form, you had people like Werner Heisenberg, who in his discussions kept going back to the ancient spiritual traditions. And so if you read Heisenberg's work on foundation of nuclear physics, it keeps going back to things like platonic sacred geometry and about these universal patterns that make up everything. And it really has that connection that you and I keep referencing about the ancient spiritual knowledge and how that connects and gives a larger context to modern scientific discoveries in a way that not only helps us to make sense of it and to apply it, but in a way it heals our understanding of this terrible rift that modern culture has created between so-called scientific knowledge and spiritual knowledge. It brings it all back into a unified form. One of the key things I think we need to take from classical traditions around the world is the idea that we are multidimensional beings living in a multidimensional universe. Because physics, per se, is intentionally restricting itself to the physical plane level. And of necessity, it's included the level below the physical plane, which is the electromagnetic level. But it still leaves the boundary there. So nothing literally metaphysical, nothing above the physical, is allowed to be discussed. But if we look at a classical paradigm, and we'll use the common theosophical modern variant of this today because different ancient traditions had different ways they would conceptualize this, whether it's ancient India or Egypt or what have you. But we have the idea that we have the physical plane and that's the end of a process. Now, the problem is that in modern materialistic thinking, the physical plane is not only the only reality, it's also the, the cause level of all processes. But every ancient tradition knew that wasn't the case. And so what's, what's even left out of this modern seven-level paradigm that we have for things like the Theosophist, when people read an esoteric book today and they see about seven planes of nature or seven spiritual planes, we're still missing a very important piece of it, which is that below the physical is the electromagnetic. And this is something that was made very clear by Rudolf Steiner, that you know if we're going to look at this multidimensional model, we need to understand that what electromagnetic energy is is that vital force that is within the physical and is related to the breakdown of the physical plane. It's literally below the physical. And what's above the physical is 
what would be called chi, ki, prana, ether, indifferent, ancient civilizations, which is the true dynamic life force. It's not the same as electromagnetic energy, but it's the source of it at its greater biological life level. So above the physical, we have the level of what's sometimes called vital energy or life force or biological energy that is really the the core energy that fuels everything. Now, at that level of the multidimensional structure of beings, this is what animates the corpse of a biological body so it can be alive. This was understood in every ancient tradition, and every ancient tradition used the concept of the life force as the primary thing for healing because they understand that it is before the physical body. Now, this also relates us to the sacred geometry that we talked about in our last discussion because all of these energetic fields are constructed at this etheric life force level, to use the Greek term, uh, to have a particular geometric pattern to them. Now, this is the level at which the higher planes, which are based on, we could say in our terminology today, information, then that information gets translated into a sacred geometric template where the form follows the function. The form is created by a forming process, as is discussed in modern biogeometry, to be able to then create the physical form as an expression of that energy or that function. So to really understand what in Steiner's work or in the Rosicrucian work would be described as the etheric formative forces, what actually are the energy fields that when crystallized and condensed and materialized become a physical form, whether it's a mineral or a plant or an animal or a human, there's an energetic field behind it that constructs that form. So at that point, we're getting past the physical, which is not so much the cause, but more a result of these higher plane inputs. We have above it the life energy, which is a sacred geometric template of energy around which the matter will form and condense. It's literally a crystallization process, which is why the study of minerals and crystals can be very helpful for understanding how this works. Then above that level of the vital energy, we have the levels that in the human being become uh, our emotional and mental function. These could have other names in other traditions. So in some traditions, they'll use the term astral to mean our both our mental and emotional functioning. In some other groups, they'll use the astral to mean specifically what becomes the emotional body in the human being and in animals. And then they'll have the mental plane above that. Now we're getting into consciousness. Now we're getting into the ability to process information within a living being that is simply all living beings understood in the classical tradition are an emanation from the Godhead. They're an emanation from the one original source. And so we are like a fractal of the original pattern that is given independent activity. That's the nature of every individual human being. So above the level of the dynamic life force, chi, ki, prana, ether, and then the emotional, and then the mental. Then, in the most common modern Western formulation, you have what's referred to as the causal plane. Now, again, this is the information that is related to the particular developmental alchemical trajectory of a separate being, of a separate system. And so we think of that in the Himalayan terms of karma, of the particular things that have been done or acted on, and then the consequences of those actions 
by creating a particular force in the world. So everything is energetic. And so all of our thoughts, all of our emotions, all of our actions in the world, they create results. And so that's the causal plane where there's a larger plan for how all this is going to come together at very much an information level. Then above that, we have what's called the spiritual level. That's the point at which the original unity, the one of the Godhead, coming from the highest level, the divine. Divine, the highest level, is basically the one. It's a complete unified field. And that unified field is not just a unified field of energy. It's a unified field of consciousness. And so whatever human being yearns for is to return to that primordial state that we all remember internally to a certain level of what it is to be unified and one with everything. And this also has led to a great growth recently of a resurgence of the psychotropic movement for that unity consciousness, that unity state. It's behind all of our romantic yearnings to find the other and to reconnect. So at the divine plane level, at the highest, is where everything comes from and it's still unified. The first step downward is the spiritual plane in which the different pieces of the information become manifest in specific separate systems. And when those systems become more aware, they become what we think of as spiritual beings, beings of a much higher state of evolution than human beings are at. They went through their, what we might think of as a human self-aware stage, many cycles previously, what the old traditions might refer to as the great ancient ones. And they had different names for these beings that we have today in the Western system with the angelic hierarchies, the angels, archangels, archai, all the way up to the cherubim, seraphim. And so we have this then movement of all these higher levels as we have what we could refer to as the information level for the highest levels related to the divine. Uh, But really there we're talking about a, a source level. We're talking about the core, whatever there is that makes up existence. That's where it comes from. At the divine level, everything is one. Then it splits into duality, polarity, and multiplicity at the spiritual plane level. Then it forms a plan for all these other beings that are going to get manifest out of the thought forms in the mind of God at the causal level. And then you have the beings taking on the ability to process information, to access the universal information field through their mental and emotional function. Then you have at the level of the dynamic life force, our ability to take in the dynamic energy, the universal chi field, as they say in China, to animate uh, a flesh and blood body to become the vehicle, as they would say in the Himalayas, for the spirit to operate through and to be able to interact with the universal energy field, the universal chi field. And then all this crystallizes from the sacred geometric pattern from the information coming into the life energy fields and then to crystallize into the physical body. And then as the life energy is used up and decays, in the animation of physical forms, it then decays below the speed of light, as was discussed by Nikola Tesla. And then it becomes what he referred to as retarded Hertzian waves. And so what we deal with today in electromagnetic theory, Nikola Tesla himself, who created our AC energy conduction system we use everywhere today, he said, well, these are the lower level waves. These are the retarded Hertzian waves that are below the speed of light. It says there's something at a higher level. 
which we often refer to in a fairly generic term coming from electromagnetic and physics theory of scalar waves, although people interpret this in different ways. But that's uh, what I would say as a, a framework here for understanding how this quantum revolution is related, like going back to Heisenberg, to these ancient spiritual concepts. And then we have the aspect of this that's going to be fundamental for the discussion coming up, which is that the paradigm that we had for physics in the 1800s was completely overthrown starting in the year 1900 with the discovery of black body radiation. And so this created the foundation of what we think of as a quantum revolution in physics. And what it showed is that the 1800s idea that we were somehow going to find a universal building block of physical matter, like a little solid thing in a completely physical paradigm and physical universe that everything would be built on that physical thing because they wanted to prove everything was physical and get rid of all metaphysics. Instead, that whole project disintegrated starting in the <laughs> early 1900s. And they found that mm-hmm. actually it's not based on physical structures at all. Physical structures come from the collapse of waves and the waves are in a sense immaterial. I can't like hold a wave and hand it to you. It's not a physical object, but when the wave collapses, it then creates a particle. And these particles are so far apart from each other that if we were to change the scale from the microscopic to the scale that we live in in our physical existence, there would be football fields of space between these tiny particles. So all of creation is mostly empty space, but the Mm -hmm. empty space holds the unified field. That empty space holds the concept of the energy, the endless energy inside the vacuum itself. And so we have the idea of quantum energy and the quantum vacuum, that empty space, even though there's no particle there, is actually full of energy. And this energy is expressed in waves that then collapse to particles. So you think that after we had this incredible revolution in physics that gave rise to all of these incredible things in the last hundred years, including nuclear weapons, etc., And as we discussed in our previous conversation, I have a background where I was a U.S. Marine Corps instructor in nuclear, biological, chemical warfare defense. You'd think that after this incredible revolution in physics, that that would trickle down to practical things, like what people are taught about the nature of reality, and also for our healing systems. But none of that happened. So No, it just became cell phones. (laughs) That's right. So we have this ridiculous situation where because of interest of the pharmaceutical industry and other type of vested interests that control money supply and control basically legislation, we still are dealing with a medicine that is way over 100 years old that has not partaken in the quantum revolution in physics whatsoever because of the profit motive and patenting a particular chemical and selling that to you that you have to take for the rest of your life, which is a very effective profit engine, but not very effective as uh, integrating the steps forward we have today and understanding the energetic basis of the world and the energy and information that stands behind the physical body. A couple of things. For those that aren't familiar with cymatics, I think cymatics, just go on uh, any search engine and type in cymatics and then go to the videos section. You will get a very, very good description of how the invisible manifests the visible you can see how waves of sound frequency will structure matter into geometrical forms. And it's really quite beautiful to 
see. And John Stuart Reed sells a simograph, which I bought for my kids and, and for Christmas and, and for me, but you can sing into it and talk into it. And, it, and then it, you know, it has a vibrating plate, so it converts that to vibration. You can actually see your own voice, so you can chant OM or, you know, anything you want to say or chant into it, and it'll give you the, the immediately takes the little powder that you put on there and turns it into the geometrical shapes that are coming out of you, which really I like because for children and, and for adults, it shows you, which the ancients have told us forever, the power of your voice to create reality and what's behind your voice, your thoughts, which are even more subtle and your thoughts and your emotions. So you can use a simograph like that to realize that you're actually contributing to the creation of existence if with every thought and word. Two other things, my studies on scalar energy, it, it seems to me to be very much in line with zero point energy and it's non-local where does where do you feel the scalar energy fits within the model you've just described from the electromagnetic below to the physical, the etheric, the uh, lower mental, higher mental, astral, causal, or however you want to break that down? So I think that the way it ended up being used, and that leads to some of the confusion we have today, because really discussing the different ways people are using the term scalar gets very, very involved. But the foundation of it, is that scalar is simply a scientific term indicating something has a magnitude of energy, but we have no indicated trajectory or vector line of movement of that in the physical plane. That's all scalar really means. So if you give something like a weight of something, like this thing weighs X number of pounds, that's a scalar type of measurement because it has magnitude, but it doesn't tell you is, is it going anywhere? It's not like I'm saying this car is going 60 miles per hour at a northeast trajectory. It has both a, a magnitude, in this case speed, and also a place that it's going. So with scalar measurements, whether it's, you know, weight or a length or something like that, it's just giving you one particular aspect of it. It's giving you the magnitude of the energy or energy field, but it's not telling you that it's having a particular activity with motion on the physical plane. Once you add in the directionality, now it goes from being a scalar measurement to a vector measurement. This is this basic, you know, science 101 type stuff. But we need to understand where that term scalar comes from. Because lots of times people, when they talk about scalar, they don't really understand the very simple scientific basis of it. But scalar became the catch-all for discussing energies that were not what uh, Nikola Tesla referred to as the retarded Hertzian waves that we examine today in electromagnetic theory. And so there's the understanding that, number one, the quantum vacuum, the empty space, holds tremendous energetic charge that many people had to do experiments to be able to tap into that type of field. But there's also the aspects of dealing not with the decayed electromagnetic energy that's below the level of the physical, it's literally the decay process for the biological life force above the physical. But there is the actual chi, ki, prana, ether, biological life force that is theoretically faster than the speed of light and works on some different principles than electromagnetic energy does. And so when they would find these anomalous things energetically, 
One way to refer to it would be as scalar waves, something that's more related to, at this vitality level, this core energy that gets constructed geometrically to become the literal energy template that, when crystallized, will become whatever physical form. Then when people begin to work the scalar concept, they want to individualize it a little bit more. They'll give it some other name based on what functions they're focusing on. So, for example, the Russian work with torsion waves. With torsion waves, they discovered that there are certain ways that energy moves that doesn't quite line up with what we think about electromagnetic energy that has to do with these types of spiral movements, which, if you really understand them, are vortex movements, how energy is a vortex. And on top of that, they found that these energies affect the movement of time and that you can create distortions in time based on torsion waves. And so this is a, just an example of how you get the scalar concept and you tweak it a little bit, you give it a new name, and then zero-point energy. Now, zero-point energy is often connected to this whole idea, and I'm giving a very simplistic gloss here. If you're dealing with people that are very deep in the subject, they say, well, that's very simple. Well, my purpose right now is... Well, that's, that's good for the podcast. That's right. I'm trying to keep it fairly simple. So the zero-point energy is something that is coming from a zero-point. And so this relates to the idea of the quantum vacuum, but it also relates to something about beyond the three dimensions of physical space, there's something else. If we can go into that zero point, then there's all types of infinite energy and potentially a gateway to higher dimensional energetic fields. And so we have aspects of modern physics today that deal with the concept of things like 10 dimensions not just a three-dimensional space, but to make some of the equations in physics work out. They have to have like 10 different dimensions. And then when somebody yeah, says... Yeah, like string theory. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then when somebody says, oh, well, this shows that we live in a multidimensional universe and metaphysical things, they say, no, 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 no. The mathematics requires 10 dimensions, but don't ever think that means there's anything beyond the physical plane of the three dimensions. And you say that doesn't even make sense, but it's so deeply indoctrinated in education today when I got my, my PhD in international studies, a very wise professor said to me, uh, do you know what uh, the PhD really is? And I knew he had something good, so I just said, no, what is it? And he said, the PhD is your reward for accepting the myths of your profession. <laughs> exactly. And I thought, oh, that's okay. You know what's going on here. This is, this is good. So <laughs> one other thing with zero-point energy I want to bring in is that if you think about a zero point, you're really talking about a center, the center of something, because in geometric theory, in a three-dimensional world, the zero dimension is a point, but it's an immaterial point. It's like it has no magnet, it has no movement out in space. It's an immaterial uh, point that is has no length, breadth, depth, and then you have the first movement to create the, the length. And then the second dimension to create the the breadth. And then the third movement to create the depth. Now you've got the three axes of physical space. That's what's used in electromagnetic theory to identify vector lines of the movement of energy. And so this whole idea of zero-point energy and this infinite energy that surrounds us everywhere that Nikola Tesla was also very interested in is something that I think connects very deeply to biogeometry developed by our friend Dr. Ibrahim Karim from Cairo, Egypt, because 
when I train people in biogeometry, one of the first things to communicate to them is that this is all about connecting to the universal harmonizing energy that is not polarized. It's from the one. It's from the original unified field state where everything is one, which means there's not too much yin, there's not too much yang. It's all in the center. Everything is harmonized and balanced. It's the equilibrium point for all types of biological systems. And so it's been an absolutely paradigm-shifting development, what Dr. Kareem has developed in biogeometry, with the idea that we can literally tap into the energy in the center of anything and use that to harmonize and balance living energy fields. That's the core of biogeometry. And then we have different ways we can train people to be able to test this and apply it and things of this kind. So this then starts to bring us, if we understand the phenomena, and that's what I'm trying to do now is explain like the core of these terms and the phenomena, which otherwise can be very confusing for people, that it's actually connected to things like the practical applications of biogeometry. And in the ancient world, they would have understood what we're doing today in biogeometry for the teachings inside the ancient Egyptian temple system. And so now back to Heisenberg. We're rediscovering in a new frame of reference some of the information and techniques used in the ancient spiritual traditions. Hello, everybody. After countless requests, I'm super excited to announce our How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy online training program. This program is designed specifically for anyone that wants to learn how to eat, move, and be healthy and is perfect as a learning opportunity for the whole family. In my 40 years as a holistic health practitioner, I've always been saddened and amazed that there is no real basic health training in our education systems that teaches people how to care for their body and enjoy the freedom that only health can give. Anyone will be able to follow my How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy online and learn many ways to apply what I share in my book. And to give you even more support, this offer includes a free How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy ebook to help reinforce your learning process. In fact, if you've not yet read my book, How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy, you can take this special six-week How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy online training program and get instant coaching on how you, your family, and friends can look and feel your best. You will not only learn from me personally, but you will learn from Angie Check, head of Holistic Lifestyle Coaching at the Czech Institute, Matthew Walden, head of education for the Czech Institute, and Joe Rushton, who is a Czech Institute instructor and certified chef. All our presenters in this course are highly skilled and add tremendous value to this excellent training program. How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy Online will be available as of January the 9th. This course is $495, but as a Living 4D listener, you get a special launch discount of 40% off and can make three payments of $99. Again, you get a free How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy ebook to help you look and feel your best and support your learning with the online training program. This offer is only available until January the 31st. Take advantage of this incredible offer and get started creating the new you. Go to C-H-E-K dot, so C-H-E-K, the word C-H-E-K lowercase dot group forward slash capital L number four D dash E-M-B-H. Once again, that's C-H-E-K dot group forward slash L number four D dash E-M-B-H. 
I have received countless letters from people around the world about how they healed many things that ailed them and how they look and feel better and have much more energy. And many mothers told me that how to eat, move and be healthy has been a miracle for their children too. Enjoy this opportunity to make your 2024 a year of health, vitality, and enjoy a new level of freedom that you have never had before. I did a podcast with a man named Tom Palladino, who uses the scalar energy field to broadcast a variety of different types of healing frequencies. And before I did the podcast with him, I wanted to make sure I tested it because, you know, a lot of that kind of stuff can be gimmicky. But I definitely noticed a difference. And um, he had he has them uh, different programs for allergies and a variety of different things. I think he just gave me and, and Angie and the kids like his core package. But when he turned it on, I felt the best way I could describe it is like an expansion of my core energy. It felt like I'd been doing Tai Chi for a half an hour, but it just stayed. And it was just like, I don't know, kind of an invigorating, not by any means uh, buzzy or agitating. A sense of, of energetic support would be the best way I could describe it because there's not really words to kind of categorize some of these things. So I just bring that up because we talk about scalar energy and he actually produced his own scalar wave generator that broadcasts non-locally so he can treat people all over the world from his location. So I thought that was an interesting concept. What Before we move on, I may have asked this before, but this is one of those things that I think doesn't get explained very well. And we've used this word many times now. There's a lot of different uses of the word dimension you've got length width depth time that's the four-dimensional world we live in but if you study the work of chris hardy and the infinite spiral staircase theory which is excellent she talks about the sig dimension which which is the dimension of meaning or consciousness then you've got all the dimensions of string theory you've got Raw and the law of one. They talk about first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh type dimensions. Could you please put some structure to the concept of what a dimension is? Because there's so many different ways. Like I could go in my library right now and pull out ten books all using the word dimension <laughs> that all have different. They all they all have different models oh, yeah. from Barbara Hanclow to Cynthia Dale to the list is long. How do we understand the when, when the word dimension is used in this context, particularly when we're getting past length, width, depth, and time, what exactly is a dimension from your perspective? So again, just from my perspective, a dimension is a particular aspect that we can pull out of the larger totality of any system. And so people often use the term dimensions to mean different slices of a system, different facets of it that can be understood and explored so we can begin to understand the whole system. There's a great statement by the great Rosicrucian, Rosicrucian teacher, Rudolf Steiner, where he says to understand anything in its totality, you have to essentially, in consciousness, walk a circle around it and see it from 12 different perspectives. And that's why we have in our System understood by the ancients, we have 12 signs of the zodiac around the earth. They are 12 
cosmic powers. They are 12 cosmic perspectives. They are 12 cosmic trajectories that alchemical systems can go on. And then you see that reflected in things like 12 disciples around the Christ, these types of things. So dimensions are aspects of the system. So some one person uses it, and they're using it to describe the different aspects of the physical system, that the physical plane is defined by three 90-degree angles. So those are three different dimensions, uh, one to another. And then, you know, Einstein adds in the fourth dimension being time. Then they change that in modern quantum physics where you have like string theory with at least 10 dimensions and all of these kinds of things. And then people will often talk about dimensions in terms, as we mentioned a moment ago, just in terms of aspects of a system. I tend to use the term dimension as being somewhat synonymous with the concept of planes. So you have the concept of spiritual or planes of nature in classical systems, which are the different parts of the system. And so just as I have a physical body, and that's all that's understood and accepted by modern materialistic science and medicine, you then have the energetic body, and then what gets reflected in the emotional, mental structures, the causal, the spiritual, and then back to one with the divine. I think of that as being dimensionality, because when I I work with people on becoming aware of these dimensions inside of yourself, these planes inside of yourself, that's what creates what's called the subtle bodies or the koshas, the sheaths or the spirit that they describe in the Himalayas. And so we can actually experience them inside of ourselves. And there is like a change from one dimension to another as you go through it. When you experience yourself completely in the physical body, it's different than experiencing yourself in the energetic body. When you move to experiencing yourself in the energetic body, you're experiencing things through vibration, tingling, pressure hot and cold, things like this. Then as you move up to the next level beyond that, the astral level, moving toward the emotional and mental function, we perceive things in terms of light and color. And then there's other experiences we have on other other levels. So that's the way that, that I think of dimensions. In my own use of it, I tend to think in terms of it as being somewhat synonymous with the planes model, because these are different levels of function and they relate incredibly deeply to what every human being experiences, their lived reality, and their ability to to develop themselves to a higher level. So that's anyway, that's my take on it. Yeah, it's important because, I, you know, it can be confusing for people. Uh, and I've looked up definitions of de- definitions in a lot of different books, and some of you, even some of the definitions don't line up with each yeah, other. Yeah. But one of the descriptions I studied uh, not too long ago on a dimension, I'm just paraphrasing it. Basically, it was saying a higher dimension is something that basically allows a lower dimension to exist. But at the lower dimension, you're not aware of the higher dimension. And I thought, well, that, that that's a good description. Mm. Um, you know, there's a lot of things above us that we aren't aware of that allow us to exist that we're not aware of. Yes. Uh, it may not apply to every way that people are using the term dimension, but it certainly is a useful and valid perspective in and of itself. And in many cases, it would apply. Yes. It just helps you perceive, you know, they, they gave an example for, uh, I can't remember what the example was, but it's something like if you lived in two dimensions, there could be a third dimension, but you wouldn't even know it was exactly, there. Exactly. The, the flat land idea. If you're in Flatland, all you see is the 2D world. You don't know there's a third dimension 
if a sphere came down into your 2D world, you would see a point that's growing out in an arc. And if you walked around it, you'd see a circle. But you wouldn't see the, the thing that's actually creating it as a three-dimensional object moving through that plane. This is the classic flatland concept, yes. Yeah, the person that wrote what I was reading said, the problem is if you were a two-dimensional being, you wouldn't even know to look up. <laughs> exactly, because there would be no up. You don't, you don't know up yeah. exists. And the exact same thing is, I, I love the flatland concept because it so pertains to what's happened in modern science and medicine that they don't even yes. know to look up, that they have such a restricted view of only the physical plane and brought in electromagnetics because they had to, but they don't accept anything above it, even though we're constantly drawn to it, even in very practical things, like, you know, if somebody gets cancer. Cancer can come from many different causes, but there's certainly a tremendous amount of evidence coming from things like the new German medicine by Hamer showing that the emotional state of a person can be very linked to the development of cancer. Mm-hmm. And that there's even what's called the cancer personality. Now that's what we, we thought of in modern medicine as a higher dimension that they would never take into account. They don't, they never ask you about your emotional state. They'll take a bunch of physical tests and test different types of glands and secretions, but you know, there's always that aspect of the higher levels we don't even know to look at. And the classic spiritual traditions really give us that gift of showing us these multiple levels to be able to be conscious of and see how they affect every other level. Well, I think you're being a little bit polite toward the medical community <laughs> yeah. because you're saying they don't even know to look up, but I'll prove to you that you're being polite. They know to look up because they know who to censor and who to wipe out and who to destroy and whose books to burn. So they already know that they just don't want you to look up. And that's the same of any fundamentalist cult, right? Is that they, yes. have, they know what books to burn to, to like yes. try to protect their, their castles in the sky that they've created and they, they rely on for their authority and their income. Yeah. We can talk to, we, we I'm sure. Mr. Reich knows all about this. Absolutely. <laughs> Wilhelm Reich's work is so significant, and like so many other people, he got squashed for trying to move things forward. Trying to help people. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's illegal to help people. When we were talking, I think you talked about the LD50 in the last podcast, but I wanted to see if you could just maybe retouch on that, but what what can we learn from that? Because that I think that's a very important concept. Uh, maybe you can talk about that, just a recap of that, why that's important and, and what can we take away from that that's relevant to, to the issues of the world today, be it drugs, whatever, however you want to help us land it in reality today. The LD50 concept is just a basic concept of modern toxicology, which is LD50 means lethal dose 50. It is the dose of any toxin that will kill 50% of those it is given to. And so that's like the this median measurement of how much of this toxin will kill half the, in this case, people that it's applied to. Now, the thing that always struck me when I we discussed this in toxicology in my work as a Marine Corps nuclear biological chemical warfare defense instructor was that, you know, if things were purely materialistic, that LD50 measurement would basically 
be based only on something completely physical. It'd only be based on something like, let's say, body weight. Because we can understand that the amount of toxin that could kill a person that is 100 pounds might be smaller than the amount of toxin it would take to kill a person who's 350 pounds. That'd be a very simple mechanical, physical concept. But it doesn't work that way. In reality, you can have a 100-pound person survive an LD50 dose that kills a 350-pound person. You know, it's not simply a matter of the physical aspect of it at all. And so this was something that I thought about for years. Like, why is it that some people survive and some people don't? And then you could go into things like, well, they had certain compromised organ systems. And so they were more susceptible to this. They didn't have the level of the immune system functioning. Yeah, okay. But I think it really comes to what we're going to get into in a minute, which is it has to do with the energetic construction of the biological energy field of the person. That's the core life energy. And again, classical traditions like Chinese medicine, they're all about this. So you have a certain level of qi, a certain level of the the kinds of dynamic life force that you burn all the time like gasoline. And then you have a certain level of jing. And jing is their term for the core densified life force in the body of which we have a particular more limited aspect. So whereas the the chi concept is somewhat like the gasoline, you have to keep taking in, taking in the energy that's in the air, the energy that's in the liquids you drink, the energy that's in the foods you eat. That's what it has to be replenished. And the quality of your lifestyle, the quality of your food, etc., contributes to that. But the jing is like what you were born with, with the core densified life force. And some people are born with more than others based on the circumstances of their birth and their mother and things like that. But it kept being very clear to me that there are aspects of this that relate to these higher planes, higher dimensions, of the way a person's mind works, their level of mind power, their level of emotional energy, their level of dynamic life force at the vitality level. These are things that play in all the time to practical health outcomes and are considered to be completely non-analyzable or even to be even considered in modern Western medicine. They have no concept for these things whatsoever. It has to be just purely mechanical measurements. And, of course, this concept of purely mechanical measurement starts to go out the window, not only when you're dealing with LD50 and why did this person survive and this person didn't, but it also comes into play as we deal with things like biogeometry. So that Dr. Kareem was, when we, we talked before about some of the incredible research projects Dr. Kareem has done successfully, so if he could grow sweet potatoes in salt water coming from the Red Sea without taking any salt out of the water, if you just give that salt water straight to a growing sweet potato, it will die. But if you give it the salt water with all the salt still present, but you change the vibrational characteristics of the water in the way that we teach in biogeometry, you can give that salt water with all the salt still in it to the sweet potato, and it'll grow better than if it was given fresh water. And it's things like this, and you can find all kinds of examples of this in, in what is thrown out by modern science and medicine because it doesn't fit our paradigm, so we're not even going to look at it. But it shows that the vibrational, the energetic characteristics 
are primary. The chemical characteristics are secondary. It doesn't mean the chemicals don't have an effect. They will certainly do something. Well, the energetic vibration is with the chemical too. That's right. But it also supersedes, like in this case with the salt water, it supersedes the impact of the salt because according to modern science, the only thing that matters in that case is how saline the water is and how much salt is present. They would never say we could give the salt still in the water and nourish a plant by changing vibrational characteristics of the water. That doesn't exist in their paradigm. But in fact, Dr. Kareem proved that that was the case. Yes, that's beautiful, too. Now, when it comes to what you were talking about, you were using the word Jing. Rudy Vespor, who I've done several podcasts with, a very skilled homeopathic and very also schooled in Steiner's work. Are you familiar with Rudy at all? I am not. Oh, I, I got to connect you with him. He's he's a deep guy. If you listen to any of my podcasts with him, they're fantastic. But he talks about the difference between our the energy we re- use for routine and ritual, you know, our functional energy, the way we carry things out, do things, eat, breathe, exercise. And and he separates that type of life force from generational uh, energy, which is the regenerative energy, our healing capacity. And he says that not all of us are born with the same level of generative energy and that some people can't recover from diseases because their generative energy is too low. But the reason I'm bringing that up is because spiritual practices, especially things like Tai Chi, Qigong, there's a number of them, as you know, you can actually say, say you're born from fairly weak stock. You know, you don't have a good constitution. Mom and dad were not really the fittest or the most vital. Maybe there's a history of a lot of disease in the family, but people like that that engage a legitimate practice of Tai Chi, Qigong, medical Qigong, Meditation can help, but it's not really a generative practice like Qigong or Tai Chi mm-hmm. is. Exactly. But they they can, I know, you know, I haven't missed a day of work in over 42 years due to illness at all. I get something, I'll get a runny nose, I'll fight it off. But it doesn't knock me down. I'm just like, okay, something's trying to get me and I just do the right things. And, it's, and, I, and, and I spent my, you know, my whole life doing these practices. So I know for sure. And, I, and I've given them to thousands of people. I've taught thousands and thousands of people this. So I've watched people going from being sick all the time to being healthy, vital people. The point I'm bringing up is I think it's important for people to realize that no matter what hand of cards you were dealt, you can improve the hand by getting involved in the right practices. And all these practices, even Tai Chi, it's not just a physical practice. It's a, a practice of learning to use your mind, you know, and, and not, shall we say, waste your core energy on creating thoughts that ultimately and feelings that are degenerative in, in and of themselves. Like we were talking about in the beginning. That's why I said you get a cymoscope, you can see what your voice creates. So it's just a, a comment to let people know you can build these core life force energies and create more stability for yourself. Uh, this this concept also comes up in things like classical traditions like Chinese medicine, because they'll discuss the prenatal energies, which is very much connected to the concept of the Jing in Chinese medicine and to the generative energies that your friend was discussing. That would be the prenatal energies. And then you have the postnatal energies. After you're born, what you do to generate the energy. So this is where we're dealing with them and what you were discussing about how we use our mind, how we use our emotions. 
these kinds of things. These are part of a set of planes that interpenetrate. And so we can reduce the amount of vital life force in the body through the thoughts that we think, or we can increase the vital life force through the thoughts that we think. Same thing with our emotional function, etc. And what we tap into spiritually at the higher levels above that, that can also vitalize us energetically or it can weaken us energetically depending on what we are connected to. So all these levels come together to be able to whatever hand you're dealt, like you're saying, whatever hand you're dealt with the the background level of vitality that you have, it can be taken further through the correct use of the mind, the emotions, the life force energy itself. And another thing you touched on is that certain types of meditative work don't actually generate more of this life force in the body. Now, there's something very interesting in the work of Rudolf Steiner, where he he goes as far as to say that if you look at these major structures in the body, so we have the head, which is the foundation of our normal consciousness. Then we have the lungs and the heart, and we have the energy in the chest. This upper structure with our consciousness will be called the upper elixir field in Chinese medicine and Taoism. Taoism, yeah. Uh, then you've got the middle elixir field with the energies in the center, with the heart and the lungs, and feeling function is a part of it, emotions, love. And then for the lower dantian and the lower abdomen, this is directly connected to the vital life force itself. So Steiner brings out that thinking is actually a death process. So if you look at the, the greatest scientists in the world, these guys don't look like Dwayne the Rock Johnson, right? They're not like big muscle men. They're not big vital guys. And some of them have fought themselves to death. Yeah, absolutely. Because deep thinking burns up life energy in the body. And you're literally burning it all the time when you're thinking deeply. And so if we have a thing that we just want to be physically burly and impressive, then the people that pursue that in their life often don't pursue quantum physics or some other really deep type of thing because they're two different polarities. So we have the thinking, which allows us to expand in all kinds of ways, but it will burn up the vital life force in the body. And then you have the development of the vital life force with the practices we do with the lower abdomen. So this includes all types of generative energies, including with the Qi Kong and Tai Chi, also the sexual forces in the body, all these types of things. These actually generate the life force. This burns up the life force. So there are two opposite polarities that then get harmonized through the effects of the middle dantian, the heart. You're talking about, if I'm correct in what what I think you're talking about from Steiner's perspective, you're talking about his concept of rhythm man, metabolic man, and, and limb man, aren't you? Yes. So he talks about the nerve sense system as being up here. And then you have the rhythmic system with the heart and the lungs here. That's all based on the rhythm of the pulsation. And then you've got the the life force energy, the will forces, the metabolic forces, the metabolic limb forces that allow you to move your limbs and move in space coming from the lower abdomen. And so that becomes the divisions for anthroposophic medicine coming out of Central Europe. So we can actually understand this also as a physiological healing system, which is what the anthroposophical medicine is. Yeah, I have all this Steiner's concepts built into Czech life process alchemy. Sometime I've got to show you the system of alchemy I developed. I think you'd find it fascinating because uh, you'd actually be able to see right into it. 
I just haven't tried to burden you with more to look at because I know how busy you are. But but someday I'll, I'll I'll show it to you. I think I'll just email you the master diagram because as soon as you see it, it'll be obvious to you. But it's, it's very powerful and very effective. I've helped a lot of people heal. Now, we've touched on some of the issues of the next point of discussion here. Now, there's the, the growing energy and vibrational medicine aspects of healing, which has also been heavily suppressed, as you know, and Luc Montagnier's research and, and even on um, brain farting on the guy that was one of the original scientific researchers on uh, homeopathy, the French scientists that they tor- tortured to death. Benavista or something? Benavista, like yeah, Jacques Benavista. Oh, yeah. You know, his research was showing that you don't need to buy drugs, so they trashed him, which was sad because he was a highly celebrated scientist, and they just ruined his career as quickly as they could, except for guys like me and you that are smart enough to see through it. Do you want to talk about any of these other aspects? Because you've yes. got longitudinal waves, transverse <laughs> waves. Yeah. Uh, Share what you think is important for us to expand our understanding of what would be maybe in the realm of quantum physics or subtle energy medicine, but that we should all be aware of. And particularly if you can orient yourself towards how and why that's important today, because I think as a side note, a lot of these technologies are being used against us. They're being used for negative purposes, such as information fields, broadcasting information fields to control people's minds, uh, which I won't sidetrack conversation, but I've looked into that and I've used remote viewing and seen some very interesting things that were quite disturbing as to what technologies are being used against us. So anything that you want to share in this regard because it goes right to homeopathics and all sorts of important things. So what would you like us to know? Let's look at some data points to, to heal our paradigm of, of <laughs> how all this works together. Let's do that. <laughs> so uh, just touching very briefly on some very important things. Uh, the work of Alexander Gurevich in Russia, where a 100 years ago he was able to demonstrate that there are energetic emanations from living beings that affect other living beings. So we'd work with something like a growing onion. And we know just like, uh, this is like folk knowledge that's been developed for thousands of years, that they say, oh, if you have like a bunch of garlic and one garlic is starting to sprout, the other garlics will start to sprout too. Now, Gerbich was able to demonstrate that there actually is a type of ultraviolet radiation that comes from living beings that affects the life functions of other living beings. So, for example, when you have a group of women living together and they all start to synchronize their periods, how does that happen? There's no physical exchange between them that's making it happen. It's not on a physical level. Obviously, something's happening on an energetic level. And so what Gervich was able to identify are these weak ultraviolet emanations and that's just with what he could pick up with his equipment. There was no doubt other energetic emanations he did not have equipment to detect. But he could detect the weak ultraviolet emanation that led to, like, the growing stems of the onion would have biological effects on other onions and how they grew based on the radiation coming out of it. And so he talked about this mitogenetic radiation, which is a type of biological life force, where one biological life force affects another. And his work is absolutely fascinating. It sort of changed biology completely. But, of course, they tried to ignore all that. 
And so what then happened is around the, I think it was in the 1970s, there was the work of Kaznachev in Russia. And our access to this is through a book by uh, Lieutenant Colonel Tom Bearden that is called The Excalibur Briefing. I highly recommend it to everybody. Very interesting book. And he talks about, and he gives the reference that this comes from, of this Russian research with Kaznachev, where he took this further. And so we know that quartz, quartz crystal, will allow a full spectrum of energy to pass through it, including the ultraviolet. But we know that ordinary glass will cut off parts of the spectrum, particularly in the ultraviolet range. So what he did is he had a particular toxin in a Petri dish that he separated with no possibility of any air movement or cross-contamination, completely sealed off from one another. And he had a Petri dish with a, a particular biological toxin in it, and then another Petri dish that didn't have the biological toxin. And he would separate them through glass, separate it through the glass where you couldn't get the movement of that ultraviolet radiation. The second Petri dish that didn't have the pathogen didn't have any issues. But when he separated them with a quartz window, which does allow that electromagnetic radiation within the ultraviolet range and no doubt things beyond the electromagnetic as well to pass through the quartz window, then you actually have the development of the exact same disease that was in the first Petri dish appear in the second Petri dish, meaning it was broadcast energetically. Now, this is the kind of stuff that people get in trouble for just talking about, but this is the way things work. So and we know from, and again, this was Russian research. They're following up on garbage and they're saying, well, if we can send things that affect the growth and reproduction of living forms, things that may be related to health, can we send things that are related to illness and death through this type of energetic transmission? And the answer, for good or for ill, was yes, we can. And so that was already known in research in the 1970s. Again, go to Tom Bearden's book, Excalibur Briefing, for more description and to find the original citations. So with that being the case, that we actually can have an energetic projection of energy fields that create health or illness. That gave rise to my term of waves of health and illness, which was also taken up uh, in a separate body of work with the French researchers in radiesthesia, the ability to detect subtle radiations and to apply these subtle radiations that occurred in France in the early 1900s. And is actually the foundation of what is modern biogeometry out of Egypt with Dr. Ibrahim Karim. So uh, I created an online class called the Universal Vibrational Spectrum that goes into the French research that identified all of these different qualities of energy that can are and are projected energetically, invisibly all the time from living beings. And in the online course, Universal Vibrational Spectrum, I created on this I think it's the first time there's been any real summary. I couldn't find it in the French works, although they did all the foundation work. I actually summarized what's the effects of all these different qualitative bands of energy that biological beings are broadcasting all the time at the physical, energetic, emotional, mental, and spiritual levels. It's just a beginning in this field, but it actually gives you something to work with there. Because the French were able to detect and differentiate these subtle energies coming from biological beings. Then Dr. Karim, building on the French work, 
because the French always said the people that knew the most about what they called shape-caused waves, because these types of energy waves can be broadcast from shapes, sounds, colors, motions, angles, proportions, number series, all kinds of things. They said that the people that knew the most about this in the ancient world were the ancient Egyptians. And so Dr. Karim, a modern Egyptian, came in as an absolute genius and took the French work, connected it to the old French knowledge, and created biogeometry. And it's an incredible system. And with it, we can actually detect all those different invisible qualities of energies. And we need to understand that this, though, allows us to test the specific energy components that we have the general idea in modern metaphysics that every thought that you have has an energy quality, that you broadcast out of your energy field. Every emotion you have has an energy quality that you broadcast out of your energy field all the time. We are all resonating antennas of the quality that we are generating in our life force field that we are having our feelings, that we have in our emotions, that we have in our thoughts. We're projecting it outward all the time. And that's why people feel comfortable with one person and not comfortable with another person. What this person is projecting out dynamically is something you may or may not want to be around. So looking at these foundations and then moving forward, we can begin to see, okay, well, if this is the case, that we have these invisible vibrations that may be beyond what Tesla in a derogatory way referred to as our modern electromagnetic theory with retarded Hertzian waves. And there's something beyond that, these scalar waves, which we could also think of some degree as biological energy waves that cannot be easily picked up or detected or analyzed by standard electromagnetic equipment. It's simply too subtle that we can see that there's other things that occur in modern science that have not been clearly defined as their significance. And the average person doesn't even know that they exist. So, for example, uh, quantum physics says that particles come from the collapse of the wave function. And so, okay, so things are prim primarily waves and have an energetic basis and not a solid thing, but they can collapse into a solid thing based on the geometric structure of the field that as a programs it for the, the thing it's going to do, that we say, okay, well, what are the types of waves that are understood in modern science? So two of the most fundamental types of waves are going to be the longitudinal wave and the transverse wave. Now, this can be made to be very full of jargon and very hard to follow, so I'm going to make it super simple. So what we have as a standard electromagnetic wave, the way we think of it today, is, is called a transverse wave. It's transverse because with the propagation of the electrical component, you have then a displacement of energy at 90 degrees to the direction of travel. And that's the classic thing that we know today about the 90-degree rule, where people in electrical engineering will hold their hands like this, give up and down, uh, front and back, side to side. That creates the three axes, the three dimensions of physical space. And so with the transverse waves, we know that when electrical current is moving through a wire, at a 90-degree angle to it, we'll get the magnetic component. That's a absolutely standard for electromagnetic theory. If I can just interject uh, something simple for people that they may not be aware of that points this out, all plants and trees follow the electric field toward the sun, but the magnetic field wraps itself around the earth. So there you see that. 90 degree angle trees are going up straight out of the ground right toward the sun 
the sun literally has a levitational type energy, but the electric field that's going vertically is 90 degree angle to the magnetic field. Hi, everybody. I know that you're all aware of the importance of vitamin C. There is a mountain of research on it, but not all C is created equally. I love Paleo Valley's Essential C Complex because it is the real deal, bioavailable, and I wanted you to hear right from Autumn Smith, founder of Paleo Valley, why their Essential C Complex is so unique and something you definitely want for your family and your children. Autumn, tell us about your Essential C Complex. Well, I was shocked to learn as a holistic nutritionist that 90%, over 90% of the vitamin C on the market is derived from genetically modified corn and then is processed with highly volatile acids. And so I knew I had to find a better way to get all of the powerful benefits of vitamin C. So what I did was I dove into the research and I found the three most vitamin C rich superfoods on the planet. That's unripe acerola cherry and camu camu and omla berry. And then I just packed them into capsules. And the benefits are amazing because you're not only getting vitamin C, but all of the other wonderful benefits that come from these amazing superfoods. To try Paleo Valley's Essential C Complex and save 15% on your purchase, go to paleovalley.com forward slash C-H-E-K 15. That's P-A-L-E-O-V-A-L-L-E-Y.com forward slash C-H-E-K 15. No promo code is required. Enjoy. Whenever you have a moment where it fits, I have a couple of quick comments and a book to share. Okay, so let me finish up the the concept here. So most people have some idea of this transverse wave. Now, one way that these transverse waves express themselves is literally through light. That's That's a transverse wave. Then we have another type of wave that's known to science that's called a longitudinal wave. A longitudinal wave doesn't displace things at 90 degrees to its own line of travel. It displaces things to travel parallel to it. So transverse waves are perpendicular. The longitudinal waves, parallel. Now, the example you always see in scientific texts to describe a longitudinal wave is a sound wave. And so if we understand this, then okay. So if we look at this the way people are taught in school, all we are taught is the electromagnetic spectrum, right? So there's a part of the electromagnetic spectrum that creates what we pick up in a range as sound waves. That's in a different part of the linear chart that we're all taught of uh, the electromagnetic spectrum. That's in a different part, different frequency range than those waves that we pick up with our eyes in terms of light and color. And so it's presented as this kind of of linear uh, analysis and we would think, oh, well, there, it's all the same. It's just a question of what is the frequency. But in fact, we now know it doesn't work that way. There's some more complications to it. There's, there's more depth in nature's design language than they told us in school. Because the way the sound waves move and create energy around it is completely opposite to the way that the light moves and creates movements around it. So, but nobody talks about this. And nobody talks about this even in metaphysical healing circles. We talk in abstract ways about there's sound healing and there's healing with light and color, both systems that I absolutely love. But we have to see that they are two separate systems working with two different types of waves. When we move into a future paradigm that is far more enlightened than what we have today, 
where we're going to be using energies for healing, we're going to understand that these are two different types of waves we can use for healing. And the effect of the sound waves may not be identical to the effect of the light and color waves. Not that one is better than the other, but they're part of a more complex picture. So if we think of the human being as being an energetic system, there's going to be certain healing opportunities, I believe, that we get from the application of the longitudinal waves and sound waves, particularly with the cymatics. Because I totally agree with you that the cymatics demonstrates perfectly the way that invisible energy waves will structure matter, that the form of matter is an epiphenomenon of the energy of the wave. The wave is causative. The the shape of the physical object is an effect that comes from the cause. And so that's what you see all the time in cymatics, that as you're putting that sound frequency through a paste or a powder or something like that, with one sound frequency, it forms up physical matter into a specific shape, change the sound frequency, it gives the physical matter a completely different shape. This is the solution to how all physical forms get their shape. It comes from the waves. And so if we understand that, now there's a very powerful growth from the cymatic research called cymotherapy with my friend Mandara Cromwell carrying on the work of Dr. Peter Guy Manners. And they have incredibly advanced, very useful sound healing technology that uses a combination of specific sound waves to recreate the core frequency information that creates all these biological functions in the body. And then you have all the the light and color therapies today, which also include electromagnetic therapies, the way we commonly describe them, that includes microcurrent therapy that goes along with the light and color therapies that are transverse waves, and that can also be incredibly powerful. So I just wanted to get up to this point, introduce what's coming later. I'll turn it over to you here in a second. Uh, just to show a, a progression of concepts that lead us to where today we have practical technologies of healing that are extremely non-invasive, incredibly biologically active, dealing with longitudinal waves, sound healing, and transverse waves, light and color, and microcurrent. So I'll turn it back over to you because you said you had some, some comments and uh, a book to recommend. Yeah, just a couple of thoughts. You know, we're talking about the collapse of the wave function and invisible becoming visible, cymatics. You know, here's a real practical example of the collapse of the wave function. It's your thoughts that drive your posture and your gesture. 55% of all language is nonverbal. It's posture and gesture. But you can't see your thoughts, right? And, and your thoughts are actually more waves than they are anything else. And, and even though they see them on an electroencephalogram, that's, that's another trick because they think, oh, look, we can see your thoughts. No, you're seeing the effects of the thoughts. The brain is responding. It would be like saying, oh, look, my oscillograph, oscilloscope is going up and down. So I'm seeing the electricity. Well, you're seeing the effects of the electricity on the device that you're using. And it's designed to give you that wave because that's how it's constructed. Just like your brain is constructed to receive these non-local thought waves that manifest. And Steiner says thoughts are spirit. And we don't have, you know, well, biogeometry can measure spirit, but we don't have standard uh, technical devices to measure spirit. And another thought that I wanted to share is that your intention collapses the wave function. What you intend 
takes pure potential and turns it into actuality. So I, uh, do you agree with that? Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. Yes, absolutely. You know, uh, that's why I tell my students, you must understand what the word intention means because God is zero. God is neutral. God is unconditional love, if you want a simple. So the zero force is all possibilities are available to you, pure potential. So the word intention means intention. You take potential, put it into tension, and now spirit begins to flow and manifest, which is no different than turning the dial on your tone generator and seeing what frequencies make different shapes, except you are choosing what to manifest. So the word intention means to put potential into tension, and that's why we have to pay attention to what we do with our mind. And earlier you were talking about the Russian scientist who has studied a bunch of his work, so I'm familiar with it, and read all the studies comparing what happens with quartz versus glass, which is why when I charge healing medicines, I use quartz uh, vases to carry them in because I put them in my water charger, and then I direct very powerful healing crystals like Vogel cut crystals and I can amplify the power of anything radically. I couple it with the biogeometry charging plate. So I put the medicines on the biogeometry charging plate in a quartz, a, a, a real quartz uh, goblet. Then I direct crystals into it. And then the water charger is pumping. And then I circle it with three-gallon bottles of water. So the water acts like a huge amplifier and it's wickedly powerful. But going back to that concept, there's a there's never, several books I've read talking about even how throughout history it was known by people not to let a baby be held by or near unhealthy people or even people in negative emotional states because it could affect the baby so strongly it could make it sick. And so having studied torsion waves Everything that you were talking about in the ultraviolet spectrum is, is real, but the torsion wave concept also could be very real. And the research I read showed that torsion waves can be measured for 30 days. For example, if I get out of this chair right now, you can actually measure a Paul check sitting here for 30 days in the torsion field. And I know you'll know this book, but I want to let the Listeners know, because if you want a frickin' good book that's about 800 pages of research on life force, the book's called Life Force by Claude Swanson, who studied biogeometry as well. Yes, I know Claude, yes. He was in one of Angie's classes, and I tried to get him on the podcast, but unfortunately he passed away. Have you got his book, Life Force? It's fantastic. It's really an amazing collection. (laughs) I, yeah, I I used to read that thing in the sauna because it's so big. I said, I got to work my way through this. So every time I'd get in the sauna, I'd read a research paper. But it, from sweating on it and being in the sauna, it just disintegrated. So I bought another copy for my library. But the, some of the research in there is freaking mind-blowing. I mean, it really you, is. You read that and you realize people haven't got a fucking clue what's going on, man. It's like when you start reading some of this research that never makes it into mainstream science, and it's good research, too. I mean, this isn't stuff done by, you know, hippies in Grenada. This is, like, seriously good research. And you're just like, oh, my God, we are so fucking behind the power curve here. Where you were talking about the way that the thoughts are really waves, and the brain is a receptor for it. We had mentioned before you had brought up Michael Talbot's book on the holographic universe. There's a fantastic section in there that I never forgot when I read this decades ago. 
where he talked about the work of Sir John Eccles, who won the Nobel Prize for his work in brain research. And people would ask him after he won the Nobel Prize, after examining the brain for so long to find the place that ignites the firing of neurons that creates a thought, where did you find it? And he said, I found that there wasn't one. I, I found that there was a larger holographic field of energy around the human head that interacts with the head through a particular location of the brain where it takes this higher holographic field and then, in a sense, collapses it into the thoughts in the brain. And the place that he refers to, the supplementary motor area, the SMA, as the place that interacts with the holographic field and the brain. And this is from the guy that won the Nobel Prize in brain research. The supplemental motor area is the part of the brain directly beneath the crown center in the Vedic medicine work in understanding the chakras. So these things fit together absolutely perfectly. Thoughts definitely are of a non-material nature, and the brain acts as a receiver for them. So I just want to follow up on that, because that's one of my favorite things out of Michael Tabbitt's book. I think it's it's so useful. So following up on this idea, then, that we have different types of waves. And so I just want to say a little bit about these technologies. I'm going to be publishing on my website, vesica.org, early in 2024. Hopefully it'll be in January or soon thereafter, a type of resource guide for 2024 that tells people more about how to access these technologies and some of those I recommend and just how to understand them a little bit better. So we have the, the cymatics work, which makes visible invisible waves. It's an incredible body of work. Uh, you mentioned our friend, uh, John Stewart Reed, and you have his very advanced device. I want to make very clear for people that you know, sometimes you'll see like you can buy like a boom box that has like some type of thing that will show you pictures with the sound. That's just based on a computer program. It's not showing you the actual vibrational field image of that those vibrational waves. Cymatics is showing you the actual image that is created by those vibrational waves, like how they're created in water. They are the actual structural waves coming from that sound. Then, Dr. Peter Guy Manners, I've got a whole article about this on my website. Dr. Peter Guy Manners in Britain created cymotherapy, where he found that if you bring together five specific uh, sound qualities together, it's called the secret of five. You can't just do one sound. It's five together, create a composite wave that can recreate the actual vibrational field of all the major organs and biological systems in the human body based on the five waves you bring together. It's very precise. Then after he lived to be over 100, he passed on to my friend Mandara Cromwell, who now runs her Cymatech organization, and she has created the first public devices in Cymatherapy that anyone can use in their own home to get these composite sound waves for healing in the body. It's one of my favorite energetic healing devices, absolutely fantastic. Again, I've got more information on the website. Before you go to the next type of wave, I wanted to mention, I have an absolutely excellent podcast with Jonathan Goldman on sound mm. and sound in, in healing. And he recently released a, a course through uh, the Shift Network on sound healing. I mean, if you don't know who Jonathan Goldman is, he's been around for a long time. He's got a lot of amazing CDs. I listen to his work a lot when I write because it's so great for the, for my mind when I'm working. But anyhow, um, I just wanted to mention for listeners, 
Jonathan Goldman's podcast with me is excellent and uh, wonderful. I think even you would enjoy it, Robert. I mean, we, oh, we, yeah, get, yeah. we get we oh, get down and we get into it. <laughs> he yeah, told me after he wrote me and said that was the deepest podcast I've ever done ever. <laughs> he said I'm 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 amazed you wanted to talk like that. That most people get and understand that. I said, well, my listeners will like it. I, I love that. I love that. And John Stuart Reed also had a series on the Shift Network. I, I was on it as a guest presenter on Sacred Geometry. So, yeah, these guys are really deep into it. They know a lot about it. I have a podcast with John Stuart Reed, too. Oh, it's really good. It's, it's, I really like him. So we have the, the longitudinal wave. And uh, I have suspicions about longitudinal waves that I'm not ready to scientifically present just yet, but I do think the longitudinal waves may be connected to certain aspects of the biological life force. In some cases, that's more intimate than the connection that we have with the transverse waves. But nonetheless, the transverse waves are extremely powerful for healing. So with the transverse waves, you have not only light and color therapy, which tends to be more in somewhat metaphysical, holistic health circles, but you also have the development of modern microcurrent therapy. Now, again, when I publish this document early 2024 on my website, I'll go into a lot more detail on this, but I just want people to be aware of the concept that tremendous research has been done in microcurrent therapy recently. So mostly when people know about certain types of electromagnetic healing devices, they think of TENS devices. TENS devices put an electromagnetic charge into the body to stop pain. And they do that by overwhelming the receptors in the body with the TENS signal uh, to stop the transmission of the pain signal. But we have to be aware that although this could be very useful for getting out of pain, it actually has a detrimental effect on the development of ATP in the body for cellular energy and also has a detrimental effect on the mitochondria because you're giving it like you're using like a sledgehammer to like knock the the nerves to like stop transmitting the signal. And it's like kind of numb at that point. But but you can have microcurrent therapy, which is a bare fraction of the amount of juice that's going into a tense therapy. So microcurrent is literally microcurrent. It's very, very, very tiny charges. Because we need to be aware that the electrical and magnetic charges in the human body are extremely small, incredibly biologically active, but very, very small. If you apply really strong electromagnetic fields to the body, it tends to be highly detrimental. Uh, but if you have very precisely engineered, correct frequency, very small inputs, it will biologically steer the body in a way that is unbelievable. It is really a, a coming. It's what medicine should be moving toward right now. It's incredible what they've been able to do. So I want to mention just a few aspects of that field. My friend, Dr. Jerry Tennant in Texas, who's written a series of books called Healing is Voltage. Healing, I've got them. Yeah, they're great. He's an amazing guy. He's absolutely brilliant. He's a walking testimonial to the work because he was sent home to die in his, I believe, in his 50s from a pathogen that could not be eradicated that he had picked up in his medical work. And he managed to knock it out completely. And now I believe he's, he's 80. And he's still working a full day every day. He's doing great. And he's an amazing, amazing guy. So the Healing is Voltage works by Jerry Tennant. Go into this. And he's got brilliant observations. Uh, and he also has some of his own microcurrent devices that go with his particular healing system. Then you have the work of Carolyn McMakin, 
who has done, if there was any justice, that woman would have received a Nobel Prize for her work in identifying the specific frequencies that create all these different biological functions in the body. It's mind-blowing what's there. She has a fantastic book for the public called The Resonance Effect. And she has online training courses, which are pretty technical, on how to use what she calls frequency-specific microcurrent. So when you see the term FSM, or frequency-specific microcurrent, that's the work coming directly from Carolyn McMakin. And she's worked within a standard medical model. She works within standard medical circles. And but she's always had to be very careful with this work because if they if they are too loud about what they can accomplish, then of course you become a target. But they've managed to be doing this now for some decades with incredible what you see what they've actually accomplished, it's unbelievable. But they're fairly quiet about it because we know how these things work. I highly recommend looking up frequency specific medicine. Uh, I'm sorry, frequency specific microcurrent, FSM, Carolyn McMakin, getting her book on the resonance effect is pretty stunning. And then if you are motivated to train in the system, she has online classes to learn it. But I will say it is fairly technical and you cannot buy her devices to work on yourself unless you've done the whole training. So for that, you pretty much need to find like a practitioner unless you're really going to jump in with both feet. Then there are other makers of microcurrent devices, and I've been evaluating them and their devices. And again, that's going to be in my report that's coming out very soon in early 2024 about where people can access some more of this this technology. But it really is an incredible work. And I wanted to give people just some of these indications of places they could start looking if they didn't want to wait for the my article coming up that gives you more of the detail. There's a couple of other resources, I think, that are great for developmental understanding. And that's, of course, Robert O. Becker's work. Absolutely. Um, What's the name of his first big popular book? His book about the benefits of all of this is The Body Electric. The Body Electric, yeah. His book about the dangers of it is Cross Currents. Right. And then prior to him is Harold Saxon Burr and his research on the L field. I studied all of his books and research. That's quite informative. It's quite amazing. You know, he was a professor at Yale in 1947. Some of the research he was doing was just mind-boggling. I don't even think they would let him do that research today. They probably wouldn't. But, yeah, the Elfield research of Harold Saxton Burr really laid the foundation for a lot of this work. And it was coming out of the work before that with the Abrams device and people using in medical clinics, these electrical devices, but of course, pharmaceutical industry came after it. They got the AMA to squash it and destroy all the devices. And this was a hundred years ago. They tried to drive this back into the dark ages, but it's back and it's fantastic what's available today if you know that it exists, which most people will never hear about. Are you familiar with Harold Saxon Burr's research that he did on water and having his college students hold uh, mason jars of water and then taking mason jars of the same tap water to psych wards and having people that were put in the hospital and locked up in psych wards hold the water and then watering the plants with it? No, but it makes perfect sense. So what was the result when they watered the plants with that? It's mind-blowing. What happened was is um, when the college students held the water and they watered plants, they grew normally. But when they watered it with the plants, same genus of plants with the water held by psychically ill people, the plants often didn't grow toward the sun. Their bodies were all gnarled and twisted. They looked like plants growing through near um, 
negative energy lines in the earth, ley lines with bad energy in them. Yeah, yeah. And so, or electromagnetic fields, yeah. Yes, they were, the plants were very sick, and there was pictures too. But when I read that, I'm like, wow, this guy was doing this in the late 40s, and he's showing beyond a shadow of a doubt that water carries psychic energy, and it has a tremendous effect on, on plants. And yes. I'm like, that's very advanced research all the way back then, and hardly anybody knows about this stuff. Oh, as soon as he left Yale, they destroyed everything. That's what always happens with these cases. Jesus. But this also applies to the biogeometry work. Because, again, with biogeometry, we can detect the types of energetic radiations, the subtle radiations, too subtle to be picked up by electromagnetic equipment, with the type of radiesthesia that we teach. And we can actually see that every thought a person has, every emotion a person has, is creating a vibrational quality that is projected out of their energy field, like an antenna. So if you give that water to somebody who's mentally ill, there's going to be very detrimental energy qualities getting infused into the water because water is a fantastic holder of vibrational information. And so that experiment it makes perfect sense. Absolutely. And water's got a frequency receptive range of 65 octaves, which that's a lot of frequency range. I I got a friend of mine, Sean O'Leary, who's been on my podcast too. Father Sean O'Leary is a genius. He's a mathematician, and he, he actually calculated what 65 octaves is, and it was a number so big, I don't even think there's a word for it. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah, that's but incredible. This goes right back to the whole issue of not letting unhealthy people or negatively emotional, you know, people with dark energies hold your baby because it transfers the, the psychic energy. It goes right into the water of their bodies. Uh, Dr. Karim has even talked about this in biogeometry, that in the ancient world, they understood that there were certain dangers with getting secondhand items. And so the Romans used to say that stones that people wear, like jewelry, will carry the sins of their owners because we'll infuse the stuff with our energies as we're, we're wearing it. But again, that's one of the incredible things about biogeometry work. People can learn for themselves to detect these subtle energies, and you would never know by looking at it. But one particular stone will have a tremendously beneficial energy vibration coming from it. Another was worn by a sick person for a long time, and you test it, and it's full of very, very toxic vibrational qualities. So the ability to perceive in the invisible world with the radiesthesia in, in biogeometry is something that is of incredible value, because now you can tell what invisible waves and what their energetic effects are in any person, place, or thing. That's really where we're moving toward. That's what I want listeners to really understand, is that we have a lot of this in place right now that they can start learning and start applying in their own lives. That's interesting, too, because when I teach Angie, my wife and I, who's a shaman, and I teach classes on sound healing, and one of the things we bring up is is for for those practicing shamanism and sound healing, is you have to make a decision as to whether you are not you want to let other people handle your your healing tools, whether it be healing wands, crystals, and stuff, because they're going to pick up other people's energies. So there's, I think, it's a personal distinction, but you need to be conscious of that if you're a healer, because if someone unhealthy is handling your tools, you you can pick up that energy, and if you're not cleaning them, uh, they can be impregnated with negative energies, even though you think you're uh, doing sound healing. And, you made me think of, I read years ago, I was doing some reading on these types of things, and they brought up a comment from, a, a man. I can't remember the man's name, but it was like a long time ago, maybe in the 1800s, 
But there was this famous wealthy person who would buy art, but he would not buy it if it had been looked at by anybody other than the artist because he said that the it impregnated the art with the psychic energy of the people and he wanted his art to be clean and pure. So he would only buy art from the artist if nobody else had seen it. So you, you get these people from a long time ago that were very tapped in. I mean, that's pushing things to a, an extreme, but it goes to show you that these psychic energies impregnate everything around us. Absolutely. As something that, you know, what you find today is people in holistic health and metaphysical circles who are always very concerned about what external energies could be affecting us, but we rarely ever discuss how is my weird energy potentially affecting <laughs> other people. I somehow we forget that. <laughs> I try to, we're so narcissistic. Yeah, yeah. Somehow just assume we're always perfect in the way we're affecting other people. There's other people we got to worry about. But it is something I try to bring up in all my classes is that we have to clean up our own act and make sure that what we're projecting out of our own fields is something that's beneficial to everybody. And again, through things like the biogeometry radius seizure, we can actually very quickly and easily detect what we are broadcasting outward and also pick up certain disturbances in our own energy body before they become more serious. Because it'll start as a vibrational shift before it has any physically detectable change. Hello, everybody. I sure hope you're enjoying this amazing podcast. I sure am. Did you know that Bioptimizer's Microbiome Breakthrough is my daily probiotic of choice? According to research, approximately 90% of people worldwide suffer from leaky gut syndrome. This means that undigested food particles are leaking through the lining of your small intestine, overloading your liver, and putting a chronic load on your immune system. As I show in my book, How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy, this is the most common reason that more people today are suffering from debilitating food intolerances than ever before. Microbiome Breakthrough not only gives you a daily dose of essential probiotics to keep your microbiome healthy, it is designed to support healing the wall of your small intestine so your liver and immune system can rest and you can digest your food effectively. Not only is this one of my all-time favorite products, it tastes great and is easy to use. To get started on Microbiome Breakthrough now, and get 10% off as a Living 4D listener, go to bit.ly forward slash microbiome paul10. That's bit.ly forward slash microbiome paul10. Enjoy your healthy gut. Well, Robert, this is all super fascinating. My next topic of discussion relates to health and illness. A lot of people think that health is considered the opposite of illness. I feel that illness and disease can be great opportunities for spiritual awakening. Before you share your thoughts on the issues of illness and diseases as doorways to spiritual growth, I'd like to give credit to somebody whose work touched my life quite deeply, and I don't know if you know who she is. Are you familiar with the holistic nurse? She's long gone now, but her name was Margaret Newman. No. I think her book is Health is, Health is Consciousness, but Margaret Newman was a holistic nurse who worked for 35 years to try to help hospitals understand the 
effects of consciousness on people's health and the importance of how nurses work with people. A, a great book. Um, I think I'll, I'll, I'll get the resource for the book and I'll email it to you because it's quite good. She draws heavily on Itzhak Bentov's work mm. um, and many other people's uh, work in consciousness. Very evolved woman. But when I read her work, it really was a shift for me because she gave a number of cases talking about how she felt that illness was often as much of a gift to some people as it was a challenge because without it, they wouldn't have made the transition into becoming more conscious about what caused the illness, about doing the work to get healthy so that they can then be living examples, guides and therapists for other people, having empathy and compassion for other people. So she really took illness out of the paradigm of the opposite of health and actually put illness almost as a category of being healthy if you deal with the illness in ways that ultimately produce health and higher consciousness. You understand what I'm saying here? Absolutely. Yes. I'm just curious on how you feel about that. Um, I think it's an important discussion to have because in our, in our culture, people want to get rid of the illness by knocking it out. They want to go pay a doctor or a therapist. And I think this applies to all this biohacking. And even sometimes these frequency devices, I mean, I'm hip to a lot of this stuff. I, you know, you know, I've studied a lot in practice. I've been around for a long time, but I think even if you can get rid of your symptoms and make yourself feel better, if you don't really get to the causative forces within yourself, you know, we're talking about thoughts, feelings, emotions, beliefs, absolutely, uh, belief systems passed down through the family. I think you, you can feel good for a while, but you, you know, you're not really getting over it and you can also suppress one mode of expression say someone's got Crohn's disease but then you use various technologies and it looks like it's healed but it then comes out as some other kind of pathology because you haven't really dealt with the core energies so love to hear you sort of share your thoughts in this regard okay thank you no I totally agree with you on this it's something where I believe in the ancient world they they definitely had a understanding that illnesses can be a reflection of things going on below the surface of the individual in a way that brings it up to consciousness where it can be addressed. And so, you know, there was a, a European book some years ago called Blessed by Illness that is working with these types of classical concepts that we will sometimes develop these illness challenges based on whatever are the issues that we have not addressed internally. So this also then becomes linked to mindfulness, which we'll get into in just a moment. But the basic idea here is that in the ancient world, they understood that part of the process of human alchemical development in a physical body in the physical world is what they called initiation trials, so that we are going to have certain challenges brought to us in a way that is going to make us step up to the next level of functioning by overcoming that challenge. You mean like what we're going through right now in the world? Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, we can't develop true discernment unless we live in a world full of lies and distortion. Right. Steiner talks a lot about that. And, and so, you know, it's spiritual weightlifting. 
Yes, we it is. To be. That's the name of my new book series. Uh, I love it. Spirit Gym. I love it. Uh, we Just like we get a stronger physical body resisting physical weights, we have to have these other types of resistances to develop real dynamic strength with it. And so there, we always have the challenge with these types of concepts of finding the center in the concept and not going to a polarized view of it. So on the one hand, you have the modern Western medical view of it, which is, oh, your illnesses are just some random abstract thing, has nothing to do with you. Although in some cases they might say, well, your lung cancer is linked to the fact that you're smoking too many cigarettes or something. But other than that, they don't really look too much at the person, certainly not at their psychology or their emotions or something like that to be a causative factor for a certain type of physical ailment. So at them, it's all mechanical. It's all external. And then on the other hand, we had the acknowledgement of how people can create their own challenges with what they hold in their emotional body and their mental body, etc., that came into metaphysics. And I remember a couple of decades ago, it was a very common thing to find in metaphysical circles that if someone had a particular type of uh, illness challenge, then you'd, you'd get always in some group, somebody would, in a rather flippant, offhand way, say, oh, why did you create that? Yeah, or it's your karma, man. <laughs> yeah, but it was kind of like a thing about a kind of a non-compassionate view of like, oh, well, whatever your challenge is, you created that. And why did you do a type of thing? But it wasn't necessarily coming from a place of heartfelt compassion. No, or was, empathy, not empathy. It wasn't empathy. It was coming from kind of a smart ass approach to the whole thing. And, and I didn't think that was particularly helpful for people who are like suffering tremendously because, because yes, we, we have these challenges that we often self-generate, but we self-generated these things through <clears throat> coping mechanisms to overcome trauma and suffering in our lives. Like when we were a child, we learned to hold back the energy in a certain part of the body because it wasn't safe to express it or whatever it is. That's a suffering the person has. It leads to an illness down the road. But just to like blame them for it, I don't find is a particularly helpful approach. But if we can empower them with compassion that, you know, this is something that uh, was a pattern put into you a long time ago that you weren't even conscious of, and you may not be conscious of it now. If you become conscious of it, rather than trying to avoid it, like I don't want to see that thing, if you go into it and go out the other side, that thing will turn inside out and the hidden gift inside of it will be, will be present. So when you find people with extraordinary gifts, it often came from having lost a particular fundamental function for a period of time. And then when they got it back, they were so conscious of what they had lost that they have it at a higher level. Example, Steiner talks about the way that the reason for monks taking vows of silence in the Middle Ages is that by losing that expression, that capacity, they became hyper aware of the power of speech. And so the way he describes it is they did it so they would develop magical powers of speech in future incarnations by losing it now. So we always have to see things in that larger comic, karmic context, yes, context of how is this going to play out for the person over a greater span of time? And so 
if we see things from that perspective, we can also see that people may choose to take on certain karmic challenges that weren't even self-generated. It could be some type of health challenge that maybe they didn't generate it. It did come from the outside. Or they're put in a family situation. They didn't create that bad dynamic, but now you got to deal with it. You're, you're stuck in the middle of it because it's like person going to the gym and saying, I'm going to take twice as many weights on my bar as the person next to me so that I can, I can develop that much faster than the other person. It's going to hurt. It's not going to be fun, but I'll develop faster if I do that. And sometimes this comes from. I mean, we see it sometimes as, oh, it's a person's dysfunctional and they're creating a dysfunctional life. That can certainly happen. We're not ruling that out. But there's also the aspect that some people who are very advanced spiritually, very developed, you find them having all types of horrible challenges in their lives that come from something that they took on in this lifetime to develop their strength as quickly as possible. And sometimes this actually comes from compassion within that person that before incarnation, they chose that challenge out of compassion because they knew at a future lifetime they would need that skill that they were going to develop, that strength they would develop by going through this horrible thing at a future time to be able to help others. And if they didn't go through it now, they wouldn't have developed that skill for when they need it then. This is something that I think is a very deep spiritual concept that should give us some hesitancy in being too flippant with other people about their particular illness or other life challenges. Yes, we develop a lot of the stuff ourselves. Even so, I'm not a big fan of blaming the victim, but empowering them with understanding this can be shifted. You can work with this. And also understanding that in some cases, people take on these tremendous challenges in their life situation, etc. That you can see in many cases, people are creating this problem in their lives because of their dysfunctional way of living. But in other cases, it's like, I don't see where this person is creating this. It's, it's something that's coming to them, but it's to, it's to strengthen them that, you know, whatever does not destroy me makes me stronger, right? And so this is definitely a part of that. And so even in, in many systems, they have systems of body reading and face reading where you can tell a lot about a person's character and spiritual development, et cetera, by things that are present in their, their face and their body. And that's because Part of this whole process of why are we incarnating physically to begin with? There's many all kinds of higher beings that aren't incarnating physically and they're doing all kinds of things. Why are we doing it? Part of it is it develops the will forces to tremendous levels are going through this, but also has the effect that it reflects to us our level of development through what we see externally. That sometimes there's all these things that we can see externally, whether it's in health challenges or the structure of the physical body or something like that that makes visible and unavoidable something in our own challenges of development, where we became too one-sided one way or another, and that gets externally reflected to us. So all of these things are part of the journey of human incarnation and human life to become more self-aware, which then leads us into the importance of mindfulness, because much of this is done by spirit to make us conscious of something we must be conscious of to overcome something that's holding us back and develop our potential to the highest level. And if we can, in our mindfulness, see it and shift it ourselves, they may not have to give us that horrific life situation that we prefer not to go through in the school of hard knocks. We may not have to go through that particular terrible illness because we've already shifted the background conditions in our mind and our emotions that we're, we're dealing with here. 
I, I wanted to ask you that question because I knew you'd have some powerful things to say. A couple of things came up for me. One, in Yogananda's writings, he talks about how for certain people, he would absorb their karma into himself and he would deal with it inside of himself because he felt some people had traumas and experiences that they shouldn't have to carry. So for key people, he would bring that into them, him and he would deal with it as a very, very advanced master yogi uh, in, in his own body. He would take it on. So there's that. The other thing is, this is my experience. I'm curious to hear your thoughts to it. And, and I think the concept of the physical is a relative concept. You, you mentioned the other beings and other dimensions that may not take on physical bodies, but you know, I, I'm a remote viewer and I've done a lot. I do lots of work in the astral plane. In fact, I work in it most days and I can be in the astral world and be in my, what I call my light body or spirit body. And things are just as physical there as they are here. Because when I bring my vibration to, to a, to sympathetic resonance with the astral world, uh, there's, I can sit in tables and chairs and have meetings with people just like I'm talking to you now. So I think our concept of the physical has kind of got this limited viewpoint on it because from my own practices and spiritual experiences, I can tell you I can have meetings with people in what we would call other dimensions. In fact, I had a meeting with Carl Jung recently and had a very interesting conversation with him because I was curious what he's doing now. And I won't go into the whole discussion, but I'm sitting there with Carl Jung and, and here he's in another body and he's telling me what's going on. I can touch the table he was sitting at, so on and so forth. So I think, oh, we, you know, one of the ways I give this as an analogy to my students is say, okay, look, here's a, Here's a video game. What you're looking at on the screen is just a bunch of photons. But if I could turn you into a video game player and put you in the game, then that car this guy's driving would be a car to you, just like car is to me here, because you'd be in sympathetic resonance. So what's physical is relative to the vibrational level you're at. Before I move on to my other points, what do you think about that? I think it's extremely interesting. So this gets into the whole issue of we have the dense physical plane and then we have the reflection of the dense physical plane at a certain level of the astral plane to where things are like they're solid. Now, this is something that is simply part of the way the world exists. Some higher planes, things are much more immaterial. You have much more interpenetration of beings and combinescence where the, the subtle bodies can interpenetrate and become one and don't have the type of spatial separation. So this has to do with sacred geometry of space and time that operates on the astral as well as it does on the physical. And so we have aspects of the astral that operate as if they were a physical plane. Now, this is something that is known to initiates as something that they sometimes need to navigate also to help people. So what can happen if a person, let's say they're highly materialistic in their physical life, and they have no concept of a higher spiritual world where you're in a light body that is not physical and there are not things that are like a physical world around you. They're much more dynamic and intangible and things like that. But they, maybe they can't operate on that plane just yet. They don't have a level of development that they can even understand the dynamics of operating on that plane. So people cross the threshold. All they know is physical life, physical world. And what happens 
is that they can do something that the great Greek Christian hermetic initiate Daskalos referred to as creating shell hells. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a shell hell is where a person basically recreates their physical environment from where they lived in the physical world as a structure on the astral plane. And they can get stuck there for a very long time. And they just think, I'm, I'm still alive. I'm still living because they've reconstructed it like a shadow of the physical plane on the astral. And Daskos would talk about he'd have to go to these places and talk to the people and say, hey, I got news for you. You're actually dead. And you've constructed the shell hell on the astral plane as a place that you can operate. But you actually need to go on to this higher world for some of these other processes that are that are present here. And this also then connects to the Tibetan teachings about the bardos and about what types of bardos exist. And there are some that are very similar to the physical plane and some that have very little in common with the physical plane at all that are very highly elevated. Interesting thing about this is when I was on the, well, one of the podcasts for the Oxford Psychedelic Society recently, uh, talking about psychotropic use, they had on a, another presenter who runs the uh, Qualia Institute in California, great guy. And he was talking about his research into levels of DMT experience. And, and he was able to typify it as the types of rooms you go into based on the level of dosage. And it was like so interesting to see how this kind of correlates to the seven planes model based on the level of dosage people have with DMT to where sometimes it's like very much like physical plane and sometimes it was like a whole nother thing, extremely expanded. And so I do think it's very useful for people to hear about the types of things we're discussing now because we don't always have, I think, a a very well laid out explanation in our modern Western society about what non-physical realms look like and what they can be experienced like. And there's such a great variety of them that they can go from those that are quite physicalized to those that are not very physical at all. A thought that came to me I'd like to hear your thoughts on is I would consider when I'm traveling and working with other people, be it spirit guides or like I mentioned, I was talking to you. See, here we're, we we relate in space-time. You know, I know you're, I don't know if you're in Las Vegas or where you're at right now, but for me to actually touch Robert physically, I have to travel a long way through space, which takes time. Time, time here is all based on relationships. But I feel from my understanding of time-space that when I'm working in these astral dimensions, or higher vibrational dimensions, I'm more in a time-space dimension because it's like a dream where you can actually, or even like a DMT journey, you 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 know, a DMT journey only usually lasts about 12 minutes, but it can seem like a lifetime, <laughs> you know. So there you're in time-space, like you can be driving your car, you're moving in space-time, but be daydreaming, and not even realize you just went through an intersection and can't remember if the light was green or red and go, holy shit. So you went from space-time driving the car to time-space where you're having a completely different experience. So I have a feeling intuitively that this these higher vibrational planes, a lot of them are, are nested in our soul spirit as time-space versus space-time. I'm just curious what your thoughts in that regard are. Yes, I think this goes back to you have the, the top-down view and you have the bottom-up view. 
so that the time structure, I believe it precedes the space structure. But they both are based on sacred geometry. But where we are in in our spatial world, we tend to think first of the spatial world and then time. Like for me to go from this space to that space, it takes that amount of time. But from a higher perspective, this whole time thing becomes a whole different world. So one of my favorite topics in spiritual science is the concept of the initiation known as the vision of the eagle. So the vision of the eagle initiation is where if we think of time as a river, using a metaphor of a physical river, then time is the river. Most people are standing on the bank of the river and they see this, this one moment in time. Every presentation I do, I talk about memento mori. Remember that you will die. We're in here for a very short time. I often like to say that, that life is a limited time opportunity. You better make good use of your time here because it's, it's a finite resource. And normally we're only aware of this exact moment in time right now. And then all of a sudden we wake up and we're old and maybe we're going to croak and like, ah, what's going to happen? <laughs> so, but if we actually move our consciousness up like an eagle does, and goes above the river, it can see the river from its beginning to the end. And that's where you see all these incredible classical spiritual texts that are from a perspective outside of time, where time is just another sacred geometry structure, just like space, that the spatial events will occur inside of that container. And this also begins to give us some insight into the simultaneity of time. So one sign of a person having reached a higher state of consciousness, is that they can attain certain states where time is simultaneous, past, present, future. They're all happening at the same moment. One thing I really appreciated about the graphic novel Watchmen by Alan Moore is when he describes this being, Dr. Manhattan, who like became like a super being and like a Manhattan experiment type of nuclear thing, he's got to try to figure out how to navigate in the world when he has simultaneous consciousness of past moments of time, present moment of time, and future moments of time. So at the same moment that he's meeting a woman, he's experiencing making love with her in the initial stages, experiencing the fighting with her at a later stage, and experiencing the end of the relationship in a terrible breakup at a later time. But it's all simultaneous. And so one of the big things about higher consciousness is developing mobility in time to where we put our consciousness and even being able to see whole time structures and how they fit together. Huge topic, but one that I find endlessly fascinating. And I think it's extremely interesting that Dr. Ibrahim Karim, founder of Biogeometry, his master textbook that he just put out called Hidden Reality is all about these aspects of space and time and navigation of them. I'm, I should just put in a quick plug here that I've been communicating with Ibrahim recently, and he's planning to come to the United States to offer a special topics course for the people that have completed the advanced training in biogeometry, which you can do online. He's going to, we're now setting that up for him to come and teach in the United States for the first time in I don't know how many years, 10 years or something. Uh, that's going to be the current schedule. It could change is September 2024. And he's going to be going into very deep aspects of these processes. So I love this whole topic about space time dynamics and things like biogeometry. We can make it quite practical. And it's a lot of what's coming down the pike in the next levels of biogeometry. Uh, just for listeners, because time space is quite confusing for a lot of people because we're so kind of conditioned into space time. So I would just share this with everyone listening. 
whatever you're doing right now, unless you're driving, if you're driving, just listen, don't do it. But if you just expand your awareness to the surface of your body, you can say, okay, I'm aware of my body, but now expand your awareness to fill the room of your house. Now expand your awareness to fill the yard or the outer area. And if you keep going, you can expand yourself to the very outer edges of the physical universe. So now what you see is that you are not in a space-time relationship because to travel to the outer edges of the universe would take you longer than you could ever even calculate (laughs) moving at the speed of light. I mean, you could calculate it, but I mean, it takes you about a hundred, over a hundred years just to get out of the Milky Way galaxy moving at the speed of light. And there's about, I don't know, two trillion galaxies last time they counted. And it gets bigger every time we build a bigger telescope. But there you can see that time space allows you to manipulate space within the time that you have within your own mind, where in space time, you're bound by the physical relationship. So I just wanted to share that as a sort of a simple exercise. And like I said, you can daydream and have a whole experience while you're driving your car and not even realize that you just made love to somebody while you were, you know, driving the last mile and lived half a lifetime with them. So there's time, space versus space time. I remembered Margaret Newman's book. It's health as, uh, the name is health as expanding consciousness. And I wanted to bring up a, a point on our topic of illnesses as spiritual opportunities versus health versus illness, Jung describes in many places in his work how a neurosis is an essential means of dissipating psychic energy, like problematic psychic energy, things they're having a hard time facing or they don't want to face or they don't have the sense or consciousness that they can resolve. So the neurosis is sort of like a relief valve, just like a semi-truck when the air tanks reach 140 PSI, you hear, because it's got to release the air or the tank will explode. So a neurosis is really the release valve. And this is why we have a lot of, uh, you know, skin conditions and digestive troubles and a whole long litany of, of these things, because these are symptoms of release. And Jung says that most people without their neurosis would commit suicide. He said neurosis is actually a healthy thing to have because when you have a neurosis, you can still work with what's going on <laughs> versus waiting till you kill yourself because you just can't take it anymore. So you can see that a lot of people go to doctors and therapists for illnesses that are actually a neurosis. And they're trying to actually knock out the symptoms, which for me as a therapist, I never do that. I always say we have to work backward to see what it is that this is a symptom of, which is why I use art therapy and journaling and plant medicines and every other mechanism for getting into their unconscious and soul connection and tarot. And I mean, there's a lot of ways to, to get down inside the basement. And, you know, the, 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 the things that people learn are often very mind blowing. I mean, you, you know, you can learn past life stuff. I've had, you know, I do past life regressions for people when it's necessary, but I've had people, for example, that died in wars. One of my patients had chronic stomach pain and nothing we were doing was resolving. And I just connected to that person's soul and said, you know, what's going on? And their soul said, look, this person was wounded by a spear in a past life. Now, I didn't tell them this. And I said, well, should I do a past life regression? And I did. And sure enough, my patient 
started going into severe pain and, and was just crying and buckling over. And I said, what are you experiencing? And my patient said to me, Paul, I'm, I'm in a battlefield and somebody has just drove one of these long spears right through my stomach. And I, I'm, I'm dying. And I said, well, pull the spear out. Now that you know that you are wounded there, pull the spear out and let's see what happens. And so the client went through the act of pulling the spear out. And after we did the regression and I did some integration work with this client, their stomach problem went away. They had had this for years. And I've had, I could sit here and give you a dozen more cases like that. So I think there's a lot of these things that we, a lot of the standard approach to healing is too shallow. You know, we don't have enough depth. And I think a lot of that has right to do with the scientific materialistic mindset. I think it's trapping us in flatland and too small of a reality. And unfortunately, you know, the World Economic Forum and the globalists are trying to cement us right into that reality. And I think this is why I like having conversations with people like you, because it helps us see beyond the limitations of just a physical world. But if we don't start relating to ourselves and relating to each other in a more multidimensional perspective, we aren't going to ever really achieve the kind of freedom that we're capable of. And that, that sets us right up for my next question. Are you ready for the next question? Let me just make a quick comment. I'm pushing my luck here with the comment I'm about to make, but I, I uh, like the story you just told about the past life regression. The person remembered the, the trauma of the penetration of the gut with the spear. If you're pushing the, your luck, it means it's going to be good. <laughs> okay. So, uh, I did a lot of past life regression, both for myself and with other people, uh, when I was training at the Clair Vision School of Australia with the late French medical doctor Samuel Sagan back in the 90s, and learned a lot from it. And they definitely find that this type of embedded trauma is leading to physical issues in the body and things that medical science will not figure out because they're based on embedded trauma. But I, I found a very interesting aspect of this, that once a person gets in touch with where the damage is in the body, like we would scan the person's body, see where there's an energetic disturbance, you put your hand there to keep their attention on it, they go into it in a method they would learn to like see what's held there, we would work through it, and they go out the other side of it. When you go out the other side, like we mentioned before, things kind of turn inside out. And so the place that we had the issue, we became hyper-conscious of, in a way, another person will never be conscious of that part of the body because they have no problem there. If you have no problem in your heart, you have no problem in your stomach, you have no problem in whatever, you don't really think about it. But when you have a challenge there, which may be linked to a past life trauma in some cases, then you become hyper-conscious of it. And so in the beginning, you're hyper-conscious because either you've lost something you, you want, like you lost your arm and now you don't have an arm and you're very conscious of what you've lost, or you have a pain, a suffering there. Also makes you hyper-conscious. So this is all about your idea here about consciousness and illness, right? It makes us more conscious of that thing. Now, once a person clears that energetic challenge, once they go into it, it turns inside out, they're out the other side. Your particular client didn't have any more uh, stomach pain after they remembered this and went out the other side. One thing I found that's extremely interesting, going back to Wilhelm Reich's work, because Reich is all about, you know, he was the founder of the sexual revolution about how we have to reclaim 
the life energy in our body, which is what the sexual energy is. You have to reclaim your own life energy. One thing that I found is that the places in the body where people had had terrible wounds, where they had been tortured, they had been killed in previous lifetimes, and they had a trauma they had to work through there. After they work through the trauma, that area of the body becomes an erogenous zone. Oh, interesting. It becomes a part of the body that they have increased sensitivity in and increased consciousness of. So it becomes a place that can experience more pleasure Mm. than the average person could experience in that part of the body through this whole process. It's kind of like in the great book, The Prophet by Khalil Gibran, where he talks about how we get hollowed out with sharp knives to create a space within us that can then be filled with joy. Ah. So this is the karmic recompense. So lots of times people don't want to go into past life regression, things like this, because I don't want to experience this. I don't want to remember it. It's too painful. I tell them you already are. (laughs) No, you're already in it. So you might as well go out the other side. But the thing I like to represent to them is like, and here's here's not just the stick, but here's the carrot. Go through it and out the other side. And these places of suffering are going to become places of expanded sensation and consciousness and will become places of additional pleasure beyond what the average person could experience in that part of the body. Hi, everybody. I sure hope you're enjoying the podcast. You know, a couple of months ago, Organifi sent me a couple of bags of their new Shilajay gummies to sample, and I was blown away with how great they taste and how much my body loved them. Having used Shilajay paste for many years, I've never been a big fan of the taste of it, but when I tried Organifi's new Shilajay gummies, I was truly impressed. The texture and consistency of the gummies is excellent, and they have just enough natural sweetness to let me feel like I'm getting a lovely, healthy treat for both my mind and my body. Shilajay is a unique, potent mineral paste from the Himalayan mountains. It contains an abundance of trace minerals, antioxidants, organic acids, and nutrient-transporting compounds. It's been known throughout history to help boost vitality and strength. Just pop a couple gummies and chew or suck on them slowly for a steady release of the delicious, earthly, but slightly sweet natural flavor. Your taste buds will enjoy the delicious treat while your body soaks up the massive amounts of feel-good nutrition. Rich in fulvic acid, humic acid, vitamins, enzymes, bioflavonoids, antioxidants, metabolites, and over 40 trace minerals, Shilajay gummies can help support energy production. Support performance and recovery. Support healthy muscles. Promote collagen synthesis. Support healthy hormone levels. Increase cellular energy. Decrease fatigue. And promote heart health. I absolutely love Organifi Shilajay gummies and went through two bags in no time because my body craved them so much. I reached out to Organifi to get more right away, and I bet you will too. To get your 20% off for Living 4D listeners, on your Shilajay gummies, go to Organifi, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com forward slash C-H-E-K 20. On checkout, use the promo code capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K, 20, two zero. That's check 20 on checkout to get your 20% discount on your awesome Shilajay gummies. I honestly love these things. I know you're going to be just amazed with how great they taste and how good they feel. You know, in my own career, because I pretty much deal with challenge cases that most people can't figure out. So I've always had to do a lot of work 
and look to say, okay, you know, what are the different ways we can work with some of these challenges? And so I'll, you know, hear from somebody like you, try this or try that. I'll go study and I'll take a course or two on it and test it out. And, and uh, you know, I've just expanded my toolkit, but I, I really think that I, I have tremendous sadness for the amount of people that just get stuck in the orthodox medical system and, you know, have this cut out, then that cut out, and they're on this drug and that drug, and their their whole, their life force diminishes, their life becomes more and more constricted until they're in a wheelchair or, or they die. And I watch this with great sadness because, you know, I don't know what the percentage would be, but there's a very significant percentage of people out there that are really suffering that in the hands of skilled therapists would never have not only would they not be suffering, they would have become much more awake and spiritually evolved through the process of using these types of technologies, whether it be soul recovery or past life regression or energy therapies or art therapy. I mean, there's a long list, you know that, but I'm really just sharing that this is a, you know, we have to get past the scientific materialist paradigm and this thing that is concerning to me is that the forces that be are trying to push us even deeper into the damn thing, you know, and that's, that's, uh, that's something people need to wake the hell up to because we can't, we cannot afford to go deeper into a materialist existence because we're actually on the edge of destroying the entire ecosystem that we survive in right now. And, and one step further into materialism and we're all dead. I hate to say it. Yeah. We're, we're I totally dead. agree. Yeah. You know, Robert Steiner left us with a spiritual science from modern times. I have a few questions. What is the unconscious? How does it work? And why is it important to understand? You know, the unconscious is talked about differently by different people. For example, if you study Steiner and compare him to Jung, they're not often saying the same things, even though they're using the same word. You could go through a number of people. I've even had people right on my podcast that tell me they don't believe that the unconscious exists. And I'm like, you kidding me? I would just love to hear what you say, particularly if you can share Steiner's perspective. My understanding at this stage of Steiner's perspective on the unconscious is that everything is conscious, but at different levels that are accessible by different types of beings or beings of particular states of evolution. So uh, he would... I believe that he would prefer, and again, there'd be people that know more about Steiner than me that correct this of what Steiner thought about the unconscious. But my impression was always with Steiner that these things are below or sometimes above our current state of consciousness, whatever that is, because everybody has a particular magnitude of their consciousness. The larger that magnitude, the fewer things are in the unconscious. They, they become conscious. But for the average person who's operating at a a very basic level, that vast majority of all information and insights are completely unconscious to them. They're simply not aware at those levels. And so there's the aspect of, number one, how do we expand our consciousness to the things that are currently unconscious to us? We can become conscious of, and that's really the foundation of mindfulness. We start by just observing where we are right now and keep expanding that outwards. Let the mind take its full possibilities to go into these things. And so the unconscious, conscious dialectic, I think, is also connected to the issue about multiple 
planes of existence. So there's a fascinating discussion that Dr. Kareem gave one time about, you know, if we think about we got a physical body, a vitality body, emotional, mental, causal, spiritual, divine, that in ancient Egypt, they understood that every one of these different subtle bodies in us is a separate conscious being. Things that's unconscious to me as Robert Gilbert that's going on in my body right now is completely conscious to some entity, although we don't mean that in a bad sense, some 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 conscious being that exists at that level that knows how to run my physical body, that knows how to run my vitality body. I'm, I don't, I'm not consciously myself right now making the energy run in my meridian or making my heart pump or whatever else might be going on. Digesting, metabolizing, assimilating. But there's uh, a type of a conscious being inside of us. And so in, in the ancient Egyptian understanding, it'd be a matter of just like for the medieval world that you receive the conversation of the holy guardian angel, a being that is to some degree above you in its consciousness and then can share with you things that are currently unconscious to you, but it knows that would be one process. In ancient Egypt, they understood this for every one of the subtle bodies. So you could ask questions to or get into a dialogue with the physical body or the vitality body or whatever. So they would call them you know, different names in ancient Egypt so that our idea of the energy body uh, was basically the ka. Our idea of the astral body was basically the ba, these types of things. But there's like something within us that's part of our totality that allows us to work in these vehicles with our causes on a current stage that knows how all these things work. And depending on who you ask, you'll get different answers. So interesting observation of this later to the unconscious is that it's well known in mental dowsing circles. Now, again, what we do in biogeometry is not mental dowsing. It's direct vibrational testing. It's a different thing. But in mental dowsing, which have also been around for many, many years, I'm a former keynote speaker at the annual national convention for the American Society of Dowsers multiple times. So I pretty much know what's going on in mental dowsing. And in mental dowsing, it's well understood that if you have an emotional investment in the answer you're trying to get through mental dowsing, there's a high probability you're going to influence the answer you get and it's not as dependable. Quantum physics would tell you that for sure. <laughs> but there's another aspect of this seen from this old Egyptian temple perspective, which is that if you ask the being at your emotional body level something that you've got a big investment in, like, I so love this person, do they love me back? Or, you know, I'm terrified of death, am I going to die soon? Or something like this. That's something that that being at the emotional plane level knows everything about the emotional body, but is highly reactive. The emotional body being is pretty reactive. But if, And if you get the answer from them, there's no telling what you're going to get. But if you ask the question to the being at, let's say, the spiritual or divine level, they are so far above the space-time caring about, is this person going to love you for a limited time or when you're going to die before the next incarnation or whatever, that they'll give you a very objective answer. So this, if you're brave enough to hear it, (laughs) yeah, yeah, if you're ready for it. So, so this is, there's a beautiful statement, I think relates directly to this discussion by uh, Dr. Samuel Sagan of the Clairvision School, where he said that your ability to see spiritually is governed by your ability to not react to what you see. Yes. I heard you say that in Danica Patrick's podcast, and I thought that's exactly what I've experienced. It takes a lot of what I call spiritual courage to really get answers to tough questions. It does. So, you know, this all then comes down. This is really what I founded Vesca on. How do we expand our consciousness and our energy 
the Shiva and Shakti within us to the highest possible extent? How do we make the most use of this very limited time opportunity of physical incarnation right now? And so, again, that's where it brings us then to expand our consciousness into things that are currently unconscious. Then, just like they have certain methods in ancient Egypt and other cultures to do this, one of the foundations that we have is mindfulness. And mindfulness starts with self-observation. So you find this, whether it's the mindfulness in Buddhism, or whether it's Gurdjieff's work on self-remembering and self-observation, it's all about simply becoming conscious of what's happening to you right now. What's the content of your thoughts? What's the content of your emotions? What's the content of your will forces and your actions? Not trying to excuse anything, but seeing it as objectively as if you're observing somebody other than yourself. And, and not making excuses for whatever is dysfunctional in our current state. Now, what's fascinating in the work of Steiner with this is that, of course, this mindfulness at the three Dantian, our thinking, our feeling, our willing, is going to expand our consciousness in things that are currently unconscious. He brings out that this also has an effect of structuring the subtle body in a way that's essential. Because we talked about the way that our consciousness in the head and our dynamic life forces in the abdomen are two opposite polarities. This burns up the life energy. It's a it's a death process, as Steiner talks about. But we get all this vital life force from the abdominal forces. Well, what holds the balance between the two is the heart. And so in the sacred geometry of the heart, we know from the Hamalian tradition that there's 12 lotus petals in the heart, really 12 vortices. But every one of those is governed with a particular quality, a particular part of our consciousness that we can expand into what is currently unconscious. So Steiner describes the way that when he gives out the most fundamental exercise for Rosicrucianism, which is called the six basic or the six essential exercises, he says of those 12 lotus petals of the heart, six of them we've developed in previous incarnations. The other six must be consciously developed right now. So each of the six exercises in the six fundamental exercises of the Rosicrucians is developing one of the six remaining lotus petals. And it's the, this is the very simple explanation. There's a lot more to it, but I go into great detail in the essential teachings and practices of spiritual science course, which is my introductory spiritual science course for people to expand consciousness that you have to observe completely neutrally and then direct your thinking, observe and then direct your feeling, observe and then direct your will forces and actions. You have to develop tremendous positivity in understanding every life event and also develop tremendous equanimity and openness to new information and seeing things from new perspectives. And then the sixth one is to harmonize all this together. When Steiner gave these indications, they were very brief. And in Essential Teachings and Practices course, I expanded much, much further to make it very useful for people. But if we do that, as we're expanding our conscious into these unconscious areas, starting with mindfulness, self-observation, and the direction then of our, our forces to their highest potential, what happens is that the heart gets online. The heart will become a fully active structure in the human energy body and will create a center for the entire movement of all consciousness and energy inside the body. And until we develop the heart as that organizing center, we don't have an organizing center. And so this is something that, you know, I make a very major part of my first course in spiritual science. And I think it's, you know, shows the way that we create exercises as a practical way to expand 
our consciousness into the unconscious levels and our our lives improve dramatically based on that. Yeah, and you for those that aren't aware, you have an amazing series on sacred geometry on Gaia TV and you give meditations for each of the stages along the way for your teachings in that series. And I think, you know, there's a a free introduction to Robert's excellent teachings so you realize with even just a free visit to Gaia that what his courses are about is actually really very real and and it's not a bunch of foo-foo. There's practical exercises and development. So I just wanted to point that out because I forgot to mention about your series. I love that series. I love how beautifully uh, illustrated it was graphically. It really allowed, I think, people to take concepts that are often hard to understand and, and see them through visual imagery, which was fantastic. Wonderful. Thank you. This is an important one. I think this is why it's a good one to end on. How can becoming more conscious, like it's obvious that it's important to become more conscious to contribute to world harmony and to the awakening at this time. So I'd like to hear your thoughts on what it is that any one of us can do. I mean, we've talked about mindfulness. We've talked about a lot of different therapeutic approaches. But if you imagine right now, we're talking to a lot of people that have never done any of these things. They might not have meditated. They don't, they've never practiced Tai Chi, Qigong, and yoga. And then what are the ramifications of staying unconscious? And, and you know, you get a lot to say about the dangers of staying unconscious. And I'll give you one quote for everybody. I've said it before, but it can't be heard enough. Until you meet your unconscious on the inside, it will continue to meet you on the outside in the event, in the events of your life and you will call it fate. Now you can take that and expand that to the world population and say, as long as we collectively remain unconscious, then the events of our lives will meet us on the outside and we will call it fate. And look at all this Armageddon prophecy going around from all sorts of sectors right now. To me, that's just remaining unconscious and looking for a, a, a good way to categorize fate because you're unconscious of the fact that you can actually use your own intention to change the outcome. We're all contributing to the outcome. So if you could share what you feel with your life experience and your depth of knowledge, what do you think we can all do right now to become more conscious? How important that is that to the outcome of the events of the world? And what's the cost of not doing it? So one of the first things here is that we need to be aware that every time we incarnate, we're taking care of two counterbalanced things at the same time. One is our own personal development to get to where we're happier, more joyful, more advanced, more capable, getting out of the pain and suffering that's unnecessary. And the other part of it is the service we provide to other people. These two things are always counterbalanced, the self and the other. So as we, we work on this, both aspects are directly connected to how unconscious or conscious we are. So the Buddhists have a beautiful way of expressing it when they say that, you know, you can either take skillful action or you can take unskillful action. Now, you will develop an either path, but the unskillful action where you're just a reactive machine reacting to all kinds of things and have no control over your thoughts, your feelings, or your actions, you're going to learn through the school of hard knocks. 
that will not only make you suffer unnecessarily, you're going to make all kinds of people around you suffer through your unskillful action. And on top of that, you're taking away the possibility of lessening other people's suffering by choosing skillful action. So there's both the positive and the negative part of it. You're actively going to be harming people around you. And on top of that, you're not giving the benefit of the things that you could be helping with if you're chosen the other path. So on the skillful action path, which is based on mindfulness and on removing our consciousness to deeper into our unconscious, so it's we keep expanding the state of our awareness. Now, the skillful action path, not only are we getting out of suffering much more quickly and effectively, because everything comes down to the basic neuro-linguistic programming idea that we will seek pleasure and we will avoid pain. But what's changeable here is that it's up to you to choose what you associate pain and pleasure with. We're programmed in an unconscious way to what we associate pain and pleasure with, which is why someone who's a heroin addict keeps being a heroin addict because they associate pleasure with it. But I associate pain with that, so I have no attraction to it whatsoever. And so going from the unskillful to skillful means is changing your pain-pleasure associations so the things that are going to be bad in the long run are associated with pain, and the things that will be beneficial we associate pleasure with, even though they might be hard work. So this basic fundamental understanding of human development brings us into the whole thing about the cost of staying unconscious. Not only will you suffer, you'll make everyone around you suffer. And the benefit of becoming conscious is not only will you get out of suffering more effectively and become the person you're meant to be, which will be a much more enjoyable life, but you'll help the people around you with this as well. Because we have to be aware, again, with memento mori, you have a very limited time here. This time is going to end. There's certain things you need to be in physical incarnation to do and to accomplish. Use your time here wisely. Don't just fritter the time away. Because when you cross the gate of death, one of the first experiences you're going to have is what Steiner refers to at a certain point of the journey is meeting the lesser and greater guardian of the threshold. And what that's going to mean is you're going to perceive the effect that your life had not only on you, the choices you made, how conscious you were, had on you, but the effect on everyone else. But now you're going to experience that effect on everyone else from the way they experienced it. You'll be inside of them, experiencing exactly how you made them feel. This is a hell-like experience for people who are choosing the unskillful path and are not choosing to become more conscious, who are staying unconscious. It's a it's a long, drawn-out astral experience that's extremely unpleasant as you feel how everyone around you suffered for all the years of your existence based on how screwed up you were. But it could be a highly pleasurable experience if you were actually a blessing and a boon to everyone around you. And be aware that in that out-of-body state after death, it's like you're in an amplifier of everything related to mind, emotions, etc. Because there's no physical body to damp it down anymore. You're, you're affected by this in a way that's hard for people to conceive who haven't done a lot of psychotropics. Yeah. Of being completely <laughs> naked in this realm, right? Yes, that's exactly right, what you just said. That's, that's your preparation right there. Die that's before right. you die, boys and girls. Die exactly. first. So, so be aware that this has a huge impact on your own life and on other people's lives. And again, we all seek pleasure and avoid pain. 
So this is the most fundamental thing in the world. Constantly work with mindfulness to expand your consciousness and you'll get the life that you want and you'll help to give other people the life that they want. And over time, this is going to create a magnificent outcome compared to all the people who are choosing not to exert the effort to become consciousness and all the damage we can see them causing in the world right now and to themselves. And I'll include myself in that. I still have parts of myself I better wake up and be more conscious on as well. It's never me versus them. It's all of us, and we constantly work with us. Yeah, we're all an an infinite process. I mean, most people can't conceive of the journey back to source, how, you know, how many, you know, think of each dimension as a whole new experience. I mean, it's a long ways. I mean, the astral realm itself is massive, and many people I've studied say it's far, 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 far bigger than the universe that we think we know. My father's house has many mansions, absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, I guess in a nutshell, what you're saying is now is the time to really invest some time into something as simple but as real as mindfulness practice. There's a lot of great mindfulness teachers out there. John Kabat-Zinn, probably the most famous of them. Thich Nhat Hanh. Uh, I love Thich Nhat Hanh's stuff. It's sad that he's passed away, but he's proof of your, <laughs> this too shall pass. We shoot, we will pass. But what a great teacher he was and a great example. I think we're at a point where we really need, you know, Steiner talks about the, the birth of the awareness soul and the way you birth the awareness soul is you ask yourself the question, is it really true? No matter what it is. You ask, is it really true? Is it really true that uh, the best person to go see is a doctor? Is it really true you should believe everything your government tells you? Is it really true that uh, money will make you happy? Is it really true that sex will make you happy? I mean, because if we don't start asking, is it really true, then we don't ever see what's in our unconscious. When you ask, is it really true, you have to now challenge everything that you were taught and now brought into the realm of automatic response without thinking about it. You don't need to worry about, is it really true that I need to, I, I know how to tie my shoe because that's not going to have a big impact on your life. But your beliefs about God, about love, about sex, about relationships, about money, about power, uh, how you get attention. I mean, these things are all really worth asking. Is it really true? So mindfulness and asking, is it really true? And then I will, throw one of my favorites which is you know a tough one what would love do now i'm in this situation i'm angry at somebody i'm pissed off at my wife or my husband or whatever um or i'm about to lose my job i'm scared to death what would love do now Uh, i mean i think you can get a lot of mileage by really answering that question honestly and acting in accordance with it it's a practice for me and i have to work at it i got a warrior in me and a dragon in me that i gotta be careful with because i'm you know i grew up in a battlefield you you know when i was a young man you wanted to throw down i'm like let's go let's get it on baby but that's you know that's not how you grow spiritually that's just how you uh encapsulate yourself in a physical body for a lot longer. But anyhow, Robert, what a phenomenal time with you. I sure love and appreciate you, Robert Gilbert, man. You're a 
you're a great example for all of us. And, and I'm, uh, just grateful. Why don't you tell everybody, um, give a recap on the courses that you think would be best for people listening and, uh, give us the web address. And I don't know if there's, I can't remember if there's a discount code for podcast listeners or what I'm sure we'll have it all in the show notes either way, but what would you like to share in that regard? Great. Thank you so much. And I feel the same way, Paul. I always enjoy my time with you. It's great thank to you. be able to explore all these things together. Thanks for having me back again. It's Pleasure. great. So my website is www.bessica.org and Bessica is spelled B as in Victor, E-S-I-C-A dot O-R-G. And uh, the question about the courses to begin with, if you're interested in the biogeometry courses uh, that I teach under licensing from Dr. Kareem, an online training, then you'll find that on my website, starts with the foundation training. Then there's another one called the advanced training. And if you get the advance done before, we think currently it's going to be September 2024, you'd be eligible to come to the live event with Dr. Kareem, which is a very rare opportunity. So I highly suggest that. For sure. Then I have on the spiritual science track to develop energy and consciousness. The first course to begin with is called Essential Teachings and Practices of Spiritual Science. That has the six fundamental exercises of the Rosicrucians and a lot of other observations that are the absolute foundation of types of spiritual development that are very practical and that will make a change in your life very quickly. Then on the vibrational science side, what I refer to as the SEER program, Subtle Energy Explorations and Research, then we have, in addition to the biogeometry work, I've created courses on the French research in the early 1900s. If you want to know the foundation of what the French called medical radiesthesia, where you can test all the subtle energies that are present in a person's body and test things that are strengthening or weakening to them in a way that goes beyond what's possible with educational kinesiology and goes into all types of amazing testing and balancing work based on the French medical doctor's work of the early 1900s, which has been almost forgotten in a, in a completely energetic method of detecting these invisible energetic interactions. That's called the personal wavelength course. And then if you want to understand about all of the invisible energies around us and how they create this invisible energy matrix, that's called the Universal Vibrational Spectrum course. And that's also available online on my site. There's lots of other stuff there, too. Again, early 2024, I'll be putting up the New Year's Resource Guide with more information on the microcurrent. I've got links already for the cymatics and the cymotherapy, things of that kind. So please do come to the site and check it out. Thank you. Awesome, Robert. I'll just close real quick and say thank you to all of you for joining us today. If you've listened this far, I know you are definitely part of the change because you can't listen to Robert Gilbert without having some positive effects. So uh, thank you to my sponsors for your love and support and all the amazing products you do and your uh, regenerative practices beyond sustainable. And thanks to each of you for anything you buy from the sponsors that supports the podcast and helps me uh, have the ability to do the research and find people and do all the things we do to make great podcasts and lots of love to all of you. I hope you guys see that the transition we're going through in the world is really no different than an illness that's going to teach us how to be more free, how to be more loving, more empathetic, more compassionate. And in order to get there, we got to work on it together. So now's our chance. Can't wait to share something again with you next week. See you then. Robert, have a great rest of your day, bud. Lots of love. Thanks so much, Paul. It's been great. Awesome.
Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Dr. Robert Gilbert. Visit the Visica Institute online at visica.org where you can learn more about their study programs. As Dr. Gilbert mentioned, you can get $75 off two of his most popular online courses. Use the promo code PAUL75, that's P-A-U-L, all uppercase, 75. When you register for the Essential Teachings and Practices of Spiritual Science course or the Personal Wavelength course, you can learn more about both courses and all the other courses produced by Dr. Gilbert at visica.org or email info at visica.org. That's info at v-e-s-i-c-a dot org catch up with paul on instagram tiktok and threads at paul.check on x at paulcheck or on his youtube podcast channel youtube.com forward slash living 4d with paul check you can watch more on paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com or visit the check institute site at checkinstitute.com to find paul's e-learning courses advanced training programs and to learn more about the check academy You can read the show notes and find links to all the resources mentioned in this episode at checkinstitute.com forward slash podcast. This podcast would not be possible without the support of our premier sponsors, Bioptimizers, Organifi and Paleo Valley, and our podcast sponsor, Wild Pastures. Please show your appreciation by taking advantage of their special discounts for our listeners. The links are in the show notes. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a warm review on the podcast platform of your choice. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. Holy Toledo. (laughs) Okay, we have a few minutes, so I'm going to read Grandma Chandra's message to us for today. This year of the dragon which begins today, February 10th, 2024, is the time when everything starts flying on dragon wings. (laughs) Yep, the dragons are here. (laughs) (laughs) Everything will start rising up. The spring will spring. The energies will rise. The feeling of ascension will be everywhere and will be seen in everything. Everybody, even those who don't want to see, will know, will, will not be able to avoid this growth, this rise of energies around them, and the ascension that will be happening all around. It is like the fueling glorified winds of sunshine, brightness, clearness, and cleanness in everything that is happening and will be happening on Gaia. It will be harder to stay in the shade because sunshine will be everywhere. There will be no shade to hide you. There will be no holes to dig. There will be no rocks to hide behind. Everything will be pretty well lit up. And these lights will support everything that is calling for the light, that is light, that is creating light. And it will totally eliminate everything that is not. Look inside of you 
for what else you need to leave behind. Look around you for what you do not need anymore in your life, in the physical, emotional, and mental world. Get rid of all the thoughts, of all the emotions that do not make you into a light being. Look around you look around you space wise, energy wise, and quantum field wise, and see what new presences, manifestations, signs, symbols, voices and languages that you will start seeing and receiving. What new groups beings and star energies will you have around you be aware be familiar be joyful be grateful and be a part of this hugs and love to all of you grandma chandra i think that's good that's good for the first part of our show today so we will take a little break right now and then we'll be back with music uh, of the spheres and a look at astrology situations uh, with our brother Richard and Tanya Gabrielle etc so we'll see you in a little while namaste everyone thank you thank you thank you Dr. Gilbert <laughs> namaste for now everyone that's the talking to you Richard Okay, thank you very much. Okay, it's uh, February 10th. Uh, we're going to be looking at the new moon, which was 5 p.m. yesterday, Eastern time zone. 5 p.m. right before sundown. So, the uh, concentration of the planets in the narrow arc is reduced to 118 degrees. That's with uh, Uranus at 20 degrees of Taurus on one side and Venus at uh, 22 degrees of Capricorn on another side. So starting with Venus and going uh, counterclockwise, so to speak. you got Venus conjunct Mars in late Capricorn with Pluto at one degree Aquarius. Mercury is at eight degrees Aquarius. The new moon was at 21. It's where the sun is, and now today the moon's in Pisces and uh, conjunct Saturn at eight degrees Pisces. And you got Neptune up there at the end of end of Neptune. It's now at twenty seven. You got Chiron is at seventeen Aries. And Jupiter's at nine Taurus and Uranus is at twenty Taurus. So what you got here when you think about it. You've got Sun, Moon, Mercury, and Pluto in Aquarius. And then you've got 
Uranus, Jupiter, Neptune, Saturn, Venus and Mars, and Earth and water. And when you look at, when you take Capricorn, Aquarius, and Pisces together, the 10th, 11th, and 12th houses. These are these are the houses that generally refer to planetary conditions. Saturn ruling Capricorn is the physical Earth, the land, and the underland. Then you got Aquarius ruled by Uranus, which is the the atmosphere and the uh, the zone where life happens, human life, animal life, plant life, all that life life stuff happens in the atmosphere, which is ruled by Uranus and Aquarius. Then you got Pisces, and that's the ocean and the ocean life and all that stuff. And the three together they they run the they run the environment of the planet. Mm-hmm. Right? So with, with Neptune in Pisces, you especially at the end of Pisces you get a, you're getting strong ocean related weather influences and Saturn and Pisces there uh, works with Earth Capricorn okay so we got water dumping on the land okay and then and then you've got all the the social human kingdom okay that's that's aquarius and that's uh relationships and mental stuff and and all all the crap that humans do so that's our situation all right so i'm done with that part and let's go listen to kaipacha now okay here we go. Kaipacha with the weekly Pele report. It's a little cloudy out here on Chapman's Peak. Astrology for the Soul, February 7th, 2024. This is Hout Bay. Oh, yeah. The moon is definitely waning, waning, waning. I don't know if you've seen her, but, yep. She's in Capricorn now. Tomorrow, Thursday, she is going to go into Aquarius. 
and we are going to have a new moon. This is a powerful, intense new moon because what? Because why? Look at these. Look at these amazing. There is like every color of the rainbow in these buds. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Square Uranus. New moon square Uranus. It's at 20 degrees, 41 minutes of Aquarius. And Uranus is down there at 19 degrees of Taurus. So we are getting a surprise. Oh, yeah. There's never a dull moment these days. There's a lot going on that I want to talk to you about. We just had that Mercury conjunct Pluto. I'm sure you felt that one. And if you thought you, if you didn't feel that one, you will be feeling Mars enters Aquarius on Monday and conjuncts Pluto on Tuesday. And then Venus comes along to conjunct Pluto on February 17th. We're having Mercury, then Mars, then Venus. Very powerful Plutonian underworld conjunctions. I will be talking to you about that. The Venus is trying Uranus today. Today. Nice day for a hike. Who knows what I'll find up here. Sun squares Uranus tomorrow. Moon moves into Pisces on Saturday. Hits uh, uh, Saturn on Sunday. She comes up to uh, conjunct with Neptune. And then by Monday, she goes into Aries. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to find a nice spot. I, it would be nice if I could have that for the background. But we are going to get into a place where there's what? No wind. <laughs> we'll see about that. But I'd like to get up to the top of there, maybe give you a shot of what's on the other side. All right, this could be a short Pele report because I'm about to slide down the freaking mountain. <gasps> I've set up three different times. It's windy all over the place. Blah, 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 quack, quack. Oh, my goodness. Life is so hard these days. This is nut Hook Beach. Check it out. And that is going all the way down... To the point, it is amazing up here. You got to stay to the end of the report there because I did a I did a 180 from the top of Chapman Peak, which is like way higher than the introduction and higher than this. I had to come down because it was too windy up on the peak. But let's talk about some astrology while we're at it. <laughs> Oh, boy, uh, these can be some challenging times. I wanted to just give you a little bit of a backdrop, a backdrop. Um, because what's happening now is not just what's happening now. It is we want to have a context. And the context for this is two things. Uh, I, I think that, number one, we want to look at Saturn. Uh, Saturn is now at seven degrees of Pisces. And it entered Pisces last March. And it went all the way up to seven degrees in June. Then it turned retrograde and went all the way back to zero degrees by September. No, I think it may be uh, even October. 
And now it's coming back for the third pass. So there's this threefold pass of Saturn in Pisces. And so a lot of us are getting, you know, what really came up last June. Last June, Saturn was in the same place that it is right now. And you want to really look at what was going on last June. Any choices, decisions, changes, contracts, commitments, breakups, new people. You know, I mean, now is kind of like the results, okay, of what has been going on for you. It, you've you know made changes over this last year, and now Saturn is going to go forward again into new territory, new degrees. It's going to go all the way up to 19 degrees, okay, by this June. So we are, you know, anything from 7 to 19 degrees, it's new, 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 new territory. And and Saturn in Pisces is really bringing us some challenges uh, because, you know, it has to do with, like, really... Um, two things, either making the dream reality, the Piscean dream either comes into reality or we see that it is an illusion. We see that it is a dream. We see that it is not meant for third dimensional manifestation and we need to let it go. And this is what is coming up now, I think, for so many people is this really, uh, and we'll see it with the Sabian symbol, this a lot of disillusionment because you know there are some things that you know we can really pull off we can really you know with our willpower and with our ego and with our desire we can make a lot of things happen but when it deals with uranus pluto neptune even chiron these unconscious soul uh, represent, you know, representatives of our higher spiritual nature. Our little ego willpower and our little desires really come secondary. And that's where we become students. We become humbled and we learn. So Saturn moving through Pisces is really humbling. Uh, it's humbling humanity. It's humbling people. It's uh, it's really showing us, uh, you know, how much peach fuzz we are on the planet of Gaia and how Gaia has her own evolutionary path. And we're hitchhikers and not quite as, uh, you know, big deals as we might sometimes think, wish, hope, want. And why am I saying this now? I'm saying this now because we have this new moon square Uranus and Uranus is the great waker upper. (laughs) It's the great liberator, but it is the alarm clock and it is a big dose of sudden shocking reality that says, okay, you know, no more sleepwalking, uh, no more daydreaming, uh, you know, electric taser, shock, shock, sometimes traumatic, but like wake yourself up. You are, you know, you are living in a fantasy land. 
And this has been happening, you know, uh, for the series of new moons. You know, they've all been aspecting Uranus, but this one is a square, third quarter square. And that third quarter square has a lot of consciousness with it. Next, we just had Mercury descend down into Pluto. And now we're having Mars descend down into Pluto. This is a movement down into the underworld. And that underworld requires letting go. Letting go of illusions, maybe letting go of attachments, letting go of desires, letting go of what we thought was true or who we thought we were or where we thought we were going, particularly with Mars. Mars is my path, my action, my direction, where I think I'm going. And now it's coming around to Pluto. And this Pluto, you know, it's going into Aquarius. So, you know, we're going to have Sun, Moon, Mercury, Mars, and Pluto in Aquarius. And then Venus is going to come up. Woo! <laughs> it is going to be really beautiful. This, this is, I, I have to say, there is a little bit of a preparation. We don't want to get too, you know, too down about everything because there's going to be a beautiful Venus-Mars conjunction traveling right along through Aquarius, which is going to, you know, it's like we let go of the old and it is replaced with a new, but there is that hanging in between into the void over the threshold into a new room. Like, you know, you like you move into a new house. You don't really know what it's going to be like. You move into a new relationship. You don't really know what it's going to be like. You, you, you move into a new country. You don't really know what it's going to be like. But there's that transit. So it's this transitional point where we have to let go of the known, the familiar, the secure, and live in complete trust of Gaia, of ourselves, of our souls being connected to the law of one, the tapestry of life. And that when we let go of, you know, this reality, a new reality will present itself. That is an upgrade. And, and you know, it's, it's really challenging. It can be really challenging to let go of places People, things, animals, friends, jobs that we have loved. So it can be a very, you know, it's it's very, it can be heartbreaking, but it can be heart opening. I'm going to try to find a little picture of Momo. Uh, it's my daughter's dog, Momo, that she's had for a few years now. And uh, she's apparently eaten some rat poison and is bleeding and they don't know if she's going to make it and you know you just have this love especially for dogs i mean dogs that they have such unconditional love for us and they're so innocent 
and helpless. And, you know, plants and animals are like that. You know, dogs and cats, we can just do so much love. And there's so many things in the world that we can't control. There's so many wars and so much suffering and pain and things that, you know, are getting taken away from us. So if you can, you know, send loving energy, send prayers, send meditations to Momo. They said they're supposed to know in the next 24 hours if she's going to make it or not. And just feeling into the grief of the loss. We're, we are human beings. And, you know, this Pluto, Mars, you know, this Saturn moving into Pisces, through Pisces, it's really showing us our vulnerabilities. It's like, you know, this humbling is also that, yeah, we can really be hurt. And it's not always sweet and dreams and, you know, walks through gardens. Life can be pretty difficult. It's really something I've met a lot of people since I've been here. And there are so many people that are going through some of the hardest times of their life. And then there are other people that are realizing their dreams and things are opening up. And it's the diversity of experiences that we are having these days is really phenomenal. And this, this is Uranus. Uranus is the planet of extremes. It's really, it's really, you know, bringing up. Yeah. Our differences. And, and that the differences are what? Well, Uranus is bringing up the truth. Are we in alignment with truth? Are we aware of truth? Are we aware of and willing and wanting to follow the truth despite all problems, issues? This is what our Sabian symbol has to do with today resiliency. The key word is are we resilient? You know, when the wind blows us, you know, off the mountain or we get slapped in the face or our, you know, our dog passes or our, you know, love, you know, fumbles. Are, are we resilient? Will we bounce back? Will we come back? And this is where our courage and our faith and our hope pulls us through challenging times and helps us to keep seeking for the truth. That's what Uranus wants. That's what Aquarius wants. That's what this new moon is about. Nothing matters but Finding the truth, seeing the truth, realizing the truth, living the truth, being the truth. Aquarius and Uranus, it's just truth, 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 truth. (laughs) Whoosh. So the new moon happening, setting the tone for this month. Are you ready? Ikes. It is a disappointed and disillusioned woman courageously faces a seemingly empty life. The keynote is the capacity to meet 
emotionally upsetting experiences in human relationships with strength of character and personal integrity. The man who manages vast and complex business enterprises most often reaches power and achieves success because of his ability to deal with crisis and temporary reverses of fortune. At the emotional level, we now see a woman confronted with sharp disappointment and forced to face the vanishing of cherished illusions, presumably in terms of a close personal relationship. She has to learn to manage such crises, which are really tests of inner strength and personal compassion. We all have within ourselves the power to learn through emotional crisis. But like any other faculty, it needs development. This symbol urges us to develop resilience under adversity. There's a whole lot to this Sabian symbol. There's a whole lot to this new moon. There's a whole lot to, like I said, this Saturn moving through Pisces. This compassion. This opening of the heart. You know, this is what can bring people together. Compassion through crisis, through challenge, through adversity. This helps us to strengthen our will, to strengthen our resolve. These tests of our character. So this week, you know, Mars is coming up to Pluto. You know, it, it can be a very powerfully challenging person, condition, relationship. I know I'm jumping on a plane tomorrow just in time for Mars conjunct Pluto. It's a, it is, a you know, the Kundalini. It is, you know, our root chakra, Pluto, coming up through Mars. Mars is associated with the solar plexus. Okay? And this is just like, it's time to power through. It's time for us to maybe be tested by spirit. Are we strong? Are we resilient? Will we bounce back? How bad do we want this life? How bad, how much do we love ourselves, feel worthy, so that we don't give up on ourselves, we don't lose faith in ourselves, that we can pull ourselves through adversity, that spirit is with us. So, yeah, I, I was I was really thinking, I was really contemplating, you know, my future. I'm thinking of making some changes in my life, maybe even having to do with the Pele report <laughs> and the frequency. 
because, you know, yeah, there's just a lot on our plates right now. I feel it, and I have a lot on my plate. I know you have a lot on your plate. This is a time where we are all getting initiated, and we've all got a lot on our plate. And it's time. You know, it's time to choose. It's time to pick. This has to go. That has to go. Maybe I'm overcommitted. Maybe I'm, I've overspent. Maybe I'm overstretching. I'm overextending myself. You know, this Pluto Mars, Pluto Mercury, Pluto Venus, it's, it's, it's time. You know, you can either give it up or it can get taken away. Uh, you know, you know, your health, your money, your love, uh, you know, your pet, I, anything. Anything can happen. And so it's really time to focus. You know, this, this Uranian, Uranian energy, this Plutonian energy is like we need to focus on why we are here. Why were we born? What is your deepest soul intention? This is what you want to put your time, your energy, your attention, your money, your, you've got to, and then you have to trust that if something leaves your life, it was not a part of that intention. So, you know, I know I have, I've really struggled you know, wanting to be free, uh, in my life. And I've, I've really, you know, taken steps and done a lot of things. And, and, and even understanding freedom, that is what, you know, this week's mantra is about today because Aquarius and Uranus is about liberation. It is about freedom. But here's the tricky thing. Just exactly what is freedom? You know, when we seek to define freedom, very often it's confused with license. I just have a license to do whatever it is I want to do. But, you know, I'm, I'm really, uh, uh, if we deepen our understanding through astrology of Uranus and Aquarius and what freedom and liberation is really, truly about. What we want to do is we want to open space and time in our future. Aquarius and Uranus rule the future. We want to open space and time for spirit to work with us, to work through us, for us to be spirit realized, to discover the truth, this is surrendering to freedom. So let's look at the mantra here. Let me see if I can remember it. <laughs> Good God. Freedom is not just doing. Whatever you want to do, but letting go of ego control so spirit can have her way with you. 
I want to encourage you this week, this month, with this new moon, free up your schedule. Free up your time. Free up your commitments. Make that commitment to spirit, to the divine, to self-realization. This is what Saturn and Neptune and Pisces are asking of us. This is what Mars Pluto is asking for us. It's almost like returning to source, returning to the one, returning to love and letting go of people, places, things, projects, ideas. You know, it's just like letting go. Like a rocket soaring into space lets go of its fuselage. Right? We we have set a direction and we are going to go... And now we're kind of out in space and we need to just like release... And in that release, there is trust. We're letting go of illusions. We're we're letting go of fantasies. We're letting go of distractions. We're letting go of preoccupations. And we're getting honed. We're you know we're getting tumbled in the gem rock tumbler of life to shine us and to turn us into the beautiful, beautiful diamonds, gems, and pearls that we are. We're going to come out of this shining, but it's going to take a little tumbling. So hang in there as we, you know, really deal with uh, just about anything can come up this week and this month. Uranus is sudden, unpredictable events. Mars Pluto can be, you know, violent, uh, death, destruction, removal. I, I mean, there is it, this this can be a very intense week and a very intense month. And besides a lot of intensity, there can also be a tremendous amount of clarity and a tremendous amount of advancement and a tremendous amount of, you know, really seeing the way, the truth and the light. Freedom is not just doing whatever you want to do. But letting go of ego control so spirit can have her way with you. May spirit have her way with you. And may you feel into, enjoy, smile and embrace what spirit has in store for you. Without resisting, getting angry, holding on to what needs to go too long and feeling ripped off or lost. No, 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 no. Just surrender.
Namaste. Aloha. So much love. Talking to you, okay, okay, real quickly here. Quickly, quickly, double quick time. Thursday, the 15th, is when Venus Pluto Mars. That that maximum maximum combination of energies takes effect. effect. At the same time, it's going to be trine moon conjunct Uranus. So Thursday Thursday and Friday uh, could be very... There could be unexpectedness, you know. It's a Uranus thing. If you're going to have moon, you're going to have moon conjunct Uranus, and you're going to have Venus at 30 Capricorn, Pluto at one, and Mars at three Aquarius. And so that they're going to be uh, loosely square Jupiter. It's going to start the square to Jupiter. Jupiter's at 9, 9 or 10 Taurus. So you got that going on. So the latter part of the week is going to be actually the whole week because if the moon's in, uh, moon's in Pisces conjunct Saturn tonight. All right. So in a day and a half, it's going to conjunct Neptune. In another day and a bit, it's going to conjunct Chiron and Aries in the North Node. And then when you get to Wednesday, the moon's going to be conjunct Jupiter and then Uranus up there in Taurus. Meanwhile, uh, Venus and moving fast, Pluto moving, well, Mercury moving fast, and Mars will be at, at three Aquarius, so a tricky week in the world of humanity. Mm-hmm. So that's it for right now. Okay, so you got, you got Tanya ready to go. Yes, here we go. Gabrielle Wealth Astrologist, welcome to Star Codes. This is the podcast where we look at an upcoming event in the stars and numbers, the astrology and numerology to help us move through the energy for our highest good. And 
Today, we're going to look at a very important lunation, the new moon in Aquarius. And the reason this new moon is so important is we're pretty much moving rapidly into the Aquarian age, which is over 2,000 years. So anything in Aquarius makes a big difference, points us in the right direction. Also, because Pluto recently moved into Aquarius after 248 years, and yes, Pluto will dip out for a couple months in the autumn in September, October, and mid-November. However, it's really a big deal, this move into Aquarius, because it happened with the sun. Pluto and the sun both moved into Aquarius on January 20th at zero degrees. So Aquarius is in the news, and that means the Aquarius new moon is taking on extra importance. The other reason is Uranus, the ruler of Aquarius, creates a square to the sun and moon, and that is a tense aspect. It activates us. It's almost exact, too. So this makes it even more Aquarian. And Aquarius is all about liberation, and we're really being helped with the liberating qualities at this time because the sun and moon are at 20 degrees. In fact, this is the fourth consecutive new moon with the sun and moon at 20 degrees, giving us 2020 vision. That means we're seeing more than ever. We're being given a five-month period from November all the way through March where our eyes are being opened with these consecutive new moons at 20 degrees. And in Aquarius, that opening up of seeing the truth is leading to liberation. So let's start with the fact that Aquarius does celebrate the future. It celebrates, in a way, a new lease on life because it focuses ahead. It doesn't look back. And since this is a new moon, which new moons are about new beginnings, the sense of how you perceive areas of your life are going to be new. They're going to be fresh, like you're being given a fresh start, like something's being let go of, something's being, you know, some of the the things that no longer are necessary in your life to focus on or spend time on are naturally falling away at this time. And you may be feeling that. This can range from literally, because Pluto just moved into Aquarius, Pluto governs life, death, rebirth. This can literally mean the end of something or all the way to, oh my gosh, I have a new perspective on this and I'm definitely not going to look at this topic or this person the same way I did before. How wonderful because it's freeing me up. So the range is just limitless, just like Aquarius is limitless. And Aquarius governs the higher mind. So it is connected to intuition. It governs the 11th house in astrology. We have 12 houses for the 12 signs. And the 11th house is aligned with the numerology number 11. So 11 is the two antenna that are constantly in touch with the divine, with source, divine inspiration, intuition. So Aquarius is a hugely intuitive sign, and that's why it also governs inventors and explorers and adventure, taking a risk, moving outside of what's considered politically correct, 
thinking outside the box, really being liberated from the fear of belonging or the fear of expectation and throwing it all to the wind and just listening to source. So very exciting in so many ways. And I want to also point out, since we're talking about 11, 11 reduces to two. And the 20 degrees for this new moon, for the sun and moon, also reduces to two. So the topic of relationships is coming up. Two is about two people, you and another. It can also mean you in relation to your inner voice, listening. It is, though, also the second month. So, and what do we celebrate in February? Valentine's Day, right? There's a reason. Numerologically, the two is about two people. So because of this code, Aquarius is connected to 11, the 11th house, the 2020 new moon, 20 degrees, the number two, and the fact, and now I'm going to bring up the other part of the code, that the 9th of February means that there is love in the air. Nine is one of the two love numbers. Six is the other love number. And so there is a sense of focusing on this topic, unconditional love, compassion, romantic love. It's all covered, but it it means hugging and touching and, you know, feeling literally connected in a very intimate, beautiful way and sharing that love with absolute um, feeling so liberated to just go and hug, like if you feel the urge to just do it, right? And the date, and let me go to the also the time of the new moon because I forgot to do that. I'm so excited about it. So um, the new moon actually takes place on February 9th, and it's at 10.57 p.m. Universal Time, London, and that would be 5.57 p.m. Eastern Time, New York, and 2.57 p.m. Pacific Time, L.A. And again, we have a exciting moment here because the date of 2-9-2024 adds up to 19. 19 is one and nine, beginnings and endings. It's a turning point, in other words. And this is a moment of a turning point. You may be feeling a turning point in some regards in your life this month. And 19 is also the Prince of Heaven number. That's what the ancients called it. The ancient Chaldean priests called 19 the sun, the Prince of Heaven. And 19 reduces to 10, which is instant manifestation, love and light. And 1, 1 plus 0 for 10 is 1. So the root number for 19 is 1. New beginnings. There's so much new beginnings energy and purging energy at the same time, like letting go energy, which is Pluto, which is the number 9. So yeah, this is about releasing and renewing, basically. And supporting that is Uranus is square to the sun and moon. Uranus, the ruler of Aquarius, the ruler of this new moon. Uranus invites us to really seek to be free. And that means we may, with a square, which is very activating, be impulsive. So just really take a lot of breaths this month really focus on getting grounded so that the freedom that you seek is acquired from inspiration and the right timing and not out of a sheer will of, I want to jump out of this situation now. It's really about trusting your instincts when it comes to how you address 
wanting to extricate yourself from from a situation. So rely on your intuition at all times to gauge these shifts with a lot of clarity. And then we also have Mercury square Jupiter. And so Mercury is the lower mind. Jupiter is expansion and abundance and taking in the whole big vision. And so writing your ideas down because you will be able to see beyond just the minutia and see the, you'll be very magnanimous. You'll be very grateful. And that gratitude will help you make amends. It'll help you to just really smooth out the rough corners, which is a beautiful thing. Venus is trying to yearn as, as well. And this is exciting because there's going to be a lot of new explorations, uh, artistically, creatively, new options you can explore. You can experiment with a lot of pleasure. That's what Venus brings. You can get a perspective by magnifying Magnifying your thoughts on abundance, magnifying your thoughts on love, Venus, right? This is right around Valentine's Day. And there's a lot going on this month that also focuses on love. It's really a moment to focus on romance. And this is also helped by Mars sextile Neptune, also during this beautiful new moon. So romantic, so sensual. You just have this strong drive to go into your intuition, your imagination, and Allow yourself to express yourself with beauty and love and creativity and passion all at once, which is really thrilling. And Jupiter sextile Saturn as well. Very exciting for business and uh, moving through any fears of resistance and really benefiting from growth and being involved in expansion and, and using that for your career, like being able to expand, focusing on abundance. So, and then one more thing I want to mention, if you're watching this up until the 5th or 6th of February, this video, I mean, on the 5th, we have a very exciting event. We have Mercury conjunct Pluto, and it'll be the first time that Mercury will conjunct Pluto since Pluto moved into Aquarius. Why is this important? Because Pluto has been in Capricorn, and Mercury and Pluto were part of the stellium in Capricorn on January 12th, 2020, that was the 500 year event. And that literally started the decade, but also started the major shift because we all know what happened after that. So when these two planets are now coming together in the next sign, Aquarius, Mercury and Pluto conjunction in Aquarius at zero degrees, it does indicate that we've moved beyond that first initial period of the decade and are now embarking on the next big moment. So it's moved us out of the earth sign of Capricorn, the top-down structures, the past, right? The more patriarchal impact into the how do we, where do we go from here? How does our future look? Let's really look at the what we want, not what we're getting rid of, because we already know now what we're eliminating, what's no longer useful. Now we're like, okay, what are the solutions? Where are we heading? This is our first inkling of that with Mercury conjunct Pluto. And even if you watch this video after that date, you are still going to benefit, of course, because this will continue on. And it's very, very exciting because it's at zero degrees Aquarius. Now, astrology is ruled by Aquarius as well, both astrology and numerology. And these ancient systems are just truth in motion, 
truth in motion. They are maps of each of us individually and our whole life is like a book of life that you can read through numerology and astrology. And it's also truth in motion for the collective as we are doing now, looking at the Aquarius new moon. So astronomy tells us where the planets and stars are and astrology then evolves our consciousness by looking at the impact, the effect of those planetary positions and what impact they have on you, on your consciousness. And now moving forward, this is the Aquarian message, is everything keeps moving. It keeps moving and it's moving more rapidly now than ever. More rapidly, and I'm sure you're feeling that, the quickening of the pace. So letting go, the Pluto message, is one of the major keys here. The 9th of February message, one of the major keys is letting go so that you can keep moving. Whatever you're carrying that is has completed itself can be let go of, dropped. And it's easier now than ever to do. So as you move through a challenging experience, just know that the only state that you naturally are is love. The pain is a temporary human state that you may feel from time to time, but it is not your natural state. So we only offer love in every moment and know that all is good, all is well, that goodness always prevails even when we're not seeing it at certain times. And when you just do that, then peace will become the major presence in your life. Peace. So it is an incredible moment. We live in incredible times. There's just a major shift in play. And the rapidity and the openness and the awareness is just growing exponentially. So through all these shifts, we always want to remember to breathe and stay grounded. And I want to support you with a free webinar that helps you with that. It's called How to Master Your Stars. And it literally goes into your stars. And you can watch it instant access for free at spiritualmasteryclass.com. So we cover the secret to spiritual mastery and the important difference between individuality and uniqueness. And if there's any message that Aquarius represents, it is uniqueness and owning your uniqueness and not shying away from who you are at a core soul level, not diminishing it in any way to please, not to take down a certain part of how you feel a level, like take it down a level so that it doesn't offend. It really isn't about that. It is about using your intuition and always staying in that frequency of uniqueness. So we're going to look at the difference between individuality and uniqueness and also your natal sun and natal moon's profound impact on living a rich life, living an abundant and happy life, how to instantly connect with spirit, many, many secrets, and also the true meaning of your rising sign. So all of that is revealed and basically it's helping you take your power back, which is what we are doing now and especially this year. 2024 is an eight universal year. That's all about empowerment and leadership and courage. 
So this free online webinar is going to really look at the truth of how to take your power back. And it's exciting and very important at these times so you don't feel overwhelmed or frustrated. So go and have a look at that free webinar at spiritualmasteryclass.com. And I will see you in next week's Star Codes podcast. Lots of love.
new teachings and occupations. Opals, organizations in general, civic organizations. Paradoxes. All right. Parliaments, you know, parliaments are like congresses. Photography. Poland. Progress. Psychology. Psychologists. Psychotherapy. Radio. And stuff related to radio. Technicians. Manufacturers. Rebellions, rebels, and rebelliousness. Reforms, reformers, and reformation. Research, Russia. Science in general and scientists, senates, and senators. Sociability. Social affairs, social functions, socialism, socialistic political movements, or society in general. Cooperative societies, you know, all that human movement around and talking to each other and trading and fighting and feuding and Oh, please. But also spirituality and spiritual occurrences. Oh, good goody. <laughs> <laughs> also, Sweden and Syria, telegraph, telegraphs and telephones and television and advanced thought. Turkey. The Asiatic side of Turkey. And one's wishes and x-rays, x-ray technicians and machines. So those are some of your key words and key ideas related to Aquarius. So, you know, and of course, ruled by Uranus. So... With with that quick review of Aquarius, I bid you adieu. <laughs> and yeah, I've got. I just took a quick look at the weather the weather report for my part of the country, and we're in for two days of rain. So it's the it's the it's the Middle East coast turn to get pounded by the rain god. <laughs> Well, you know, we got California. California got it last week, wasn't it? Oh yes, that's true. That's, that's true. true. It looks like I'm going to get it this week. And we got snow today. Well, higher elevation will do that to you. Uh, yes, sir. Okay, that's been then. quite a long time since we've seen any snow, though. Well, you know, if you if you if you can plan ahead a little bit, you can be prepared. True. All right. All right. The Boy Scout motto is still useful. <laughs> okay, donkey. <laughs> All right. Love to everybody. Talk to you next week. Until we see you again. Namaste. Thank you, Richard. Namaste. Namaste. Thank you, everybody. All right. Love you guys. Over now.
Yeah, we'll be back. All right, Rama, the phone numbers for the conference call. Um, 720-716-7301. And the PIN code is 353-863-POUND. Okay, everybody, let's meet there. And at the top of the next hour, we'll be right back here at BBS Radio, best radio in your neighborhood, wherever you may be. Whether it's on Earth or somewhere else. Oh. (laughs) Well, okay. Got special equipment for that, right? Mm Mm-hmm. All right. All right, everybody. See you on the conference. Uh, So namaste. For BBS Radio until an hour from now. See you again. See you on the conference. Namaste. Okay, we're going to proceed. Rama's going to play this. It's 17 minutes. It's, I think, a real kernel of really good energy. It's called Mysteries of the Knights Templar. Uh, Templar Suppression and Survival Following the 14th century events known as Friday the 13th, did the Knights Templar strategically set the stage for their secret order's migration to the West? After That's interesting because that's what Friday the 13th is about. After loss of patronage, from the Roman Catholic Church, the Knights Templar were tortured and persecuted across Europe. While lore may have it that the secret order was stamped out, hosts Scott Walter and Timothy Hogan suggest the Knights were in fact driven underground. Were the guilds who constructed cathedrals, actually Masonic safe havens for the Knights' protection? And what evidence supports the theory of a Templar voyage to the Americas with the intention of founding the new Atlantis? Mm. All right, 17 minutes. We're going to get all that in 17 minutes. Let's do it. We'll get started now. Friday the 13th, how is it connected with the Knights Templar? I'm Timothy Hogan, Grand Master of the Knights Templar. And I'm Scott Walter, forensic geologist and a Knights Templar. And this is Mysteries of the Knights Templar. So everyone has heard about bad luck being associated with Friday the 13th. But very few people realize that it's directly connected to the Knights Templar. The question is, how is it connected? Well, we need to realize that the Templar Order, while they grew in fame and fortune and influence throughout Europe, there came a point where there were other powers that became jealous of 
their influence that they had. On the one hand, you had the Roman church who was getting very uncomfortable with the Templar association with groups outside of the Roman influence, right? And then on the other hand, you had King Philip the Fair who was looking to start new wars and needing money to do it. In fact, he had owed the Templar order lots of money that he had borrowed previously. And he wanted to set himself up as the new war king. And in order to do that, he needed to get money. He knew that the Templars had a rich depository in their Paris commandery. He owed the money and he figured, why not kill two birds with one stone? Or best way to get rid of the debt is to get rid of the debtor, right? That's exactly (laughs) right. So he could take care of his debt while getting more money for his wars. And as a result, he decided he needed to stage a coup, if you will, or a overthrow of the Templar order. In September, he signed arrest warrants for all Templars in France, which was to go into effect a month later. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, on Friday, October 13th, the Templar order was rounded up in what was hoped to be a surprise suppression by Philip the Fair. But it wasn't a surprise. It wasn't a surprise. De Malay had already knew that this was going to be happening. The, the Templar order, trying to figure out what to do, decided that they could actually send most of their knights outside of Paris with the treasures and everything else that was being held at the Paris commandery, get them out of France and leave a few Templars behind to be rounded up. And of course, de Malay, Jack de Malay, the Grand Master of the Templars at the time, wasn't going to sacrifice other people to this without he himself also being willing to be sacrificed. He thought, I'm sure, that he could talk his way out of this (laughs) situation. I mean, he had had a long history with Philip the Fair, and he thought he could get out of it. Well, as it turns out, he didn't get out of it. They ended up getting rounded up, tortured for seven years, and by March of 1314, Jacques de Molay, as Grand Master, Geoffrey de Charnay, the, the Norman preceptor, were burnt at the stake in front of Notre Dame Cathedral, one of their great creations of the Templar Order. This really sealed the idea that Friday the 13th, which was when the date they were rounded up, became an unlucky day. And from then on, it was demonized, right? Right. Now we we run into the situation, right, where most people think that this was the end of the Templar Order. Right. In fact... Many historians will try to play it out like with the dying breath of Jack de Molay, the Templar order was finished. <laughs> In reality, <laughs> you and I both know we different. Both, we both know different. That yeah. At this point, the Templar order had to go underground. Right. So where did they go? I mean, th- this is one of the burning questions that historians have asked. Okay, Scott, you and Tim are telling us that the Templars survived. Where did they go? Okay, where did they go? Well, they went several places. I mean, first of all, we have to remember they had established an entire Templar nation in Portugal. So in Portugal, they weren't even rounded up. They just changed their names to the Knights of Christ. 
very easy solution. Everything was okay. It was to appease the Pope at the time, right? That's, that's exactly right. And what I've read is that at the time, the Templars had basically been hired to defend them from being attacked by the Moors from the south. And basically the king of Portugal said, wait, what do you mean? I'm going to get rid of my fighting force? Right. No, I'm not. Right. <laughs> but you know what? I'll throw you a bone. We'll change the name. Right. That's exactly right. We had some Templars we know just went back to the Holy Land and converted to Islam. I mean, they had already established relationships with uh, Islamic families, also Druze families, Sabean families. So they just went back to the Middle East. And the, and the spiritual pursuit of the Christos didn't matter if it was Christianity or the Muslim faith. They could still do what they had done all along, right? That's exactly right. Now, some Templars found it most convenient to just absorb themselves into their orders. I mean, one of the things that happened when the Templar order was suppressed is most of their properties had been reconfiscated by the Roman Church and then distributed to the Knights Hospitalier, who was a rival order at the time. The Knights Hospitalier later became known as the Knights of Malta. So many Templars just went into the Knights Hospitalier and tried to maintain business as usual if they were able to. Still others, we're told, at least according to our tradition, fled up to Scotland because Robert the Bruce at the time had already been excommunicated by the church. Not long before that. Not long before that, because he was having problems with them. And so he was trying to set up his own Scottish state. And who better to help him with this but the Templars? And the legend says that Templars went up, fought at the Battle of Bannockburn, and helped the Scots win the day for independence. Well, not only is that part of the legend, but we actually have documents that speak exactly to that, that the Templars did serve at Bannockburn. And because of that, King Robert the Bruce and the Scottish earls were obligated to protect the surviving Templars and the treasures that they brought to Scotland. Another interesting fun fact when we're talking about Scotland is let's go back to Hugh de Pan when the order was first founded. And the year was 1129 when the order became official. We know that they certainly were founded before that. But in 1129, the Grand Master Hugh de Pan went to the British Isles and met with leaders in England and Scotland and planted the seeds for what would eventually germinate almost 200 years later when the Templars did go to Scotland. Robert the Bruce certainly had memory of that, and it, it worked out for them, and it worked out for the Scots because the Battle of Bannockburn was the single greatest day in the history of Scotland, which is still celebrated like our Independence, Independence day, day, right? Yeah. It's the same thing. That's right. Now, some Templars also fled to the area of what is now Switzerland, mm-hmm. but said to have helped fight a peasant's revolt there yes. to establish independence in that area. We know that some Templars went into the area of now Germany, the Württemberg area, and in fact, they just eventually recalled themselves the Militia Crucifera Evangelica, mm-hmm. which was this underground body that ended up becoming very instrumental in Protestant revolt happening in Germany at the time in the Black Forest, in Tübingen and in other areas like that. By 1598, 1599, they were very well established. Uh, Frederick, the Duke of Wittenberg, was the Grand Master of the Order. 
there in Germany. And uh, Martin Luther was played a role in that too. Martin Luther was protected by families in that mm-hmm. tradition, and even Queen Elizabeth I was also a member of the Militia Cruciferi Evangelica. So. This Templar strain had fingers going out everywhere all over. But one of the places where it became the most fertile survival, the Templars had built all of these cathedrals and all of these structures Mm -hmm. across Europe, over a thousand different structures in 200 years. And most people think of the Templars as knights, but they also had sea captains, they had clerics, they had farmers, and... They had stonemasons. So it was very easy for them to switch over into stonemason guilds in order to survive. They already had the ability as a stonemason to travel from one place to another. And so they just took on a new identity in that regard. And we know this because, for example, the cathedral builders are known as the compagnons within the French tradition. And they're composed of two guilds. They're known as the Children of Solomon and the Children of the Master Jacques. Mm -hmm. Well, the Children of Solomon say they got their name from the poor Knights of Christ of the Temple of Solomon, Mm -hmm. which was the Knights Templars. Right. And the Children of the Master Jacques said they got their name from the Master Jacques de Molay, the Grand Master of the Knights Templars. So both of these guilds that are responsible for building the cathedrals have a common origin. Have a common origin. They say they trace their origins back to the Knights Templar. So it sounds to me like this whole notion that the Templars disappeared into history, they grew old and died, and that was the end of it, is anything but that. In fact, it is the opposite. And what I find the most interesting is in the last 20 years or so, there has been so much new information that has come forward that has shed light on the darkness of this whole question of what happened to the Templars after the suppression on Friday the 13th, 1307. Well, and we have to remember the night before the suppression as well, there was an entire fleet of Templar ships that disappeared. From the port of La Rochelle on the western coast of France. It disappeared into history, right? Right. Not hardly. So where did they go? And who did they become? So the Templars started going to all these places. We know they went into London and places like Royston Cave. But they also hung out in different places in Scotland. And and do you want to talk about that more? Well, other than just the battle with Robert the Bruce, I mean, there was more going on there. Let's talk about what the documents say. Okay, well, yes, we do have some pretty important documents, the Cremona document. We also have what we call the Sinclair Weems Journals. But within the Cremona document, we actually have a message that was encrypted, that we were able to decode, that talks about the order being made by Jacques de Molay of preparing to get the treasures out, right? We've talked a lot about where the Templars went, but we didn't talk about where the treasures went. And we know the treasures were sent north because we have a document that says so. And the order was actually given by de Molay according to this message in 1304. So... This is consistent with the thesis that you and I have had for a long time, that the long-range goal was the new Atlantis in North America. So they set the table early on. But what the document says is that three ships carrying gold, silver, jewels, and something called the relic was taken. And the first stop when they left La Rochelle was the Isle of Man. And these three ships stopped at three different ports 
which of course is brilliant, right? You're not going to put all your eggs in one basket if there are French ships waiting for you, you're screwed, right? We don't know how long they were, but the message says they then went to the West Isle in Northern Scotland. Well, along the way is a place called the Isle of Arran. And on the Isle of Arran is a place called King's Caves. And these caves are massive. I visited them myself. And what was very interesting is that there are carvings on the inside of interesting depictions. There's one with two hands going up in the air that we think is connected with the symbol of Virgo. And if you look at the constellation of Virgo, it looks like a goddess with her hands up like this. The fish, the Christian fish, the Vesica Pisces is carved in the cave. There's a Christian cross that on the lower part has ovaries on the lower side. I mean, these are esoteric symbols What are they doing there? Well, it seems to me this would have been the perfect hiding place to put those treasures for at least a short time. And directly across the bay to the north on the peninsula from the Isle of Arran. And you can see when you look out King's Cave is a Cistercian Abbey called Saddle Abbey that today is in ruins. But there is a shelter that Scotland Heritage, you know, the government has built and they have about a dozen Templar grave slabs that are preserved. So what it looks like is when the Templars left the Isle of Man, they came and brought the treasures to King's Cave and the Knights stayed at an abbey. I mean, they got a hotel right there, right? Who Um, they're already associated with. Who they're already associated with. And so the other thing that really, to me, is a piece of evidence that really helps support this idea is that in the interpretive materials at King's Cave, It says that King Robert the Bruce visited King's Caves three months before October 13th in 1307. What is he doing visiting these caves? Right. I think he was setting the table for what he already knew was going to happen. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Then what better allies than the Templar Order who was used to severe... The fighting force, a trained fighting force. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. But this was only the beginning of the trail of the treasures. They kept going west, and eventually they made it far to the west. Well, that was always the goal, right? That was the goal all along. to establish the New Jerusalem, the New Atlantis, and the Americas. And they had already established those connections with the tribes in order to do it. And they also called it the Free Templar State, Yeah, which I love. Yeah, I agree. So really what we're saying here is this was not the end of the Templar order. It was just the end of the Roman Catholic patronage of the Templar order. And that the Templar order continued to exist while crippled from this horrible suppression. They already had everything in place to establish this new land, this new Atlantis to the West. And they just were going to move forward from this point on without the Roman Catholic patronage. I guess the way we could sum up Friday the 13th and the suppression of the Templars is that it wasn't the end. It was just the end of that chapter, and it was the new beginning of the next chapter. Yeah, they rose strongly like a phoenix in the new... From the ashes. From the ashes of de Malay. Yeah. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Mysteries of the Knights Templar. Yes, sirs.
Okay. Now, this is our friend Nassim Haramin. He's got something here. It's called The Vacuum, Black Holes, and Holographic Universe. And he says, Join us on an extraordinary journey into the depths of the cosmos. As renowned physicist and researcher Nassim Haramin unravels the mysteries of the vacuum, black holes, and the holographic nature of our universe. Uh, Nassim is a pioneering physicist known for his groundbreaking work in unified physics, connecting the micro to the macro, and offering profound insights into the fundamental nature <coughs> of our reality. All right, this is 38 minutes. Okay. Let's get started. Remember I was talking about how the sun being a black hole, the earth and all this stuff, the center of galaxies and why, you know, things don't fall in. In fact, I'm in the middle of writing a paper. I've been writing it for like four years. I mean, on cosmology where we're, I'm describing all this. I'm describing universal evolution in terms of black hole theory, but as well showing that like, you know, Matter production occurs at the surface of black hole, meaning that matter didn't just appear in some miracle called the Big Bang in standard physics, right? Really, I mean, the Big Bang theory is really not scientific. It just bang and boom, <laughs> here we are. <laughs> I mean, you might as well go to church and be told, yeah, God did it, right? I mean, it's about the same. So it's not just a black hole gathering matter around it, but it's a black hole producing matter, you know, from the middle. And that would be why planets expand. And that's, that's a whole other thing that's even more heretic. You know, I, I independently and then find out that somebody else had done it before me. I independently in my little van realize that if this is all true, then at the center of the earth, there must be a black hole. So then there must be matter production. So that means that they would produce pressure on the surface of the earth and that the earth would like have to expand throughout time. And then I, 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 at the time did the best I could with modeling trying to figure out like if I took the earth and shrunk it down with all the continents fit together. And then I found, yes, it, it, it's actually a perfect fit, much better than plate tectonic ideas where, you know, as if the earth was like flat, you know, like, like a map, you know, and so you can shrink the planet by about 60% and all the continents fit together perfectly. Uh, and you can do the same with the moon. You can do the same with some of the moons of Jupiter and so on. It's been done. So if you look, um, if you look up on YouTube, somebody did a nice animation of it. Um, if you look up uh, Earth, Earth expanding, it should come up. You know, there's nice um, animations of it. So clearly, you know, 
what I was saying is that basically um, the universe is like making singularities and and art and matter organizes around it um, so that um, so that you can think of it like our sun but um, you know on the sun there's some evidence for instance that are being ignored like there's huge black spots on our sun they're called sunspots and when I first started I was told like at the time the idea was that sunspots were just surface event like just optical illusion basically but um I was saying, no, they're actually holes that matter is being sucked into the singularity in the middle. And since then, they discover, like, yes, they can see the material being sucked in, in the middle of these so-called sunspots, which are huge vortices in the plasma of the black hole. And, um, and you can, and the vortices are huge, right? They're like 13 times the size of the earth. And, from it, from like the hot, the hottest X-ray on the sun comes from those holes, right? They emit massive amount of X-ray, which is exactly what's predicted when matter falls into a black hole. Okay, so um, so so sunspots, but um, you know, so I I start to think, okay, well, must be true that. Not only the sun, but, you know, our galaxy and so on, but as well, atoms must be centered by singularity, right? And so I, I, I start to do some calculations to see if there was any evidence of that. And there is, but it's it, as a result of some, you know, historical manipulation of mathematics, there's been, it was missed. And, and so I tried to explain it in this paper called the Schwarzschild Proton Paper. So, you know, I tried to be subtle. I was going to call it the black hole proton, but then it was like, I, I knew I was going to get bricks thrown at me. So I tried to soften it by calling it the Schwarzschild Proton Paper because the Schwarzschild solution is a solution to a black hole. I figure people would get it. Right, uh, and I calculated it. I calculate. I calculated. Okay, what would happen if I made the little proton a little black hole, right? And so to do that, you know, the proton mass is not high enough to be called a black hole. So I, I, I said, well, yeah, but what about all the the vacuum energy? that's inside the volume of a proton. What about all the energy that's there that's being ignored? So I um, I calculated the volume of a proton, right, which is very teeny, 10 to the minus 39 centimeter cube, right? And I calculated how many of the little plonks fit in there. And it turns out that the mass of all the plonks that fit inside one proton is the mass of the universe. <laughs> Which is remarkable. When I found this, I was like, oh my God, it really is holographic. 
It really is that all the information of all the other protons in the universe are inside one proton. So that makes the user, so that makes, so a force that makes the proton a black hole. Um, if you consider the vacuum fluctuation, but even if you take the universe, right? Let's say this is the universe. So remember it has a, a radius of 10 to the 28 centimeter, right? If I take a bubble the size of the universe and I put 10 to the 55 grams of matter in it, it obeys the Schwarzschild condition. It obeys the condition of a black hole. So we live inside a black hole. That says why it's black out there. The universe we live in is a huge bubble that obeys the condition of a black hole. And so, and so imagine if I put that mass in a proton, of course the proton obeys the condition of a black hole, right? But then that started to make me think, wait, so then I, well, there's two things. One is I calculated, okay, if I have two protons, black hole, and they're orbiting each other, right? And they're orbiting each other. Can I calculate the force between these two black holes? The gravitational force that would hold these black holes together between each other. And I did... And when I calculated that, it gave the exact, but not approximately, it gave the exact measured value for the strong force. The strong force is the force that holds the protons together. Okay? And it was just thrown in by modern physics. Because... When we discovered protons were stuck together in the nuclei of an atom, we thought that's not possible. They're positively charged. They should repel each other, right? Like two magnets that repel each other. So then they invented a force called the strong force because it had to be super strong to push them together against their will, right? Against the electrostatic force. And then they never said where the energy comes from to produce that force. So it's like a complete free parameter. It's like a full-on fudge factor. <laughs> right? So if you're not going to say where the energy is required to produce that force, of course, you're going to miss that you're dealing with black holes. If you actually calculate that energy necessary to produce that force in the mass of the mass of the proton, you end up with black hole protons. You guys see what I'm saying? So, of course, the the mainstream was very upset with me when I published this. I caught so many tomatoes for that one, right? I mean, it was just awful. Like, what is he saying? Protons are black hole. He's insane. They said the same thing when I told them there was black holes in the middle of galaxies, right? Well, they had one good point, though. I had to somehow prove that although the 
proton has a mass of the universe in it, what we measure is not the mass of the universe when we measure the proton, right? We measure a very small mass. The proton has a mass of 10 to the minus 24 grams. So I was, I was off by like, you know, a significant amount of orders of magnitude, right? Um, and, you know, I don't need 10 to the 55 grams to make the black hole proton. The proton only needs 10 to the 14 grams to uh, be a black hole. And, and there, there's a very interesting relationship there, but I'm not going to go into it. It's called the large number hypothesis. And actually, you know, Paul Dirac, which was one of the best physicists ever, came really close to solving it exactly the way I solved it. But when he did, when he got close to it, he was in his 80s and, you know, they told him he was insane and he, he was senile, right? Uh, so the large number hypothesis was completely ignored and he was so close to solving this, so close to solving unification. And um, so, so I had to prove this. I published this. And basically what I publish is like, hey, isn't it cool that if you make the protons black holes, you get the exact force that we observe between two protons. And, um, um, you know, I basically was saying that's most likely not a coincidence, right? Because, I mean, it's exact. It's not just like approximately right, it's exact. So I, um, I, I have, but then I have to figure out why is it that, it, okay, so imagine the little proton and imagine the mass of the universe is in there in terms of information, okay? You know, so then that means a proton is somehow connected, like entangled, with other protons, right? And so maybe the whole universe is entangled, right? So I start to think that way. So if the whole universe is entangled, well, why are we not knowing that the whole universe is entangled? Because we, so, so let me backtrack a little bit of information, history information. When we wrote, like when, when uh, we wrote quantum mechanics, this thing came out, this is actually, Einstein pointed this out, that the way the math was written, it would mean that particles could be entangled at a distance, meaning it didn't matter how far they were from each other, if you budge this one, the other one would budge. That's what the math was saying, that Einstein actually published this, called it spooky, spooky action at a distance, and he he was, he was trying to debunk quantum mechanics by, and then they start to measure it in laboratory. Okay? Meaning that if you, if you hit a carbon atom with a, with a, a photon, uh, with, a, with a laser, you can get photons to be emitted by the atom. If they came from the same, the one atom, 
They go away from each other. If you wiggle this one, this one will wiggle instantaneously. And it doesn't matter how far apart they are. They did this over kilometers. And even at the speed of light, the, the information from this particle wouldn't have time to come back to the other one by the time you measure it. And still, instantaneously, they are connected. You change the polarity of this one, this one changed automatically. So it doesn't matter if they were across the universe, because it's not related to speed of light. See what I'm saying? So we know that exists, but we think that some particles are entangled. Now we've been able to entangle large objects like diamonds. In laboratory, we can entangle diamonds so that you can hit this diamond over here in the laboratory with a laser. And the diamond that's on the other side of the laboratory acts like it's being hit by a laser. And um, so, 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 but we think that there's particles that can be entangled and there's particles that cannot, right? So we don't think that all particles are entangled or meaning we think that there's particles that are entangled and then there's decoherency. That is, there's particles that are not entangled with anything, right? You guys are following me? Okay, so why do we think that? Well, because we tend to think inside a box and get stuck in it, right? So we say not all particles are entangled only because in the case in which they're entangled, we have access to both ends of the entanglement. So when we wiggle this one, we see this one wiggle. But what tells you that this particle on the end of my finger is not entangled with a particle on the other side of the universe? So when I wiggle this one, I don't see the other one wiggle. But it's still entangled, right? It's just a question of my box, my perception that I think it's not entangled. Do you guys see what I'm saying? So of course it could be entangled. Um, and so I start to think that way. So that, that, then I start to think, okay, if the whole thing is one, it's like literally this equation said mathematically the whole universe is one. And it was nice because it's like, wow, you know, this has been in philosophy and, you know, many masters have come and told us the whole thing is one. It's all connected and all this. And it's nice. When you, you know, in philosophy, but actually this was like the mathematical proof that this is really the case, right? The whole thing is connected. Now, remember, you're made out of protons, right? Right. So don't forget that part. Okay. Okay. So, so then, so then the whole thing, so then I started to think, okay, well, maybe the mass that we see when we look at one proton is only, is the result of all the other protons acting on one. Like basically, I was trying to find an equation that would describe what is the influence of all the information of the rest of the universe on one proton. You see? It would, uh, like the exchange, right? And so I, I thought, oh, and so I, man. <laughs> 
Is that insane or what, right? Like I would go around and be talking to my colleagues, physicists, and they'd be like, yeah, so this is what I'm looking for. Maybe you can help me. So we got to figure out a way to write an equation in which all the influence of all the universe on one proton and it's give its proper mass by the time we're done. And they'd be looking at me like, yeah, good luck with that. You know? <laughs> and so um, it took me five years. It took me, you know, um, from approximately... 2000, um, yeah, from approximately 2005 to, yeah, to approximately 2010. Um, and, uh, you know, I was like night, like day and night, you know, uh, I couldn't, I mean, I was thinking about this. How can I solve this for all this time? And like I went through insane amount of complexity, complex physics to try to solve it. And then when I solved it, it's so fucking simple <laughs> and so obvious. I can't believe I missed it for so long, right? It just blew my mind because I came like I'm writing really complex stuff and then I'm kind and then it's getting simpler and simpler and then it's like, it's like, oh my God, <laughs> really? And, 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 and so let me explain it to you because like a 10 year old can understand it. So basically what I did is I, I took, I took a, a black hole that's well known. Um, it's called Cygnus X1. It's, it was one of the first ones that was found. And uh, I basically said, okay, well, so let's think about this. I mean, this is not how it happened, but this is what it told me, meaning it's not how I solved the math, but that's where it landed me, okay? I, I was trying to figure out so, so let's think about it this way. So you got all the information inside a bubble, but only the amount of information that's on the surface is available to me from the outside to measure, right? Because everything else is inside the black hole. So I can't, I don't have access to it. I'm only measuring a very small portion of the information that's able to come out. Right, uh, that's on the surface. So I, 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 I start to think, okay, maybe I should calculate how many Planck, so if, if each Planck is a little bit of information, or you can think of it as one Planck being the end of a Planck wormhole that connects to that surface, right? It, so then I should count how many of those there is on there. So I did that. I counted how many are on the surface, and that's 10 to the 79. So that's a lot on the surface of a, of Cygnus X1. And then I and then I counted how many are on the inside, right? And there's 10 to the 118, which is a lot, right, on the inside of Cygnus X1. And then I thought, okay, well, the way the math worked out. It starts to reduce and I start to think, okay, here 
then there must be some kind of like, maybe it's a, just a racial relationship between the amount that's inside to the amount that's on the surface, like a pressure, right, on what can be expressed. Only a small portion can be expressed outside. So then I I made the ratio, right, of the, the inside over the surface. And I multiplied it by 10 to the minus 5 gram, which is the mass of one Planck. So basically, I wanted to know the energy of the ratio, the energy of the ratio of information in the volume to the surface, volume to surface ratio of energy. And when I solved that, it gave the exact mass of the black hole, right? Exactly, which is what I call a holographic mass solution, give the exact solution for the Schwarzschild solution to Einstein field equation. So I solved Einstein's equation for gravity, but using Planck quantum bits. So now you start to see the bridge starting to connect between relativity and quantum physics, right? I'm using quantum physics to, to solve gravitational equations. So I, yeah, go ahead. To information? Well, in information theory, energy is information, or information is energy. You can think of, um, the position of any particle in the universe relative to all the other particles represent an energy event, right? Like a particle moving through space. It really was describing quantum gravity at the cosmological level. And, you know, this is so simple. Right away, I called my colleagues and asked if this was known. You know, I thought, oh, this has got to be known, right? Everybody knows this, right? Because it's like, wow, it's like a 10-year-old, this 10-year-old algebra, right? And <clears throat> so I'm calling around, and they're like, really? It comes out right? I'm like, yeah. And it's like, no, yeah. And it's like, they're calculating. Holy shit, you know? <laughs> and so, yeah, on, it was unknown. It was missed. It was missed. And, and one of the reasons it was missed is because what I didn't tell you here is that I made the little plonk, I made the little plonk a little spherical black hole, right? I took the plonk length and I, so the Planck link usually is L, um, script L, uh, and I divided it by two, right? Because the L would be the diameter, divided by two would be the radius, and I made a little sphere. I made a little spherical Planck entity. And that's what I tiled when I calculated, right? This is not two-dimensional. That's just the equator of the little, the little plunks.
that I'm showing on there, but they're little spheres. And all the people before that were, it's called holographic um, uh, 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 theory, uh, were were doing instead they were they were tiling L square, right? Because everybody works in math and don't necessarily think about the geometry. So they go, L square will tile the surface. As if the universe was making like square pixels of two dimensional size. This is why I don't know if you've seen in like popular magazine on the cover, are we living in a holographic universe? Right, that's because of the holographic uh, solution that was given, which is similar to this, that, um, that was the result of trying to solve the black hole information uh, paradox. And, and Sutskin said, well, the information doesn't disappear when it falls into a black hole. It's tiled on the surface holographically. And then they calculate it. It's called the holographic principle. It is in the mainstream. And, and they calculated the, the amount of plunks that would tile on the surface of the black hole and it gives the right energy, the right temperature for the black hole. But not its mass, right? Just, just the temperature of the black hole. So, um, but they were tiling L square. So they, and this is why if you read these articles, it says, is the universe a 3D representation of a 2D holographic surface? No. <clears throat> okay, I'm mentioning this because it's important you know. The universe is not two-dimensional. <laughs> Dude. <laughs> really. Two-dimensionality does not exist. It's not, it's like a thing in a, in a human's mind. It's a model of mathematics. This is when, like, they make a model and then they forgot they made a model. And then they think it's really like that out there. It's like, it's not. There is no surface anywhere in the universe that has no thickness. If it's there, it has thickness. Even if it's just one plong thick, it's still one plong thick. <laughs> I, I, I mean, in 1997, I was in a, Coming back from a conference in a plane with one of the most famous uh, mathematician uh, topologists. He wrote the book on topology, right? And and so he's, you know, on the window side and I'm on the aisle side. And so he's got 37,000 feet on one side and me. So he can't go anywhere for six hours, right? So I'm just bombarding him, right? He's just hating it, right? And I'm like, so what is the dimensionality of a sphere? And his answer, two-dimensional, right? Because that is what they do in topology. A sphere is a two-dimensional object. And I'm like, so, because he says it's a surface. I'm like, okay, so let me help you with this. 
I pulled out a piece of paper out of my suitcase. I said, make me a sphere. Right? It's like, well, I can make a cylinder and then cut the top and, you know, kind of squish it. I'm like, yeah, well, that won't be a sphere. No, but I could cut it more. Like, Okay, how much more do you need to cut it before it's a perfect sphere? Well, a perfect sphere would take an infinite amount of cuts, right? You'll never get there, right? A sphere is not a two-dimensional object. A sphere is a constituent of smaller spheres, right? That is a constituent of smaller sphere, which is a... It is nothing that's two-dimensional. When you write on a piece of paper, you know, a smiley face, right? You don't, you're not, like, you can say this is a two-dimensional face. But that's in your mind, right? Because the ink that's on the paper, it's got thickness. If I shrunk myself to the microscopic level, that'd be a mountain, right? And then, like, uh, the thickness of the paper, I can put calipers on it. It's got thickness. There's nothing two-dimensional about it. (laughs) Except your mind that made it two-dimensional. Right? So, of course, the universe is not a two-dimensional, like, a a three-dimensional holographic projection of a two-dimensional surface. Course not, right? So, uh, so, so when I wrote this equation, I made the little plunks, little spheres, and then I calculated. And that's why my math went sideways for so long. That's why it took me so, because I kept on not understanding until I got back to fundamental geometry. Because if you did this with L square then it doesn't add up at all. You're off by orders of magnitude. You would never find it. Right? So, so then, so then I thought, okay, well, I've got quantum gravity. If it's working, then, um, it should work at the quantum level. So I took the proton. I did the same thing. That's the surface. And that's the inside. And notice, you know, there's 10 to the 60th proton, uh, Planck's inside. 10 to the 60th multiplied by 10 to minus 5 will give you 10 to the 55, which is the mass of the universe. And there's 10 to the 40th on the surface, which is still a lot. And then, so imagine you're, you're writing an equation that has the mass of the universe in it. And you're hoping by the time you're done with the equation that it outputs the correct mass of one proton in that universe, right? So even if you got close, you would think, wow, you know, that's kind of cool. So I was hoping I would be at least within like one or two orders of magnitude from the mass of the proton and that would like, I'd be happy with that, right? But when I calculated it, it gave me the mass of the proton within 0.0012 of the measured mass in the laboratory. 
So I was like so amazed. I was like blown away, right? Huge numbers giving exact or very close to exact result for the proton mass. You know, that was just mind blowing. So I was like, I was on a cloud for like, I mean, this has been five years I'm looking for this. 30 years of research behind it. I'm like walking on the cloud, right? I'm like, for like two weeks, I'm not touching the ground. All the people at the lab, you know, they're like, yeah, I don't know. We were like on 13 acres and I'm like walking around the 13 acres with my notepad constantly recalculating to make sure I didn't screw up somewhere and put the mass, the proton in my equation somehow. And then it comes back out. Of course, that would be circular, right? So I'm, I'm trying to break it. I'm trying, I'm thinking it can't be that simple. I must have screwed up, right? Okay. And so like I, and I'm hitting myself with the pad. So you can imagine my staff is like, I think we're losing him. <laughs> so, um, so you know, I, I can't break it. I'm like, okay, this is it. This is, and I'm getting like crazy chills and I'm integrating inside my own body because I'm thinking now I'm like seeing like the wormhole network. Because you see, there's 10 to the 40th wormhole attachment on the proton. And then you can, you can imagine. And, and now, you know, uh, Monacina and, and, uh, and, and, uh, Sutskin and others are starting to realize that entanglement is the result of micro wormhole, plant wormhole that connects particles. See, they, they're coming to that conclusion completely independently. Right? So, 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 but I'm visualizing this. You can imagine my head is like, whoa, I'm seeing all the wormholes of every proton connecting to all thing. And we know that there's approximately 10 to the 80th proton in the universe. So I'm thinking, what well, is there only 10 to the 40th connection to one proton if it's all connected? Then I start to see, oh my God, one proton is connected to 10 to the 40th. And the 10 to the 40th are connected to 10 to the 40th. And that's how you get to 10 to the 80th, right? Which 10 to the 40th is much smaller. It's not half of 10 to the 80th. Remember, like this is, these are exponents, right? So 10 to the 40th is a very small number compared to 10 to the 80th. Anyway, so they all connected. So you can see now I could see the fractal network, you know, working together. And the information transfer, and of course, if a proton is connected to this proton, to this proton, to this proton, to this proton, like all the way to over there, we would never know, right? Because we're not measuring the two. So there's so much influence of all protons to each other that we don't see the entanglement. We only see, and we call it mass, the energy or the information going through the event horizon. The bits coming in and out. We call it mass. We call it energy.
Here we are again. Good evening. It's a beautiful, gorgeous summer night in New York, and here this place is full of people who want to talk about holograms. And <laughs> wow, yeah, World Science Festival so great. Uh, my name is John Hockenberry. First of all, I'm the college dropout news guy who's going to hang out with Nobel physicists tonight. Perfect for this job. Oh my god. Um, how did I get here? Um, but uh, seriously. You know, we think of, uh, you know, this season is the World Science Festival. It's the beginning of June. The weather starts to get great. You know, tonight at uh, 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 Brooklyn Bridge Park, it's supposed to be one of the best viewing nights uh, in New York. And there aren't many really fabulous viewing nights in New York. So I urge you to do that. I mean, it's a beautiful, clear night. Everybody's out in there. It's, it's kind of like prom season. We think of the World Science Festival as the prom for all the scientists who... Maybe they didn't get any dates, didn't know there was a prom. And uh, I actually pulled our panel tonight. Three clearly did not go to the prom, uh, didn't want to talk about it, and one didn't remember uh, at all. You, you may be able to figure out who, who is who tonight. Um, I'm actually perfect for this uh, uh, gig for another reason, because I actually inadvertently helped to solve one of the most serious problems in physics back in the 1970s. I was on a team... Um, that helped to do that. Sorry, everybody. I always jumped into that other subject. <laughs> I think it was last June. I think that was what that was. Mm-hmm. Um, so we will do something here. Here, round of this way. All righty. This is called J.J., as in Hertek, and his wife Desiree Hertek. The title is The Mayans, Pyramids, Pleiades, and Orion. Join us for an odyssey as J.J. and Desiree Hertek, distinguished researchers and authors, Guide, guide us through the labyrinth of time, decoding the intricate connections between the Mayans, Pyramids, Pleiades, and Orion. Prepare to be immersed in an intellectual feast as we unveil the hidden dimensions of ancient wisdom that have captivated Civilizations across millennia. Voyage highlights. Mayan revelations. Peer into the cryptic knowledge, cryptic knowledge held by the Mayans, unraveling the secrets encoded in their calendars, their glyphs, and astronomical observations. Pyramid, pyramid marvels. Embark on a virtual expedition exploring the architectural wonders of ancient pyramids, decoding their sacred geometry and cosmic significance. Celestial Harmony, delve into the cosmic tapestry woven between the Pleiades and Orion, exploring the profound influence of these celestial entities on ancient cultures, Esoteric Wisdom Unearthed. Journey into the depths of esoteric knowledge as J.J. and Desiree 
shed light on the timeless wisdom that has shaped spiritual beliefs and cosmic understanding. And this is one hour and six minutes. Mm. So did you find this? Mm -hmm. All right, Rama, let's begin. about getting on to my uh, slideshow because I want to share with JJ about that because JJ you you've had what some people would consider anomalous phenomena other people would call it a higher conscious other people call it interdimensional how do you term the kind of um, spiritual awakening you had that that fits all these categories well in practical spiritual language is called the higher Merkaba experience where you see a vehicle of light. You're surrounded by that light and you're biolocated or teleported in a very unique way. In my case, I, I was gifted with knowledge that I was able to record and share privately with people on high, very high levels uh, in various governments right. uh, who were interested in the contact story that was taking place in the 1970s. I wrote my material down in a book called The Book of Knowledge Keys of Enoch, which is a bestseller upon which our present discussion is going to be based that highlights 24 areas of the world where there was uh, cultural contact from the cosmic cultures using a proto-communication of higher language uh, symbols as well as resonance acoustics. And Desiree and I have several doctorates, and we've been very privileged to work with some of the top specialists, formerly with NASA and other agencies, who've been looking at the roadmap of what we're facing as a humanity. So our presentation now is going to look at more of the archaeological slash uh, anthropological aspects of the true history of the human evolution, well, specifically want- in Egypt and Mexico because of the time element that we have to deal with. But we begin with this fantastic picture of what I call cosmogram, a cosmic picture, how we begin to see the many levels of reality merge through the consciousness development within ourselves. Alan? I was just going to say, Dr. JJ, uh, you were the first, and maybe it's not in the slideshow, but uh, see that there were pyramids on Mars, which connects the cosmic civilizations to the ancient past. Do you want to mention anything about that? Um, well, yes, in, in the, the keys, keys of, of Enoch, I have p- actual pictures, the Mariner B uh, frames of pictures taken off the Martian surface in the Elysian Quadrangle in the early 70s. I published this because I had predicted this finding through remote viewing. And when NASA uh, actually confirmed what I saw in the Elysian Quadrangle on the Martian surface, they allowed me permission to take uh, several of the documents uh, and share them with my students, which I put into a book. And we're talking in the 70s, actually. We're talking early yeah. 70s. In the 80s, I wrote two books, one called The Sphinx and Marte, The Sphinx on Mars, and The Face on Mars. Not that the face was that important, but it was a reflection of our mental projection to look at the artifacts on the Martian surface, including the pyramidal uh, grid systems that we found we analyzed uh, at a 
computer symposium. So we're really happy to be part of this great uh, program of teaching to push the envelope backwards and forwards, just go back to the back door of the Old Testament and the front door of the New Testament to see that we're just beginning to take our baby steps and then quantum leaps into the fuller history of our planetary humanity. I just want to say one thing, that you are the bridge between ancient civilizations and cosmic civilizations. That's the importance I feel of. Thanks for that, Alan. That's great. So let, let's say a few things that we did this last year, which some of which you were with us. You know, we were invited to Palenque because it was like the 75th, I think it was, anniversary of the man who actually found the stella. The special, we'll say, tomb of the inscriptions at Palenque. He went down, he saw this. This is the thing that looks like the uh, cosmic astronaut that people talk about. Yeah, his son, who was seven years old at the time, when he found it, was there as part of the ceremony. So we went. The Academy was honored, which is our organization. We are an international NGO, and we're emphasizing really the the science and the consciousness aspect of what this means in terms of a series of multidimensional levels of knowledge. So we were able that you can... But it's too bad people can't see it better because it actually looks like a Mayan flying a UFO. Like some, he's definitely uh, in a ship going flying with, I mean, it's fantastic. Is there? A yeah, it is. Picture? And if you look at the lower picture, that's the pyramid it's in. You have to go down quite a ways and then you find this. And it We is- were honored by ENA, which is the most prestigious scientific institute in Mexico. You can see at the upper part of the screen, the gathering of members of the Academy for Future Science. And associates, yeah. And then at the bottom of the screen, in terms of one of the major temples there in the Palenque area, suggesting, yeah. as you just said, really the the importance of how this event, this honoring uh, of Palenque, and our research there coincided with the uh, congressional hearings that were taking place in Washington, D.C. that you were attending. Yeah, actually, you called us while we were there. But let's go on. So this is Palenque. And what people don't realize is there's a river or a canal that runs through it. This is very common in a lot of places. And uh, many of the astroarchaeologists believe that because they're making it like a river of the heavens, so that there's like the Milky Way, and they wanted to direct the river. Sometimes, you know, you think it's natural, but it happens in many places. It also happens in Ethiopia as well, where they also make a river of the heavens. So one side is the heavens, and the other side is the earth realms, which I think is really interesting. In fact, of course, we were just in Teotihuacan. Uh, We're going to show that for a moment. But also, that has a canal, a river that also goes through it from the Temple of Quetzalcoatl, to the sun and moon pyramid. Which and, is an astronomy slash astrophysics of how we are connected with the family of life in the heavens. Yeah. And how the river of life represents really the source that we're connected with on one of the banks of the rivers. Uh, the Hopis also have that as a metaphor that we're going through cosmic changes and that we should be able to navigate if we stay close to the banks of the river. So you're going to see a little bit more about how the heavens relate to uh, us on Earth. But again, if you even just look at the fact that there is this, you know, the separation between heaven and earth and the river is that Milky Way that's part of it. This is another picture in Dr. Hertak's Keys of Enoch book. 
And uh, it's very interesting because it shows the key structures, mostly in the Yucatan, Chichen Itza in the north, going through Tikal, going down to Kamenohuyu, which is in Guatemala. And at the very center here, we find Palenque. And, and the other far side is Sepultas, which is a, a certain mountain area that's also considered sacred. So when Dr. Uchak did this, most people said, oh, you know, interesting. Yeah, pyramids, triangles. Very, very interesting. But I wanted to emphasize the broken line that runs through Guatemala and Yucatan, because these broken lines represent very elaborate canal systems. Now, basically under jungle yeah, foliage. We're going to show that in a minute, but you see Rio Beck, which is a very uh, major site also being uncovered at this time. But what was interesting is that when this kid from Montreal, his name was William Goddery, um, started researching the pyramids in um, the Yucatan. And I don't believe he, at 14 years old, he had the keys of Enoch, even though we had it in the seventies, he came up with it up in the year, in the century, if I can say that. Uh, he saw that every single um, pyramid in the Yucatan is part of a greater alignment. Now he, he used a little different alignment than what we did. Uh, Dr. Hertak and Senator Chinsenitsa, he used Copan. He also used others, but he understood the same structure. And he went to the Canadian Space Agency to actually talk uh, about this and to get their radar sat information. And you can see him talking to them. You can see it's very similar, like La Venta over on one side is very close to where Dr. Hertak had it, Copan, and then Coba. And he's saying that every single one of these places aligns to a specific star region. So I just have to say it was kind of a, a young person's confirmation, but he's absolutely right. And he places Orion as a key in the center of this structure. Yeah. Right. This is very important because in the keys of Enoch, I was given a mental map, a scenario abstract of a, a map of the world showing where cosmic cultures interacted with the beginnings of human uh, evolution. And one of the areas was here in the area of Mexico, Guatemala, where there was a major civilization that we would know more about that was in contact with the intelligence from the Pleiades. So from all the pyramids that you see in the Yucatan, believe me, there's more than three or four. There's many, many, many. And there's some that haven't even been uncovered. That's what the Palenque grid said. Uh, that a very small portion has actually been uncovered. In fact, the Mexican government is totally happy that they haven't uncovered it because they have to manage it once they're uncovered. But bottom line is every single one of them relates directly to the stars. And there was a, a god, uh, goddess actually called Ixacolnuk, who's, she was the, um, lady cloth weaver. And it was believed in the Mayan culture that every single star was cosmically positioned in its rightful place. It wasn't just happenstance. It wasn't a big bang and chaos. It was very unique. Just to show people the uniqueness, this is actually in the Queen's Pyramid, uh, we'll say, of uh, Palenque. It's called the Red uh, Tomb. And this is in Palenque, which is in Mexico. And we just want to give a comparison, which is what we're going to be doing today, this is uh, the one of the red tombs in Khafre's pyramid, which is the sec- the middle pyramid. So when we were there the in the 1990s with a film crew, there was actually a bluish entity that appeared momentarily. Unfortunately, that 
a camera was stolen and with the film. Yeah. But we were doing musical enhancements with a man by the name of Alan Haworth who worked with NASA. And we had very sophisticated musical instruments recorded. So let me simply say this for the audience. We were able to work 20 years in the Yucatan, and I'm holding up now the periodical called Archaeologia, published by Ina, volume 54, where we analyzed the musical cues and sound structures of the major pyramidal tombs in Yucatan. So again, Mexico, Egypt, you can see the similarities that exist there. And this is another aspect. Here's Alan, and uh, hopefully he'll jump on and wave at us or something like that. But there he is. So you have us, Alan, and us in Egypt, and and Neil was there too. We were really happy to do that. And you see the three pyramids. Uh, This is something that Robert Bavell also picked up on, that they relate to the three stars in Orion's belt. And I would argue, and this is Alan and I at the uh, Temple of Quetzalcoatl, and that's the lower red circle on the map. It's very, very similar. You have two in alignment, and then the the pyramid of the moon. And there's you can see almost like the canal that goes through there. You look to the right of that. And so Quetzalcoatl would have been the heavenly realm. And then when we get down into the earthly realm, what do you have? The pyramid of the sun and the pyramid of the moon. Well, so some people but, say that the um, design was based on the Fibonacci curve. So there's a bigger space and a little space. And there's other pyramids on the Giza Plateau that start to duplicate the phi ratio, which is... Yeah, and maybe the whole, uh, we'll say Orion's belt, maybe is also part of that. I believe that the stars are also part of this larger green alignment. This again... Uh, Actually, we have... Somewhere we have them. Go ahead. This brings us into a much larger picture of how astrophysics and astronomy played a role in the history of evolution. That these were not just ordinary temples. These were temples of vibration. They were aligned with given star positions, particularly the belt of Orion. We found this also to be true in South Africa. We found it to be true, as we see here in Mexico, Egypt. And so there is a navigational culture, star culture, that made contact, we believe, and left behind enough evidence or made some type of impression so that people would think these huge monuments as an arrangement of three stars in the belt of Orion. And I just want to say there's probably more than 200 pyramids throughout Egypt. And this is just, uh, this is a data set for how many sacred art, uh, places there are in the Yucatan. Well, this is actually almost in Oaxaca, in the area of Campeche. These have all been now discovered by LIDAR studies from, as you see in the lower section there. And they place it back to as far as 1000 before the time of Christ. And then it seems like about five or 600 years after the time of Christ, there was a whole change in the climate and you lost pretty much a lot of the ancient culture. Of course, they're pointing this to the Olmec culture as well. In fact, they really don't know who built even the Teotihuacans. It's amazing. I just had a question. Do you go along with the fact that the word temple or template means reflection of the stars? So people on Earth build a, a, a duplicate of the stars for a, a dimensional doorway, possibly. Well, I hadn't heard the word temple means that, but well, absolutely. You, you generally, <laughs> the word was mirror of the heavens. A mirror. A template, but, temple. Yeah. Well, that's exactly what uh, the the 15-year-old kid, actually, I think he started when he was 13, 14, 15-year-old uh, kid, said that every single pyramid 
on in the Yucatan matches a star constellation. But there's so much, and that's what we're trying to show you, that the Yucatan probably had a million to two million people living there at the time of Christ. It was probably more densely populated than even the Middle East. And these are what they're finding now. So, so was there a jungle? Let me just say, was there a jungle there? Was it similar to more um, agricultural as opposed to jungle, which it is now? Well, definitely, definitely. But there was a, a matrix of canals, as you see in the upper part of the screen. This is what I was part of a jet propulsion lab survey that took place. And you can see the jungle part of the lower part of the screen. You can see the exact area, the same area at the upper part. And note the elongated uh, canal systems, which in heavy jungle is almost impossible to think of. And these are all man-made canals, probably 2,000 years old. So, uh, you know, even whether what the, we'll say what the outside looked like, it doesn't matter. But they were able to do agriculture for a million people, if not more. It's amazing what they found. They just found, and I'll go back for just a couple of slides here. Look at, these are all structures. These are primary structures and other structures. And that's over by the Bay of Campeche. They have next, uh, and then also this is what these uh, places are. You can see pyramids throughout. It's amazing. There's tons and tons and tons. And there was all water. Anyway, let's, let's look a little bit about the heavens. So according to Lena Shelley, uh, the Mayans respected the maze god, which they saw born from the turtle shell. Now, where's the turtle shell? Well, if you look at the picture, this is all the black and white here is all from archaeological uh, ruins and findings in the Mayan culture. You see the three stars of the belt of Orion on the back of the turtle shell. So basically, we are built from Orion. We are we consider Orion like the vortex point that leads to higher heavens. And when the you know, real, reality came through into, or at least you should say humanity came through into this reality. We came through the belt of Orion. So to associate the pyramids though with the belt of Orion, you would have to go back at least 12,000 years in terms of the mapping star position. So this is a much earlier history that's is, uh, being confirmed by anthropologists from different directions of Mesoamerican research. Right, and so another, uh, this is all from Linda Shelley. You can see the turtle creation. They respected the safe Rigel and the first uh, Anultak. Uh, they consider that the three hearthstones of their uh, sacred fire. And so you can see that this was part, and this is the lower part of Orion for those that are familiar with those stars. You have Betelgeuse in the north, in the further uh, north, those aren't being shown. So this is what she felt was the essence of the Mayan culture. Now let's look at it in terms of larger uh, Milky Way. And this ties in directly to what Dr. Herjack also wrote in the Keys of Enoch. On one side, you have Orion. If you look in the lower part of the sphere, and this is just the heavens around us. The lower right side. And the upper side, you see Draco and the uh, Ursa Minor and also ultimately in that area, Ursa Major constellation. We believe this is showing the duality of our system, and we think that this is actually part of, we'll take another quick look at Orion to see the three stars in the belt, the pyramid, and what it looks like. But this also ties directly into also the Lakota knowledge. Let's take a look at this. This is so important when we're talking about true history. Particularly the type of, ceremonial arrangement they had from the standpoint of anthropology slash astrophysics, you have the same alignments. 
And Desiree, you can lead us as we look at the bottom of the figure going to the upper right-hand side. Right. So this is the Lakota star knowledge. And they had the three belt stars of Orion. This is a whole structure is called Tayamni. And uh, it consists in the set in the lower between the first two arrows. You see the Mintaka, Analam, and Analtak. And then you have the next level is the ribs, which consists of the stars Rigel on one side, Betelgeuse on the other. And then the Sinte is the brightest star in the night sky, Sirius. It's connected with the Canis major constellation. You're going to see the same cosmology in the Great Pyramid. This so different cultures in- of the world from different timelines all pointing to what we will call the stargates in the ancient language, the prophets, the Sha'ara, the stargates that open, allowing us to entertain really the master plan or the master universe behind the physical universe connected with the star systems of Orion as the belt of initiation. Right. And so one, all right, I'm going to jump. Uh, okay. We're going to come back to showing a little bit more of that, but I just want to say, how did we lose all this information? How did it go away? Well, the Aztecs tell us that there were five different uh, sun uh, cycles. And we know, and many people feel that we are in part of one of those right now. So let's take a look at what that is. Well, the first is the jaguar sun. The second is the wind sun. The third, and I want to emphasize this, was the rain sun. It was a sign to fire and Kaloch was the principal god. We saw that name also in Tiwakan because that was, even though it was considered also Mayan and Aztec together. And that whole cycle was destroyed by a great fiery rain. That could be something like maybe a meteorite that had hit the planet. Right. So we have then on the fourth, the water sun assigned to uh, the, should we say the cataclysmic cycles of water, and finally the earthquake sun, which of course is our turned age, and deals also with the uh, effect of the sun on the Earth's surface mantle, as well as the episodes of what we'll call increasing uh, earthquakes that are taking place in volcanic activity. So it's interesting that they have, well, pinpointed the last four, and now maybe, really, um, maybe pointing to the last fifth that's coming up. That's just something to show why that some of these cycles are unknown in the past because they... Wait, this is happening now, the earthquake sun, or are we moving That's what they feel we're in right now. The, well, not, that? That's that? the next stage. The next stage is going to be earthquakes. Oh. Uh, and that's yeah. what's going to destroy our planet, according what to the you? ancient Aztec culture. What should we do about it? <laughs> well, we have to have a better psychology. and We have to be able to be out of cities because places of population uh, concentration will be devastated by the lack of food and water resources if cataclysmic uh, geology is the tune of the day. So well, we're not saying it's going to be in the next two or three years. So uh, we're just saying that this is what... But I think people need to know what the National Geographic... Uh, uh, information from Central America has shown us that huge city states were destroyed because of uh, planetary change. Yes, and that's that's what we're trying to show here because a lot of the information was lost as to why Orion or why Alpha Deconis or why Sirius were keys, and we're going to get to that 
But I first want to say about some of the ancient knowledge. I mean, first of all, Cynthia was from Harvard University. Well, okay, we haven't gotten there yet. So we're, we're about to now keep in Mexico for just a little bit longer. And, you know, there's a very big volcano in Mexico, and everyone should know that that's called Popocatepetl. Um, I don't pronounce it perfectly, but basically it's right by one of the largest cities in all of Mexico called Puebla. And there was a basin called Valsaquillo, which a virtual friend of ours, Alan, did a great video on to say what had happened there. Well, when this young girl, Cynthia Williams, published her first paper, she was a Harvard um, archaeologist. And she was back, really, we'll say a long time in, in the 70s, she did this research. Um, she was actually originally from the area of Colorado. And she kept doing radiocarbon dating of animal remains, which proved to be over 35,000 years ago. And then uranium dating produced ages up to 260,000 years ago in terms of showing that there were burials, other that there was humanity. Well, we won't say humanity in the sense we know, but hominids that had existed there in this area 260,000 years ago. And so she basically got kicked out of uh, her job, and she suffered. You see her picture there in the lower right-hand part of the screen, a remarkable woman of scientists who paid the price of saying what we consider to be ground truth. And yes, our, our work has been with um, professional archaeologists, geologists, linguists. Again, I want to emphasize this, that we work on very high levels behind the scenes because the information is quite startling and shocking that we've been compressing history into the last six to 12,000 years when we obviously have found evidence now going much earlier, both in Mesoamerica as well as in Egypt. Right. So this is, she found stone tools. I forgot to mention those, <laughs> that important fact going back in the area of Pueblo, Mexico, which is a volcano very close to uh, also Mexico City. Going back 35,000 years ago, maybe even 260,000 uh, 260, years ago. I have to say, we were just in Mexico with Jaime Malsan, famous ufology researcher. And he has on his big screen a camera that watches this Popo volcano. And there's always UFOs around it. And it's been spewing from time to time. And it does it on a regular basis. We believe that the UFOs are there to protect the civilization, to try to neutralize the magna flow that's underneath this huge volcano to try to really preserve humanity a little bit longer. So it's very exciting to see the UFOs. You can check it out. Uh, uh, many people have I talked would, about it. I would prefer it. to use the word paraphysical phenomena because UFOs tend to look at the old uh, vocabulary of structure technology. I brought with me a picture showing uh, uh, a light that appeared at one of our, our locations in Mexico when we were doing research. And the light takes on the form of a dove. We think of what the Keys of Enoch speak of, the return of the dove, that higher intelligence will use symbolic forms and manifestations to manifest the importance of key areas where archival information is being found. So let's go on. And, you know, it's not just in Mexico, because if you live near San Diego, you can go to the museum there. 
and you find that there were mammoth bones uh, placed, they think, by some sort of hominid creation. That could be Neanderthals or anything else. that Over 130,000 years ago. Right. And they actually, because they were laid out in a logical pattern, they've now been moved to the museum in San Diego. We actually went to see it recently. It was very, very interesting to be able to go and see these bones. But just to say that there has been humanity around for a long time. And Alan, you and I have spent time out towards uh, Joshua Tree. And uh, there's also what's considered the Calico Early Man tools. So these could go back as much as exactly, well, 200,000 years ago that people actually lived in these areas, had stone tools, and you can see them right here. The The normal tradition it would be 18,000 to 20,000 years ago. The more far out would be 200,000 to 20,000 years ago. And you can well, see we, them. They're tools. We saw that in the Egyptian museum, actually. Mohammed pointed out that there may be cycles of time where there are great civilizations and their civilizations collapse and then they have to return to stone tools because sometimes these stone tools are actually early or later than the temples, the great temples that were created before them. So there are cycles of time. And I always think, well, what if they find our civilization a hundred, a thousand years later? What will they think of who we were? Maybe there'll be primitives that find us, or maybe it'll be an advanced civilization, or maybe we'll be them. But, you know, it's fascinating, the mysteries of ancient of the ancient past. So this is our true history. Yeah, and just a few more little points. This is where we've investigated in South America. Yeah, and this is from Wikipedia because actually Wikipedia is pretty conservative, but they actually point out these civilizations going back 11,000, 13,000. And this is the place we've worked, Boquerea, Pedro Ferrada, which really seems to go back as much as 50,000 years ago. We have some pictures of that. It's like a Stonehenge in Brazil. And then Monte Verde also maybe going back 33,000 years ago. So, you know, going, it's, this is where we are at. This is what history is. And again, Wikipedia is very conservative in terms of what it puts out, but it can't ignore the facts any longer. Very interesting. This is uh, the uh, Nature magazine. In terms of the Pedro Ferrada, there were hearths and they were line drawings. The line drawings, you can go back to 17,000, the hearths to 32,000 years ago. And then they did ABOX, which is acid-based wet oxidation on ash samples that went back 55,000 to 59,000 years ago. So this is just basically what is what exists around the planet when you talk about true history. We really have civilizations going much further back. Let's go on to some other interesting places in South America. So are we looking at hominids? So we're looking at um, variations of human anatomy here. On the left side of the screen, we see the various face forms, skulls that have been recovered from the Carpathian Mountains of East Europe, and later in Austria, and of course in Peru in particular. And then in the center of the upper and lower pictures on the left, we see a, a type of triangular face. This was found in the jungles of Venezuela by a colleague of mine. So there have been in the indigenous traditions, various types of, of star nations or people have visited. In fact, one of them, the more local visitors look like what we have pictured on the right-hand side of the screen, a picture drawn by one of my colleagues. It was also common in Egyptian 
uh, hieroglyphs and, and paintings of the tombs, this elongated skull. And I often say, you know, my skull might go back a little bit, and you see that in certain um, skull uh, mummy skulls, but you couldn't get my skull to be that high. I don't care how many cloths you wrapped around it. I think they were trying to look like the wise ones. But this is the contemporary people. visitor. I, pitch, I show this picture at the first disclosure conference in Washington, D.C. in 1995. The elongated head. But then look at the details of the dress that was seen on this figure. With, it looks like uh, monolithic staircases on left and right side. Well, it so happened that we were involved with Dr. Shock in Yonaguni, Japan, uh, doing underwater surveys of alleged ancient uh, societies. And the staircases that we came across look exactly like what we see here on the garments of these uh, stellar visitors. And you also find it in Bolivia and in the border of Peru, these same staircases. Let me ask you something. When you wrap the skull like that, it obviously changes the neurology. Does it change thought? No, but I'm saying these people did not have, they couldn't, they they tried to wrap the skull, but that's not who these beings are. That the, the African cultures and the other cultures later, because they try to mimic what they had seen to be kind of shamanistic, they tried to do that. But there's no way that you can get that much of a skull out of almost any of our heads. So that's these just, are alien skulls, you're saying. these are alien skulls. And of course, a lot of have been found now over close to Nazca. And I just want to say we were just with uh, Jaime Malsan again. And you can see this is the Paracas culture. And the stone tools have been uh, dated as far back as 8,000 years. But you, you find these elongated skulls all over the place. And also here's the mummy from um, the Nazca mummy. And, you know, a lot of people put this down and say it's fake. But when you really look at the genetic blueprint and you look at the reality of it there are three fingers on the hands interesting uh the last steve mara showed the um uh also the event in brazil and Virginia. they had three fingers as well so I, I was there in Virginia, as you know uh alan with the yeah. top experts looking at the physical uh specimens of which there were four at that time upwards of 20 uh all together were found and sent to medical labs for uh, an examination. In the essence, we are beginning to realize we're just one of many species, perhaps hundreds of different races in our physical universe. I want to just ask you, while we're on the elongated skulls, Akhenaten of Egypt is seen, his statues have very elongated skulls. So he was- uh, He may have been one of those races that had come yeah. down and then began to help us. I mean, this mummy, in terms of uh, the one Jaime has been working with, uh, Maria and Vavita, and then also the little bodies, um, they are probably not that old, but they could be offspring from those other civilizations. But they do seem to have a, a higher technology. And So we're working with paleontologists and cultural anthropologists who say these are real areas of an earlier humanity. That was on the planet. Uh, of course, there's the big debate. Are they true extraterrestrials? Or are they simply terrestrials that we have glorified through cultural mythology? So let's go on. And I just want to this just came out in nature. So we had to put it in December 2023, a 27,000 year old pyramid controversy hits bold claim. And this is 
uh, a pyramid called Gunung Padang, and it's in the area of Indonesia. And, uh, you know, I mean, they're claiming it's older than Gobekli Tepe, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, and the current uh, historic bar. And Nature Magazine is the most sophisticated scientific magazine in English in the entire world. So it's an amazing thing. Um, it says it would be much older than Egyptians' Great Pyramids if it's even human made at all is what they say. But, of course, it's really they're kind of playing games with it, but it's so old. So not even the pyramids. And of course, what did Muhammad say? How old did he say, Alan, the pyramids were? Well, you could say they're at least 30,000 years old, but also don't forget Graham Hancock just did a very amazing special on uh, ancient apocalypse. He includes a lot of this work, but he comes to different conclusions than we do. So let's look at the pyramids as they exist around the world. You've been to the Bosnian pyramid. Were you impressed? Did you feel it was the real thing? Inside, yes. Yeah, well, actually, you go into the tunnels because uh, there nearby. Were blue, there was blue uh, lights that appeared when we used mantrams. And again, I wanted to stress what you and Desiree discussed at the beginning. We're not dealing with phenomena, but noumena, mental events that can be recorded. We've been able to film the lights, the paraphysical, sound structures, and also we emphasize in our teaching that unless we activate the right hemisphere of the brain through sound, uh, the intellectual side, the left right, cannot fully understand or comprehend why these temples were also connected with the balance of sound vibration. And one had to engage in some fashion with the ration of consciousness through sounds in order to understand that we were biotransducers or living vehicles of sound vibration, which is part of the greater interconnection we have, the interlocking keys, as it were, with the cosmic self. So the pyramid represents really the Bible in stone, the archive of information, the chart of different levels of the human evolution, as we see here from different parts of the world. Yeah, it, it, this is just giving you a chart of the heights of many of them. And, of course, the Pyramid of the Sun that you and I were just at is really one of the tallest in the world, although the base figures are sometimes very similar to each other. Let's look at what Dr. Jack said, going back to the idea of Osiris, um, sorry, yeah, Orion, Sirius, and Alfred Dakona. The keys of Enoch tell us key 108. During previous geomagnetic cycles, the north star shaft of the Great Pyramid originally pointed towards the circumpolar star of Alfred Dakonis. In the south, Starship pointed towards the Taurus Orion constellations. Taurus being, of course, the sacred bull. Orion represented the three stars in the belt of Orion or the belt of the swordsman who kills the bull or the sacred symbol of the stars. So we see anthropology on both sides being reflected. One towards Orion, which would be positive centropy, the electrification of matter positive energy or discharge connected with the system of Orion. The other uh, negative entropy connected with Alpha Draconis, the dragon-like downward spiral of life. And so we have to choose in this type of symbolic structure, do we go with the higher or do we go with the lower spiral? Right. And so uh, where's, you know, where are we in all of this? Well, why is this significant? Well, this is, we're in the Orion arm connected with our Milky Way. If you look at the sun in the center, this is the Orion arm. You can see Orion's belt stars 
are not that far away. If you look to the left of where it says sun, you get the idea of maybe why they're talking about this. But also the whole dichotomy that we live in this dualistic system. And scientists were not aware in the 1970s that we were, I'm thinking it in general, that we were in the arm of Orion. This was uh, pointed out to me by by my contact with, with Enoch, who also said our sun was a variable star, which was also rejected in the 1970s and proven later to be true in, in the first decade of the 20th first century. And I just want to say, because the Pleiades is also an important star system, and in Dr. Hertag's Key 407, uh, we have this picture that you have Sirius coming from the Queen star shaft, Orion coming from the King star shaft, and if you draw a line between them, you'll actually end up at the Pleiades. And we do believe the Pleiades is really our source of our Adamic species. We are an Adamic species, and we exist in other parts of the universe. And the structures we make point to our heritage, our, we'll say, our cosmic family. So, again, the use of certain terms like Adamic, meaning Adam and Eve, who were able to talk with the divine mind or higher intelligence, but as opposed also, to yeah. the hominid intelligence that was not able to fully navigate through the stars with adequate cosmic language. But when I say Adamic, I'm speaking male and female as well. So this is what is in the Keys of Enoch, showing that dichotomy with uh, the swordsman of Orion on one side and the Alpha Draconis on the other as part of the larger body of Nut. And around the focus of the human initiate, we see uh, vibrations of music connected with the angelic uh, figure at the bottom. And this is the prelude to our finding of the tomb of Osiris the lord of, of or teacher of Egypt who brings music to the planet. And by using musical cues and ground penetrating radar, we were able to locate the tomb of Osiris in 1997. This is very important because with the finding of the tomb of Osiris, according to Egyptian mythology, the godhead will return. So I just want to say the importance of the pyramid before we get to the tomb, that there's an energy structure just by the very fact of the limestone that's there the quartz that's in the limestone the other um, materials there's also that are energizing these structures and the itmo university which is in moscow actually took models they didn't take the pyramid this is not energy from the pyramid but they made similar models and they used electromagnetic waves from the 200 and 600 meter wavelength and they saw these naturally occurring energies that take place inside the pyramid itself so amazing, and as you know, the, there's also the scan project going on where muons are being uh, bombarded. Bombarded. Well, it's a natural bombardment, but they're using uh, like an X-ray plate to analyze it. And when there's holes and and voids in the pyramid and the X-ray plate, they're actually saying that these are structures that are missing. So there could be many more structures. So the Japanese and the French scientists involved with the scan project have been able to find at least three other rooms or chambers that are very significant, as you see in the upper right part of the screen. We've had the opportunity to work in the lower part underneath Egypt, where we have found other evidence of a vast labyrinthian tunnel system and other information that we'll be bringing out in our new publications this coming year dealing with Giza's industrial complex. So there was not only rooms of initiation teaching, but actual areas where gases were made and used for the inner light system that allowed the Egyptians or those that preceded them 
to connect the whole labyrinthian system with lighting techniques. Right, and so we're going to see that in a few moments, but just to say that it's more than three pyramids, as you were saying earlier, Alan, that there's actually nine pyramids uh, on the plateau. Uh, there's uh, major pyramids. Yeah, well, there's three big ones and six little queen's pyramids, but you can see all the different, uh, we'll say, tombs and areas that are on there in this uh, special graph that was analyzed and done. We've done some of that grafting. But here we go back to this famous uh, exploration in 1997. I'm there with two of my colleagues, and we're using uh, what we call ground penetrating radar, which you can see in the foreground on the right, by one of the smaller pyramids. And so here we start going into the uh, tomb of Osiris, which is actually just a little bit further down from this. We're not actually showing the actual tomb location here. But it's along the avenue. This is very important because this is a reference obliquely in the scriptures of the New Testament. And this is a rough copy of it. But you go down a little ways, then you go all the way down this huge ladder. Ultimately, three different levels that we were able to go and explore because the Nile River was very low at the time and we were fortunate to be there during our studies. Now, I had in my cosmic contact with Enoch been shown an underground labyrinthian system and more specifically where we would go to find a particular tomb. And so following this, along with the intuitions that we had as a team, we were fortunate enough to go down to the third level where we were able to scrape sand off uh, the upper part of the surface. Which we'll see, show you in a minute, but just to say that this is 30 meters or 100 feet when you finally get down to the lower area. There I am. This is what it looks like from the lower part of the ladder. And then also, as Dr. Hertax, using the same equipment we had used up above, pointing to the tomb. Here we are. My foot is on the tomb lid itself. The cameras are there. Everything had to be lowered by c- cables because there was no light. We had to bring in our own light sources. As you can see here, it didn't take too much to find the the lid of the Osiris tomb. Unfortunately, we didn't have permission to excavate. We had permission to film, which we've done, be the actual film underground, as well as to explore through remote sensing technology. But the Egyptians then took over our project. They made it their project. But we were there to find the lid two years before the Fox Television News release special that was made in 1999 with Maury Povich and Dr. Zai Hawass, who claimed that they were there at the first, that they referenced that there was an earlier group there two years before, which is our research team, as we see here in the underground passageway. Right. And so these were pillars. The guy sitting on one of the pillars, there's four pillars on each side. And again, you're 100 feet down under the Giza Plateau, right on pretty much underneath the causeway from the middle pyramid to the Sphinx. So this just, is highlighted in our book, which we encourage everyone to get. It's available on Amazon or on our website, keysofenoch.org. So uh, it shows uh, this information, but it also shows what we uh, believe to be the case in uh, Giza. And that is that Giza itself was a way. Now we are an energy production machine which hydraulic water pumping systems, as you see here at the bottom of the screen, were used to bring water up and then through uh, gases reactions in the interior, hydrogen was produced. Right. And you may remember, Alan, as we walked up the Grand Gallery, there's little notches on each side of it, perfectly notched on each side, one across from the other. 
And if they had put an anode and cathodes in there, they could have produced what we're showing here, gas, and particularly hydrogen gas, to be used in the um, in the pyramid itself. I'm showing the actual drawing that Desiree has made on the screen. If you can look at the upper right side, you'll see how easy it was for the Egyptians to take salt water and fresh water and create hydrogen. Now, there's been several oh, books. What, wait, wait, what, I'm just kidding. What did they do with the hydrogen? Uh, what no, was we're going to look at it. We, we okay. believe they were able to do this in several structures. Here's one that's an ancient writing. We're going to read it, what Herodotus said. This is in Lake Morris. This is about a couple hour drive south of Giza. And they said that the pyramids went down into this lake as much as they were above. And you can look at the top. They're almost like lighthouses. What could they do with it? Well, we use hydrogen. For agriculture, we use hydrogen for energy technology, and people are, like you, Alan, drinking hydrogen water. You wanted to say about that in one second about hydrogen water? Hydrogen is the foundation of the physical world creation, so everything goes back to hydrogen. So hydrogen is uh, antioxidant. It is uh, a healing gas if you take it. Well, the Egyptians knew about the hydrogen molecule in their pictures, and in this very special Russian drawing made by Russian uh, Egyptologists in the 19th century that I was fortunate to get a hold of. So this is from Herodotus, you know, before the time of Christ. In about the middle, what, what was that drawing that JJ just showed? Oh no, this is, what we're, this is what we're talking about. In the middle of the lake stand two pyramids, and this is Herodotus, right? So he's before Christ, and he's writing about it. And this is at Lake, the area of Fayum, Lake Morris, and about. In the middle of the lake stand two pyramids that top the, wa- the water. That means they go higher than the water. Each one is 50 phantoms, and each one is built as much again underwater. And on top of each, there is a huge stone figure of a man sitting on a throne. So these pyramids are 100 phantoms high, and these 100 phantoms are equivalent to 600-foot furlong, the phantom measuring six feet or four cubits, the six cubits, being each span. So you can see, literally, I'll go back again, how Where are these, these pyramids now? Or are they the pyramids? That no, are- no, totally destroyed, totally gone. We've gone to the lake. We've been on a boat in the lake, but you don't see them anymore. They've been taken down, if I can say that. So, but interesting. Pyramid that exists now, that uh, could they be the pyramids that exist now? No, there's the one at Al-Fayyum that's also different. But if you go to Al-Fayyum, that pyramid where there's supposedly the labyrinth, which is 3,000 rooms. So we've gone into the pyramid. There's water. And what we're saying is that the water is critical for all these pyramids because they were literally energy-generating machines. Now, we also believe they were used for initiation because if you have water, you can be initiated. You drink hydrogen water from time to time, Alan, for your own health. But you can be initiated also with the power of energized water. And my colleagues at Stanford Research Institute in 1976 examined uh, archaeological areas just uh, outside the paws of the Great Sphinx of Egypt and found that there was a water basin there that presumably had been used for ritualistic purposes of baptism. In fact, there was a popular thing that just came out on most people's phones saying, water built the pyramids. Well, they were just saying water was the way to bring the barges to the pyramids. But actually, you see, it was much closer. The Nile flowed and somehow maybe through the course of building the Aswan Dam, the course of the river changed and 
we don't have that same association with pyramid, but even your friend, the Egyptian um, scholar, what's his name, Abrahim, talks about water and pyramids. Right. Yes, and you can see here from Abu Ghraib, which is just the next uh, pyramid structure down from the three pyramids, that basically all the causeways, even those of the Great Pyramid, the, you know, you're referring pyramid. to Ibrahim Karim, yeah. one of my yeah. great Egyptian yeah. colleagues. But they all went to the Nile. They well, all so had. here, looking now further down the Nile, you see this concept of how the pyramids were connected with the water sources, and there was actual hydraulic uh, tunnel systems. Right. And so, okay, you asked, well, what could they have done with it? Well, you look at. Uh, the area of Dendera, where we also were with you, Alan, and you see this interesting little snake-like thing that goes through a type of glass tube, and there's Dr. Hertag standing there. But let's look at what, uh, if I can get this to play, what um, Eric von Doniken says about it. I'm hearing sound. But he duplicated. Look at the matching. He duplicated, and what did he make to light it up? Well, you can use you can well, use you can hydrogen have, gas. You can use hydrogen gas. You can produce neon gas. And then actually, this took place in the year 2000, and Austria was one of the guest speakers with some of the Egyptologists, and a model was made of the so-called uh, snake-like. Projection of the glass tubular forms into the hieroglyphics. So maybe that's how they built and decorated their tombs. They had hydrogen gas, which you would not normally then find. Uh, it wouldn't soot the uh, ceiling or anything like that. And people are always wondering, how can you do things a hundred uh, feet down, 30 meters down? Because even the tomb of Osiris had edges. If you don't see any soot marks anywhere. This is amazing. Anyway, let's go on to just, we're going to wrap it up in the next 10 minutes because our time is short. But just to say, Giza's not alone. You go down. You in the case of Enoch, there's a world bridge system, a map. And then from the Sphinx, there's a line that comes all the way down to South Africa, which you've mapped here. But there's also Napta. You can see what the uh, direction is east degree. So you have 3113 is Giza. That's, that's on the border of Egypt and Sudan. You get Napta, th- 42 degrees east. And then you get Adam's calendar, 30.76. So it's not even one degree. One degree is 111 kilometers. You're not even 111 kilometers off of the whole uh, alignment going all the way down to Adam's calendar. Let's show you these pictures very quickly. So here's Nopta. It's basically a stone circle, somewhat similar to Stonehenge. And they found megalithic alignments there. They've also found uh, burial uh, things of animals, the uh, people live there, cattle bur- burials, you can see right there. Then let's go down to Adam's calendar. I'm saying with Capitan Luis Laura March. In 2008, we did some research there. And again, the heel stone, which I'm saying above, connects with the configuration of stones very much like Stonehenge, but also it exemplifies the three stones in the Bell of Orion. Now, of course, Michael Tillinger has taken this to a greater alignment, and you see those three stones there. It's right on the edge of a cliff, so they could have used it for the star alignments. And uh, amazing, uh, and it's not just Adam's uh, calendar. There's actually many crawls. There's a lot of things around there, but this is probably the most interesting. But there's many. It's so we're very like excited. We're very excited because we've been there in South Africa. We've been there in Egypt. We've been there in Mexico. We've been there in China. We've been all over 
showing that there is a a mapping that ancients had in their mind of the stars. And Orion was the stargate. In fact, we were told uh, by the late American writer Brad Steiger, some of the early Christian cultures would have in the prayer, Our Father who art in Orion, hallowed be thy name. Yeah. Orion was associated with the home of the Supreme One, the star gates to the master universe right. behind the physical universe. So we don't personally think that it's to it's a gateway to the higher lordship, to the higher heavens, because our universe is only one level of many heavens. But everything is mathematical, Dr. Herjack in the Keys of Enoch. And everything is musical. So you put the two together and you begin to see the Bible beyond the Bible or within the Bible as well as the ancient texts of the Far East and the nearer uh, aspects of Yucatan and the New World. Here is the star map from Enochi 215 of the 12 areas of the world that were visited by the ancients. And Desiree, you can take it from the far right of the screen. Right, we're placing the Great Pyramid at the center and using the tribes of Israel as reported in numbers, this is what Dr. Hertak did in the Keys of Enoch, to go around to show sacred areas. In other words, the tribes of Israel were a symbolic model of the human race of different parts of history who were liberated by those uh, angels or messengers from the star cultures. And each place that the star that goes from the Great Pyramid, if you go over like a circle, you will find sacred areas. So you find the Azores being one, you find the area of Mexico being another, you find Hawaii actually is another one, and that's you have the heiaus, which are types of temples, pyramid structures. Then you go around again and you find ancient areas in the Pacific. And then what Dr. Hertak really likes is the area goes right through the Isle of Flores, which is the place where you had the little hobbits. And Here's also, our work here on Fiona Guni. In 1997-98. So it also goes through the area of Yanaguni, which is underwater structures showing previous civilizations as far away as the Pacific. And you can see uh, our work with Dr. Robert Schock in an article published in another one of our books called Consciousness, Energy, and Future Science, available on our website, Keys of Enoch. So putting all of this together, we're just beginning to open up the back door to history. We're realizing that we are part of a schoolhouse of knowledge and that we must put the pieces together. As the Russians have done with this artificial pyramids, they built Alexander Golod as one who has built 17 pyramids in eight different locations in Russia out of synthetic material, but still the energy principle still applies. Right, and I just want to say that the largest one he made is 144 feet or 44 meters and it weighs 55 tons it's actually quite light 55 tons is not a lot considering one of the blocks in the great pyramid usually they're two to three tons but the ones up in the king's chamber can weigh as much as 50 to 80 tons so uh, this whole pyramid weighs that uh, it has the same abilities it actually has the colleagues of ours in russia have done musical test and the psychology is improved the pathogenic Strength of different viruses and bacteria become less when exposed to the energy of the pyramid inside. Agricultural seeds actually show an increase in yield. So all the effects that uh, that our old friend uh, Pat Flanagan talked about Dr. Pat Flanagan. in his book Pyramid Power uh, actually can happen even in these kind of, uh, we'll say, fiberglass type so, of pyramids. Uh, Pat Flanagan recommended our new book, Giza's Industrial Complex, as the Rosetta Stone 
of how light energy was used. And so all throughout history, if we can recapitulate, revolves around the shape of sacred geometry. And we're at a point now putting the pieces together like musical notes and a great orchestration of life and evolutionary change that's now upon us. And so we're just going to close with the fact that pyramids are not unique on the planet because they've also been seen in the sky. And here's pictures from the USS Kidd and USS Raphael at Paralada and the USS John Finn when they saw these unusual structures and also the fact that uh, this strange structure, which Jaime Mosan also confirmed, was seen over the Pentagon in December of 2018. Uh, it also appears in the Keys of Enoch as the first picture in 1973, 50 years ago. This color uh, of a bluish type of capstone floating above the world, as we see here, with the scroll of the ancients in the background, reminds us that the architects of the higher world are coming back to the scene of the human experiment. We must have spiritual love and compassion to complete the story. Otherwise, it's just information. So here we're seeing before our eyes the capstone of higher knowledge descend over the Pentagon. And according to Jaime Malsan, four different people saw this in three different locations. This We are the geometry of life. The pyramid is the geometry of evolution, the balance of the weights and measures of all levels of knowledge, science, and astronomy. But we are the temple of understanding. We are the missing capstone. With that in mind, we can go ahead, as you've seen over Moscow, the pyramidal geometry appears to remind the superpowers that we are being watched. We are being prepared. We must take now extraordinary steps to see a higher type of unity of spiritual knowledge, cultural as well as scientific knowledge converge upon our heads. Is uh, Neil with us for as we do a closing? Or other one? Oh, there he is. Okay, so we're just going to finalize this. Oh, I can't let that go. So the next one is Making Contact with Alan Seifel, which we're a part of. And it's also talking about consciousness. We didn't talk about consciousness much here, but basically we believe that anytime you've even seen a UFO, you're entangled with it. You're consciously connected. Consciousness expands and you become aware of your multidimensional existence. And we also want to say that it's not just extraterrestrials. We believe there's ultra-terrestrials and extra-celestials that are also watching and protecting us. A far greater family that we're being prepared to connect with, as Desiree okay. shows yeah. here. Yeah, we're just going to ra- we'll say a couple little things. We have sounds that we've done in the Great Pyramid. And you can get this on our website. Keysofenoch.org. The opening of the Great Pyramid, the actual sounds that produce light inside the pyramid. But we don't want to, we want to wrap it up about a few final pictures. We ask that we visualize now in a type of meditation that we are in the Temple of the Ancients. The pillar of light is above us. We are moving into a pillar of light and through the pillar of light, of higher knowledge, wisdom, and compassion will be guided to be a light unto the nations. Mm. And so we are blessed, as we see here, even with the spheres of light that appeared in the Great Pyramid, when we use the ancient Egyptian, Aramaic, and Hebrew mantums of light, as small shields or apports appeared, orbs, if you will, with very specific geometric design patterns. And here we see the actual picture of how the Great Pyramid was lit up when I began to sing the ancient mantras of the holy names of God. This is an illustration that each pyramid of the world is a model of the temple of the Most High. But that requires our voice, our heart, 
our minds to be synchronized in proper balance and proper attunement, that we are part of a greater family of creation. We are being prepared to be cosmic citizens. In biblical language, we are being prepared to join the house of many mansions. We are being prepared to be elevated in unity, in orchestration, and in spiritual balance in all levels of the seven seals or chakras of our body temple. And therefore, we bless all of you listening to this lecture, this presentation of opening the back door to history and the front door to new history for all of that rests upon the ability to realize that we are divine sparks in human form. We are the way showers, the temple of the ancients, which is within our hearts. And as we open our hearts, we become citizens of the divine. The parousia of the second return is now upon us. So be a blessing to all of us as we see in the cosmogram. And we were happy to have Neil and Alan with us, uh, with Portal to Ascension in Egypt. Uh, we didn't do a great collective picture. We should have done that. Otherwise, I should be showing it right now. But uh, we had that uh, joy and that sharing together. With, with Neil and, and you, Alan, in Egypt, for those who were in unique areas using the mantrams, actually... The uh, walls began to open momentarily and people saw hieroglyphic figures, details, and they were of different cultural backgrounds. And so people realized that the pyramids themselves have a higher type of energy coding that you can see when you get into a paraphysical stream of consciousness. So from the eye at the beginning, at the top, to the eye at the bottom of human self-realization, we are, as it were, the manifestation of the Homo Deus, the human and the divine coming together. Thank you. And if you want more information about us, go to keysofenoch.org and uh, keep listening to Portal to Ascension. Be joyous, be hopeful, realize that life is eternal. And we are here in the schoolhouse of the ancients as students of the future. Has nice music at the end there. Um, I think they said it. They said we're at the precipice of the second coming. Oh, well, okay. Uh, and um, <clears throat> indeed, that is so, so, um, I'll just read this front part of um, Aurora Ray. There are countless beings across the vastness of space who would give anything to be where we are at this moment. However, only a limited number are permitted to be born during this period to witness the remarkable growth of consciousness within an entire species. You are one of them. That's the word of Aurora here. Gateway to the Golden Age. Uh... Uh, okay, well, I'm gonna, gonna just leave that. And then I have, um, 
Joy Yaxin, Aluna Joy Yaxin. Uh, this is called the Star Elders. And she says, the last step, mastering the physical world. I mean, those of us who are on the ground right now are, we're in an, an ex- extraordinary point of evolution, uh, witnessing this. Uh, so this is the last step. This is us mastering the material physical world within the new cycle. This is the meeting of our new selves. Our dense physical bodies are the last step in crossing the bridge. Finally, landing in the new frequencies and entering the new world, we have have envisioned. This has been the tricky part. We skipped this step in ages past, so we are novices in this process. We have never done this one before with human bodies. Rather, we are... Uh, yet we are about to, excuse me, turn the page, (laughs) amazing. I noticed some significant shifts around the end of 2023 and the beginning of 2024, and it's taking me this, it's taking me this long to post about it. This phase of our ascension process is so utterly unknown to our body. Yet the deal is, we did decide to go through the shift of the ages with our physical body this time around. So, what will we experience when our bodies start letting go of the past cycle and begin clearing space for the new frequencies to flow in? This is feeling really weird. We may have mastered our spirit, minds, hearts, and consciousness, yet our physical bodies are the last to get on board with the process of landing into the new frequencies. This is because our physical bodies were created in the past cycle without out-of-date laws of creation. Can you make a little tea, Rama? Okay. Thank you. That would be great. Just to- It's still cold here. (laughs) Um, This is because our physical bodies were created in the past cycle without uh, with out-of-date laws of creation. This phase of our evolution is creating a lot of strange physical symptoms we have not encountered before. Deactivated and decomposing primal programs from the past are still lodged deep within our home, our bones. Some of these deactivated programs are over 10,500 years old. These are outdated operating systems and meshed with the leftover residue of past issues, traumas, betrayal, wounds, etc. that are simply not in your conscious memory any longer. Do you have, do, I mean, you have done the work. You will not be able to, have you done the work? Okay. You will not be able to understand this final process with your mind. This phase will not make sense logically. Our bodies are learning how to let go of primal survival, linear mind-based programming, and surrendering to the next operating system. 
that is based on the ever-changing world of spirit. It is not linear. This is a matrix-like, multispherical reality where everyone we are is always now. The new symptoms could feel like our nervous system is quacking, quaking, (laughs) yet it's not our nervous system. It is the old stuck programs that are desperate to drop away. It is natural for our bodies to hang on to old programs, even though they have been deactivated. It is linked to our primal survival instincts. Yet this, yet this rigidity based on control will drop away. It has to. There is no other way. The only way out is through. We have never done this before. So here we go. Breathe. Okay. It might feel weird when walking, like floating, like like we are not quite in our bodies, yet not ungrounded. In a way, our bodies are not our bodies anymore. What we see with our eyes may feel surreal. I just mentioned to Dougie a couple hours earlier that things are feeling quite surreal right about now. There's that lovely word. We had attached and enmeshed our identity with the old operating system. We are learning to detach our identity from this old false operating system. We might feel dysphoria or general dissatisfaction, anxiety, or restlessness. Sensitive is the new strong, the power of empaths, In an increasingly harsh world, our bodies are working hard to catch up with all emerging new realities, and the pace of our awakening will begin to take on a multiplying rate of speed. Um, This could create confusion, disillusion, overwhelm, insomnia, anxiety, the feeling of losing one's identity, and on the physical level, a cortisol overload. We are rebooting our identity by separating it from a survival-based, fear-based operating system to a system based on loving, limitlessness, and thriving in the ever-changing flow of spirit. We are learning to surf the unlimited spherical matrix of possibilities, that are manifesting in a variety of new frequencies and possible realities. We are definitely on the bridge between what was and what will be. We are getting to know ourselves again, the new person emerging in this new cycle. Who we were in the past is not who I will be. We change as we leave the last cycle behind and enter the next cycle as twice-born human beings. This is exciting because most who read this will know we cannot continue the very the way humanity is now. There are unlimited possibilities out in front of us. The trick is to wait for the right frequency, 
for it to come to us before we leave. Many are feeling quite quite stalled, even lethargic, for longer than we expected. This can be frustrating, and we might try to push it. We might try on different frequencies to see as it fits. Yet this option will waste a good bit of our energy. We must have patience and wait for it. I'll get the uh, three-hour piece with the ET gentle person. Okay. Um, this can be frustrating, and we might try to push it. We might try on different frequencies to see as it fits. Yet this option will waste a good bit of our energy. We must have patience and wait for it. Wait for that inner knowing that just the right opportunity and frequency will find you. Like attracts like. Trust this. Knowing that the universe has our backs and will dial us into the right emerging reality. Once we enter our light frequency, most things that were not our matched frequency will fade away like they never existed. Because we have never been through this type of evolution before, it will be challenging to explain or draw references to anything familiar from the past. So, this is the best I can do. This time might feel like we are getting a next level walk in like experience to reboot our bodies with the new level of creation. Yet it is not a walk-in situation. Walk-ins were from the old cycle. Yet, yes, this is going to be even more weird. (laughs) This new phase will be necessary to maintain our physical body within the new laws of nature in the new cycle. So... We can assist this process by consciously intending to let go of that weird, tight, heavy, stress-like feeling we are having. Search vagus nerve release. It helps with anxiety and locked-up energy. As you feel these unusual symptoms, talk to your body. Ask that they drop away. Go with the heaviness instead of fighting it. Stretch it out as the old programming begins to get released from your body. There will be a lot of yawning and glorious stretches that feel like you've just woken up from a 10,500 year long nap because in a way you have. Let the heaviness drop away all the last bits of dead carcasses of old programming and send them down into, down into the earth's core to be purified and recycled. Other things you can do. It helps to do this process and clearing in a meditative state and keep telling your body It's safe. Treat your body like a scared little child. Nurture it. I suggest using high-frequency-based music. Set up a sacred space in which to do this. Yet always do what feels right for you to do. 
by now, we all know what we don't want. Put this behind you now. Start claiming what you do want in your world. Envision it. And then begin to put your energy there through some form of action. It doesn't matter how big of a physical gesture you make. You need to tell the universe what you want, not what you don't want. And find ways to add even more pieces of this future vision in your life. The universe is listening to all of you, not just what you say with words. Your intention is essential. Yet most of all, your motivation is what the universe listens to. So it's good to have time to self-reflect, to understand our motivation behind what we desire. Suppose that motivation comes from lower forms of ego, such as anger, pride, gluttony, lust, revenge, laziness, envy, greed, etc. We need to rethink what we are telling the universe with our motivation. All the above negative egos will not be sustainable in this next world. Humanity has been downloaded and upgraded, not just in consciousness, rather this time in your physical reality. This is the first step to the new earth template, beginning to manifest in your living material world. Your dream of a new world is no longer a myth, a metaphysical belief, or a secret. It is now becoming a reality. Deep inside, there have been subtle shifts within you. You are starting to feel the process of embodying your true self. We hear you. You have wanted to go home for so long. We feel your struggles. Yet now, you will find that your home is within you. It is not even something you know in your mind. It is something you feel in your soul. You'll begin to feel more hopeful and have a new self-confidence level. You will feel your passion for your work in this world. Start In this world, start returning, yet not in the same way. You are now feeling the first step into physically embodying the template of the new human. You worked so hard for this. You have paid a huge price for this. Now, your patience has paid off. Lord of Peace, Pakal of Palenque. That's who sent this message to all of us. The soul has been given its own ears to hear things the mind does not understand. That's the piece by Rumi. So we're going to play it in this last little section, uh, another little section of, what's that called, Bravo? Um, uh, Just read what says underneath there. NASA's Forbidden Alien Study Finds Proof of Spiritual Beings. Okay, we played about an hour and 12 minutes of this. We're going to back it up to an hour and 10. Yeah. And then we're going to uh, refresh your memory for a couple of minutes and then proceed and see how far we get. <sighs> All righty, here we go. Mm. Mm. It's a very time to be alive, everybody. Thank you for this. And I started talking about the lady in that conference and the audience began to heckle me. 
they made fun. They didn't want to hear about the lady. They wanted to hear about the, the river event. So it was a very traumatic thing. And uh, that bonded Diane and I for all these years where that's how we became to know one another. But the crazy thing is, is immediately when she left, that's when I began to document everything. I could get pictures. I could take you out and share it with you. Only after she came. Only after the lady came. Yep. What do you think the bull symbolized? I don't know, but I know this. It got the attention of Diana and the Vatican and CIA, NASA, and everybody, DOD, um, even the Ministry of Defense in Britain, Australia, uh, all these people. They wanted to know about the lady immediately, let me tell you. In fact, I put it in writing to two generals at the Pentagon what she told me. I was asked to do that. I have there. I mean, I, there's. I have a whole bunch of questions in my head right now, but I want to try to figure out how to pick this apart a little bit. Um, first of all, Steve, do you remember when we were talking to Randall the other day? We were going through the different ages in the Great Year. Yeah. Um, what what age are we in now? As far as like the constellations, I, that, that's the first thing I thought about. Is like the age of the bull. The lion. Mm. We're in Aquarius. We're in Aquarius yeah. right now. Like that song, Age of Aquarius. Right, right. Oh yeah, we were singing Age of Aquarius. <laughs> and what's the next one? Is there a way you can pull up like a diagram, uh, that circular diagram he was showing us? Well, let me tell you what she told me. She said that there was a shift in the powers of the heavens and that she had been away. Feminine energy was about to come back and there won't no stopping it and that, that there would be a shift and that that shift would be into Aquarius and that the divine feminine would come back as the energy that would create a thousand years of peace. That's what she told me. There'd be trouble first, but in time that peace would come to this world. All right. So it goes Aries. Taurus, Gemini, Cancer, Leo, Virgo, Libra, Scorpio, Sagittarius, okay, Aquarius, followed by Pisces. Okay, so we got a long way to go before we're in Taurus again. Yep. Interesting. But you know, the lady in in Egypt is depicted Hathor with uh, bull horns or a bull next to her. Many countries, the lady is always depicted as with a bull or either have bull horns with a solar disc mm. or beside the bull. So it goes hand in hand with her throughout many countries. What did Diana say about the lady? Did she have any speculation about who she was? Yeah, they quickly referred me to the Fatima lady and the lady of Guadalupe, uh, the lady of Lords France and, um, Fatima, and there's several others. There's one in Egypt that um, I don't know the name. Can of. you pull up the Lady of Guadalupe? Yep. Um, now, the Sphinx, there's been people that have speculated the Sphinx was originally a lion. Yeah. What's weird 
is Regulus is in the Leo constellation. So Regulus is in the Leo constellation. So when a Leo constellation comes up and aligns with that brightest star called Regulus. Um, is there images? I think it's Leo. Pretty sure it's Leo. Okay, this is the Lady of Guadalupe. Yeah. So, the, yeah, that was the first time you saw the lady. And when did she – did she give you – a specific time when things were going to change with humanity. She's, you know, I've seen her more than one time and, um, yes, I didn't hear from her except at Easter, uh, of 2013, she came back. Okay. Yeah. Regulus. It is a constant uh, star. It's the star of Leo, the lion heart. Yep. And when she told me when that star aligns on the horizon before daylight in, in the gaze of the Sphinx, there would be a shift in the knowledge of humanity, a new knowledge. And that's what she told me. But there would be trouble along the way first. And they gave me the images of war. I even wrote that I saw Israel bomb Iran and Syria. And we're looking at it right now. I put that in writing for years. I'm not talking today. I did it. I've said this for a long time. And it's it's coming. It's happening. Let's hope it don't, but it's looking that way. At what point did you start getting visited by people in government and people in NASA or CIA? 2007, 8, 2008. So right after. Yeah. Well, I didn't report the incident until October. So it happened in January mm. of 2007. I come home telling this and my wife was so afraid. The kids were scared. They didn't know what was happening. The church, um, being in a Pentecostal holiness church, I was a deacon in the Pentecostal church. So you can imagine Pentecostal church is way different. That's Dr. Pavenmeyer, Hal Pavenmeyer. Um, so they immediately related it to the demons. So my wife is trying to keep the family uh, under control and hush me up about it. So I didn't talk about it for 10 months other than my kids. Words would be in the yard at night, 2 in the morning. I'd wake them up and bring them outside to look. Your daddy's not crazy. There they are, right? So um, my wife began to experience it. I think in the, well, what time was it in 07 when she got shoved in the kitchen? It must have been in the fall. It was a few months later. She got shoved in the kitchen? Yeah. Yeah, twice. Dad had been praying, you know, that mom would have an experience so she would believe him. And she was doing the dishes and no one was awake or around. And some something shoved her into the sink. And it scared her so bad. She said, don't ever pray for me again. (laughs) (laughs) Shoved her twice, but uh, I don't blame her. Yeah. So I didn't speak about it for the first 10 months. And it was October um, that I had cable finally. We didn't even have cable. I couldn't afford it. had no TV Mm -hmm. Uh, other than local. You know, you get a few channels with a rabbit ear. And so... We got cable and I started researching the UFOs. How do I tell somebody? Who do I talk to? I've got to get this out of my head or I'm going to go crazy because 
my head's hurt really bad. Every time I tried to think about the subject, I would go into almost uh, pass. I did pass out very often. Uh, it would it would hurt so bad I would pass out in front of everybody. Was it my brain had a lock on it, and um, so it was October. I saw a MUFON ad on the History Channel about uh, uh, Stanton Friedman, this nuclear physicist, was talking, and I, the first time I'd seen a show like that, I thought he's pretty cool. If this guy would tell it, I'm going to tell it. So I, I Googled them and found their application to submit um, a report, and I wrote it out. Two weeks went by. I attempted to push that button. And I knew if I pushed that button, I'm going to lose my wife. That's what I thought. I was under that much stress. So after two weeks, I agonized. Finally, I hit send, and I felt this relief. But I didn't expect to hear anything back, right? So within a week, I get this call. Within days, a couple of days, I get a call from MUFON out of California saying, we want to come see you like right away. And I'm like, oh, no, you can't do that. I just wanted to say it, right? So I told them no. And they kept calling me and, talk and calling and calling. And come January of 08, or right around the 1st of January, um, they wrote me again. And I finally said, I've got to tell this. I mm-hmm. can't hold it no longer. So I said, yeah, you can come. And it was February of 08 when the first person showed. And that's when I told uh, my wife was sitting there on the couch while the investigator was there. And she looked over at him. And she and I hadn't talked about this, period. Only me and the kids. She was always fussing at me. Don't get them out of bed. You know, they got to go to school. And that's when she asked uh, Steve, the investigator, if... uh, you ever seen any shadowy beings? You know, I've been seeing them, and I got shoved in the kitchen. And I said, my prayer's working. I've been praying you would experience this. And she looked at me and pointed her finger and said, don't you ever pray for me again like that? <laughs> we all thought it was funny. but That was the first time you ever heard her talk about shadowy figures? Yeah. She wouldn't talk around me. She would around them, but she wouldn't me. And she was trying to hide it, you know. But um, it just became uh, within two weeks, um, within two weeks of the MUFON coming to my house in February, they had already talked me into doing a documentary with the Discovery Channel. This will vindicate you. The whole neighborhood will know you're, you're not lying about it. So they talked me into it, and that was a bad mistake. Mm. Bad, because it turned the opposite way. I don't think they ever believed it would happen again. I didn't think that. Because it don't normally happen. Somebody sees something, that's it. But it didn't stop. It came back. And Did you ever see any of those three-foot childlike beings again? Yeah. Yeah, I sure did. In fact, there's a picture of them. I'm trying and to find it. I can't it's there. seem to find the photo. but And you, you mentioned the first time during the river experience when that first being explained to you he wasn't there to harm you he was only there to help you right was there any other communication any other times that you saw them or yep. experienced them yeah two nights later this was on uh it was a monday night when we had the experience on the river chris jr and the group 
Wednesday night. Now, wife wasn't coming home to Friday, right? So we're staying the rest of the week there, uh, just Junior and I. And Wednesday night, um, I'm struggling with Chris Junior because he's in shock and he's had a really scary experience, right? Um, and he was in a bad way. And so um, Wednesday night, it was about 9 o'clock, 8.30 or 9 at night. Suddenly, we're at home, he and I, watching television, just dad and son. And these same dogs start barking again. Same way, scary part. So I ran to the back door and could look out over the whole property, out through the back, full glass back door. And there was a Christmas tree farm beside us, a big one. They had uh, new trees where people would, they would send them out, you know, cut all these trees down. But it was a section of that Christmas tree farm that was overgrown. You see the far back right corner mm. uh, on the wood lines, our property line. But yeah. on the other side of that, excuse me, it was this huge Christmas tree farm. I can see it looks like a wall of trees. Yeah. So um, the trees were so big that they grew together. So there was no walking through the place. There were 40-foot-tall spruce pine trees. But underneath, you could get down on your knees, and there was no weeds at all. It was just these short little pine needles. And there was a section three feet of height underneath all them trees. You could see for a long ways. And so I just crossed the fence. The, the lights were flashing, pulsating in the Christmas trees. The whole tree was lit up, tree, the farm. And I knew what it was because we'd seen it Monday night on the river, these white, big white orbs flashing. And um, I don't know what got into me, but it was a change in my life at that moment because I had been a hunter. I was raised with a rifle and a shotgun. I shot my first deer at five years old. I was shot in the back at 10 years old, had a near-death experience nearly you know, I was the luckiest guy in the world and when I was 10 years old. Blew a hole in me. It's big. Big as an orange. Shot in the back with a shotgun? Yes, from me to you. That's a whole other story. The scar is still the size of, like, a big orange or a grapefruit. Yeah, right. Straight in line with my heart. Right there. If I pull up my shirt, you can see lead right here oh, through wow. the skin. Yeah. That was the first near there. And so, I don't know why. But I was angry. I just seeing my son get upset again all over because now we got two nights later these lights in the backyard again. And it's taken me two days to kind of calm him down. And now he's freaked out bad. Oh, my God. He's just really freaked. And um, so I just had this bit of rage come in me. And I walked over to the gun cabinet and I grabbed a little holster, 44 Magnum rifle little short saddle gun I used to bear hunt with. I'm on record, Boone and Crockett record book for shooting 660-pound black bear. Wow. North Carolina. The big, it was a record at that time. Uh, still in probably the top five. But um, I took that gun and I said, you come with me, Jenner. He said, no, I'm not. I'm not going out that door. He said, please don't leave me, Dad. I said, son, I'm going to end this tonight. That's what I told him. I was just being a father, I guess. So I walked back to that back, far back right corner, and I went through that little opening you see, walked another 50 yards to the along that side, and there was a fence there, old hog fence that 
trees had fallen over in one spot, so it wasn't used anymore, but it was crunched down. And I knew it there. I didn't want to have to cross that fence until I got back there. So I could step over it. So I stepped over that fence and the first 10 yards of the, of that, uh, tree farm was nothing but pines. So there was a, a, a buffer area of pines and then there was the wall of Christmas trees. Sure wall. I mean, there are no going through it. You couldn't drive a car through a bulldozer. So I got on my knees and I started under and I could see this orb is about 50 yards away. Or not even that far, 50, 60 feet, 70 feet maybe. And it was pulsating. I could see the bottom three feet of it. That's all the view I had, three feet of view under there. So I crawled, dragging that gun under these trees until I got about 20 feet from that orb, 20, maybe 30 feet. And the electricity from it, the buzz, the static, my whole body felt like needles. The hair was standing up and every bump, goose bump on me was just tingling. And the energy was so strong, I couldn't go any closer. I just turned around and I backed away, walked back out of the forest, crawled out. And I got to the, the pine trees where the fence was crunched. I stood up and I went to step over that fence. And the minute I went to step over that fence, there were two of these beings just appeared right in front of me. One on, I mean, they're standing like three feet from me and just enough gap. I could walk between them. And immediately I felt this shame come over me. Shame that I had this rifle. Why I brought this to fight something that there ain't no fighting, right? So I took the gun and I tried to hide it behind me. And what they put in my head was what changed me from that point on. I never hunted again. I don't harm bugs. I have uh, a way with animals now nobody understands. I have 50, 100 ducks, wild ducks will fly in and fly right up to me. If you come out there, they're gone, but they'll fly right up me from me, feed them wild mallards. And if anybody knows about mallard ducks, they're one of the most skittish creatures in the world. They fly at you know, thousands of feet high at 80 miles an hour, and you need duck calls and blinds and decoys in the water to get one to land. Well, I have whole flocks of them fly right in and eat. I can feed them. But that wasn't like that before. But these beings told me that they changed me. They told me that um, the way they put it in my head, when I say told me, they don't really talk. They put images that you know. It's just telepathic, I guess you could say. But it made me understand that the whole world is... um is a living is alive everything from the grass to every single animal bird tree all had a consciousness they even put images in to me uh, of the cells in the body like in within the human body there there you don't tell your body what to do something outside of us is telling our body, how to function, the molecules, the, the, um, each cell that divides from one cell to the other 
has a conscience. So um, I'm just a part of that. Uh, I can't get the words out I want to say, um, but it just changed me in such a way that I began to cry about everything. I've cried for the last seven, eight, ten years, I guess, about everything. When I see something get hurt, it just kills me. But it came from that experience with these beings on how they told me how everything's a living consciousness and I don't have the right to take its life. That um, we live in a mutualistic way, like the, the, your stomach, for example. You have bacteria in your stomach mm. that digest chlorophyll, plant material. The human can't do it, but this bacteria does. And it secretes the nutrients that you get from that plant. And it survives because you're feeding it the the plant material, right? So it's a mutualistic way we live. And Mm -hmm. it's like a tree gives you wood for a house. It gives you shade for the sun, a nest for a bird, oxygen to breathe, and the list goes on. So everything has a part of life on this planet. And it's not up to us to destroy it and abuse it. And it's, I could talk about this for days. Wow. Yeah. It changed me. And, um, this was in the very beginning. How long did it take before you, the word, obviously the word had to get out, but like how long did it take before one of these guys like Hal Pavenmeyer from NASA to show up? And, and was he the first one to show up? And why, why did he show up? Um, remember the, we got past this, I guess, but February they came and did the report by June. They were doing the documentary, mm-hmm. uh, by late July, August, I think it was how shows up at our house knocking on the door. And I was away in town and my youngest boy, Ryan answers the door. And there's a six foot four guy, giant man standing <laughs> at the door. Yeah, it was just Ryan and I, and he came and we're, and he was like, "Is Chris Bledsoe here?" And we're like, "Uh, no. Who no, are you?" No calls, no, <laughs> no, no letters. Just showed up unannounced. He drove all the way from Florida, Cape Canaveral, just on a whim, and knocked on the door. It's two and a half hours from here. <laughs> yeah, it was thirteen hours there, right? And right. so he drove and. Ryan calls me and he flashed some badges. So we let him in and we just like <laughs> sat at the dinner table with him until dad came home. What was he talking? What was he saying to you? What was he asking you? I don't remember everything. I was pretty young, but he was just, I mean, mom came. So we were talking and she was just asking him questions and Ryan was probably taking the lead. I don't remember. Hmm. I was pretty shy. But what he did was, is, um, uh, well, to begin with, this is in the book. For the first five years, we had been involved with the UFO world on a limited scale. You know, they, everybody heard about us. They wanted us to come speak. They wanted to come visit and I let a few people come. And the men in black was a big thing back then. That was about the year it all came out. Um, and so everybody was saying the government will kill you. Don't speak to this one. Don't, if you see somebody from the government that don't speak, I mean, they put the fear of the government in my whole family. And who? so who was they? 
uh, well, the people associated with, with MUFON. The, the people associated with MUFON. Which is the UFO world, mm-hmm. basically. You know? So once that show came out, it brought everybody that's involved in the UFO world. Uh, knocking on the door, bringing groups of 10, 15, 20 people sometimes. And they would come. I'm not saying it was MUFON. It's people associated with them, mm-hmm. the, the UFO world. So they were all about the men in black. They're going to kill you. They're going to kill you. So when the government guy house shows up at the house, automatically it was fear. We were all afraid. And I didn't want to talk to him. I didn't want to have anything to do with him. And for the first few months, I would never uh, give him any information. But yet he took to my children. And he loved this one more than anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, he came to my college graduation, birthday parties, recitals. Like, wow. He would drive all the way to be a part of our family. Yeah. He was always there. And you know what he told me? He said, Chris, now he was at, when he died, he'd been at NASA still holding security clearances for 60 years. That's how long he's been there. He worked with Warner Bond Brown before it was NASA. He took his astrophysics uh, his degree in astronomy and astrophysics from uh, J.L. and Hynek at Ohio State University. He was like 15 when he graduated college. Powell's a genius. Yeah. Freaking genius he was. And so um, why was he interested in this? Why was he interested in you? Because they knew what I was saying, the, the word, the, the triangle, the triangle on the chest of the being, that was a big thing. The little child with a triangle. The lady uh, was 2012. That, it, that happened later, but that even brought more people. But it was, they'd known, they knew the phenomenon was real. They've known it. Don't listen to them on TV. I mean, they say, we don't know. We don't have anything. Yes, they do. They all know. Was this personal for him? Or was this, this was business. This was part of a a NASA sent him. This wasn't just him like a side hobby. Well, no, I wouldn't say NASA sent him because he would always tell us not to say that. Oh, okay. Because he wasn't supposed to be very selective with what he would say. Yeah. What kind of questions was he asking you? Everything you can imagine. He, he would ask each member of the family the same question separately to see if they would line up. And he did this for years and years. And one day decided mm-hmm. he couldn't debunk it and okay. just decided he loved us. And that's when we started, you know, gaining like a friendly relationship with him. And he like integrated into our family. Yeah. That was after years of him trying to debunk us pretty much so he was coming there to cross-examine you guys to find holes in your story to see if basically he was sent he told us he was sent to debunk this story that's what he told us he worked with jay allen honey he was the debunker and we heard many stories how he would find a hole this person uh, you know son of a sheriff fake something he called him that's what he did and um but he also would come and stay days while we weren't there. Didn't know he was in town. He would be at the newspaper. He'd be on every house on the street where this phenomenon first appeared to us in 2007. He investigated every house within a mile or two of that place. And that's who found the eight other witnesses that testified to him on his when he was getting the information that they had seen something that night and 
So that's what he did when he finally realized it was he couldn't blow a hole in the story that too many knew it was real. Um, Then he became a part of the family and he began to see the phenomenon with me. We sat out in the back and watched it come over. But we loved him. Hal was a a great guy for our friends, uh, for my family, my children. We just loved the guy. And he was coming to our house Thanksgiving of 2020, 2019, 2019. He was coming. 2019. Yeah. And um, we were expecting him on Friday for the Thanksgiving that weekend. And he, he, he fell in his bathroom and hit his head and went in a coma. Oh, no. Who is this guy? That's uh, Colonel John Alexander. The men who stare at goats, John yes. Alexander? Yes. That one, yep. That's John. You see our Can you zoom in on it a little bit? Mm-hmm. You see my hat there? That's, I've got a whole box of those. John wears one, too. CIA. So, okay. Explain this story. <laughs> How did you meet John Alexander and... and what was your relationship with him? Well, John starts off the first chapter of the book. And um, this guy's like a legendary military general, right? Yeah. He's a colonel. Colonel, yeah. yeah. What do they call him? Dr. Death? Yeah. That's his name. Yeah. He was an assassin in the military. And he's, Isn't his PhD in like death? Uh, yeah, near-death studies from Harvard, I think. He Is got he that. still alive? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I talked to him this week. Wow. Yeah. We we stay in contact. I mean, we love John. John was at my house not long ago. In fact, we're going to spend that. Oh, wow. That's Joe McMonagall, CIA spy number one, remote viewer number one. That's 001. 001, that's mm-hmm. him. Joe McMonagall. He's a legend. That's at the Monroe Institute, by the way. Yeah. Which we uh, we love to be. How were you introduced to him and what was his interest in you? John, um, it was 2015, I think, this lady by the name of Pam Nance. Uh, she's a, a research scientist for the government and her home base is uh, Wake Forest University. So Pam calls me. Uh, I was introduced to her. Uh, somebody, uh, and then I called her back long story short. She says, Chris, um, I'm researching the paranormal. Me and my assistant, Ashley, she said, we're researching the paranormal. And I just got to tell you, she said, I've been on Pilot Mountain in North Carolina. She lived from Winston-Salem. Works at White Forest right there in Winston-Salem, right? So she said, I was on Pilot Mountain or Mount Pilot, like the Andy Griffin show, Mount mm-hmm. Pilot, right? She has a cabin near there, her home place from way back. And she said that she and Ashley would hike up on Pilot Mountain and sit under the stars and turn on this voice box. They call it a spirit box. I'd never heard of such. But it's a little device about like the size of a cell phone that has this awful noise that comes out of it. It sounds like uh, static, static, yeah, white noise. 
but it's, it's ticking, tick, 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 like so. And what it's doing is scanning millions of frequencies. And they, these investigators believe that, and I know now, that disembodied spirits or voices can come through that thing. So she said she was on Pilot Mountain, and she would ask it questions, and it kept saying, Chris, UFO, Chris, UFO. And it said it over and over, over several days, she would hear the same thing, Chris, UFO. Even said Hope Mills, which is where we live. So she gets on the phone with um, MUFON and finds out who is Chris in the UFO. Well, they gave her my number right away. So she comes to the house, and we're out at the burning tree. First, we did um, about an hour and a half interview in my study. And she had all her equipment running. And then we went, uh, and not to get ahead of myself, but while they did the hour and a half study inside, they got like 60 or 70 voice communications, audible, that was recorded on a recorder, just coming out of thin air. So we go out to the tree and we do this investigation and uh, I'm just holding this box in one hand, spirit box with a cord hooked to a digital recorder. So this is recording what this is saying and you can hear this thing. So she talks me into standing at the burning tree while uh, my wife, her assistant, um, Pam and Ashley, my wife, and Stephanie, my niece. There were four ladies standing, you know, 10 feet from me looking at me. I'm leaning against that burning tree, and I'm holding this thing. And we start asking questions. Crazy thing, this thing started talking, and it would answer my question. It would say my name, and four or five voices would come through it. They recorded 350 audio clips, and she said, I've never seen anything like it. She said, if I went to the Charleston jail to do a ghost hunt, she could take six of these recorders and let them run for hours, each one, and they might get one voice out of, you know, 40 hours of recording where we got over 350 recorded clips. But one thing it said, it said, Chris, the Pope is in danger. Help him. You must help the Pope. It was saying this. We got it on recording. And um, she even made a PowerPoint with this, with all these clips. You can listen to them. Are they online? No. Okay. <laughs> I've got them. Okay. But um, with all this happening, um, I knew that the Pope was going to Philadelphia. He was already had been into Washington and was making his trip to New York City. And he was going to go to Philadelphia. Was this Pope Francis? I think it was Francis, mm-hmm. right? When they were going, he was going to make a speech at the Congress, old of the original Congress Hall in, in Philadelphia. So I call a friend that called me last night. The guy you asked about who it was that called. I, yeah. I said, I called this guy and I said, Hey, Larry. You won't believe this. I said, uh, this thing, this lady has, and I'm, I'm talking to him right after all this investigation. I said, this thing keeps saying that the Pope's in trouble. It's coming to Philadelphia. Uh, he said, you must help him. It was saying this, not, you can hear it. You must help him. So immediately my friend 
says, well, maybe you should come to to Philadelphia and uh, let's see what we can do about it. So a couple, three days later, I'm in Philadelphia. And when I walk in his house, there stands John Alexander. First time I ever met him. And that's when we started remote viewing the whole Pope first chapter of this book. And they actually arrested a guy for trying to blow him up. I even told him he was going to use a bomb. Um, I saw where the boat ramp beside Ben Franklin Bridge. I drew it all out, and they verified it. And so they got Secret Service involved. Then John calls Joe McMonagle, and Joe says the same exact thing that I say. And so from that point, they shut down Philadelphia, closed every access into it, and made people walk from the Jersey side across the Ben Franklin Bridge. You had to walk in. You couldn't drive. And they arrested a guy for that. So that's how I met John. It was a real thing, what happened there. And that got the attention of a lot of people. Hi, I'm Nicole Hockley from Sandy Hook Promise. I know this is hard to hear, but it's important. Did you ever speak with the Pope? I never had personally. I had words, I had messages relayed to me from the Vatican through Diana and a friend from NASA, mm-hmm. Tim Taylor. And uh, he sent me pictures of orbs and of St. Francis with these orbs appearing. And he had these hands were zapped. And at that time, I couldn't use my hands. I could barely button my pants. I get my kids to button my pants. And I couldn't tie my shoes. couldn't hardly pull my pants up. My hands were just in plain. This is the arthritis. This is in. rheumatoid. Which is an autoimmune disease. Um, so, yeah, the other NASA individual you met after how? How long? What, where on the timeline did you meet him? I met him in 20, it was either late 2012 or early 2013. And um, what happened there, I was at a, a gathering in an old log cabin in upstate Pennsylvania on the Delaware River or on a lake. We crossed the river and to this beautiful historic cabin. It had Thomas Edison's bedroom suit there, right? So big money. And uh, Taylor had heard I was there, and he was out in uh, L.A., California. And so he heard I was at that meeting, and he wanted to meet me. And he called and said, I'm coming from L.A. I'm heading to Huntsville, but I'm going to swing by Pennsylvania first to meet you. I want to I want to talk. And so he showed up that afternoon. I'd been there one day. We got there Friday, Saturday evening. He shows up, and uh, we became very close friends from that point on. And uh, after he left, from there, he flew out the next morning back to Huntsville. So he came in one evening, met me, made arrangements to come to my house and to meet my family. And a week or so later, he was in Fayetteville at my house. And uh, the rest is history from there. So, Tim, he was, what was his background? Where did he work? What was his, what was he studying and what was his interest in you? Tim is uh, is an amazing guy. Uh, he's a genius, and he's a very kind-hearted person. 
Um, he is an engineer for NASA. That uh, He's probably been at NASA now 40-some years, over 40 years. And he runs all the launches. He's the man. He's an NRO guy, National Reconnaissance Office. And, and sorry to interrupt, but let's just clarify for people what that means, National Reconnaissance Office. National, what do they do? National Reconnaissance was a very secretive organization until a few years ago when they were discovered and it went public. But he uh, he was a part of the Air Force, a part of NASA and the CIA, all three. So he holds the credentials for all three. And what they do, these guys, they're the top ranks. They have the highest security clearances. They're so high they can't even travel. Like he can't go in the hospital and have surgery unless somebody's escorting him because he might talk. So they're the eyes on the sky. And our guys see it all. They have, if there's anything flying in our space, there's a select few of those guys that get to see it. I mean, it's compartmentalized down to just a handful. So they they own all the satellites, all the spy planes. They run the launches because this, every time they launch something, something from up there, come check it out. Swim right up to it or fly up to it and make sure it's not something that shouldn't, shouldn't be. And I'll stop with that. So let's just say something. Okay, well, that's something we're going to have to talk about <laughs> later, a little bit later. <laughs> Swim right up to it. Okay. Yeah. All right. Anyways, uh, we defined NRO. So he was a uh, an aerospace engineer working for NASA for forty years. Yeah. And um, about forty years now, probably he was there thirty years when I met him. And what did he say to you? What what kind of things was he was he asking you when he when you guys first met? Um. He was the kindest person, understanding, somebody I liked. He never doubted me. One of the worst things to do with this subject, and everybody feels it, you're, you know, a new person on the block is so afraid to tell anybody because of the way you're going to be perceived. You're mm-hmm. crazy, right? Right. But he was never like that. He was, uh, and, and what really was the difference, and I'm sitting here with a, a lead scientist from NASA, the one of the top guys from NASA. He runs the launches. He is. He runs the launches. He runs them all. This guy. He's in charge. He's the dragon. There's a dragon tattoo on his arm. His console is called Dragon Console. I had the number to his dragon, dragon console. Yeah. He's, his console is named the Dragon, which is his space in Mission Control where he stands and runs the launch. He's the Dragon. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so to have that kind of person questioning me about what they look like, not, are you sure you saw this? Not, I don't believe you. It was none of that. It was, what What did they look like? Describe them to me. Were they this way? Were they that way? Did they walk this way? They knew. They knew all this stuff. And so for right away, I found somebody that... um that I appreciated that could help me understand. And he, he felt so sorry for Chris Jr. That his mission was to meet him. He wanted to meet Jr. He came and he spent a lot of time with him. Changed his life. 
because Junior had the worst problem being 17 years old with people telling him he's a liar. Mm. You know, that's the right. worst thing you can do. Grandmas and grandpas even say, I don't believe you. Uh, you know, were you on drugs or something? And it wasn't the case. And so this guy comes and he knew it was real. And he went right straight to my house and he met everybody, briefed us with an official briefing on a laptop with our name, our eyes only, the Bledsoe family. He tested each one of us with metamaterial and to see if we'd have a reaction to it. And uh, he, he counseled Junior for a long time and changed his life because now he had some pride. He had somebody to believe him. And if NASA people would do that, then that's a really big deal. So. Okay. We're going to have some suspense till the next chapter in this story mm. comes along for us to play. What a drama. What a drama. This is not the only person that we're listening to that's having these dramas in their life that's going on all over the world. The contactees are multiplying exponentially. Uh, again, there's a change coming, right, Rama? Yeah, and it's about love. It's not about anything else. Oh, no, these beings are totally loving. And uh, his whole family has said so in in this particular family's story. Uh, North Carolina, right? Okay, Ray Bird from North Carolina. Um, we are calling on you. This uh, this uh, talking stick has that emerald serpent feathered one uh, on it, and. All kinds of little Menahuni and Sasquatch and angels and fairies and feathers and rainbows. And here it comes. I pass this talking stick to you for the last word. Here it comes. Okay, I got it. <laughs> yeah, and thank you. Another day we made it. <laughs> and there's a lot going on. So let's continue this again next week. And actually tomorrow we'll go Charles and we all appreciate you so much. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And I pass this talking stick to you, Rama. Here it comes. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much everyone for listening. Thank you. Yes. Okay. You got something there for us, Rama. It's I gotta get past the commercial. Oh, aren't, aren't we on Brave? Isn't that supposed to not happen on uh, Brave? Well, what can I say? <laughs> As Aurora Ray has said here, this is our chance right here, right now, to be one of the chosen volunteers to access and achieve enlightenment in this moment, in this lifetime, right now. So, it's our time to wake up 
and be the ones we've been waiting for. Wake up a neighbor. Something very magical can be said, and somebody just living in La La Land is going to go, wait a minute. <laughs> what do you have to say, Rama? Uh, <laughs> I could just say that when these folks talk to us, they come in many voices, whether it's through this man, Chris, or the deer, or the crows, or the universe talking to you, and you will hear it, just ask, and they will show up. I mean, it is happening. It's for real, and it is about love. It's not about war. Okay, yes, war is never the answer. Love is always the answer. Oh. And as John Lennon said, war is over as we want it. Yeah. I believe the world's ready for that one. Uh, I just say one more thing. Let's uh, take a chance and join us with Cheryl Croce on Sunday evenings and Monday evenings. We spend some time with a meditation and activation uh, call together. Uh, so that's... Uh, 6 p.m. Uh, um, Pacific Time and uh, 9 p.m. Is that right? Eastern Time. And so we'll see you there. Uh, and Cheryl's number is 425-436-6260 and the PIN code is 946-7441-POUNDS. I believe in the Sarah now. Sat Nam, everybody. Sat Nam G. Thirteen thank yous. Honey in the heart, no evil. Live long and prosper. Namaste, everybody. <laughs>